You know, if I don't say anything, the show doesn't have to ever end. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. You could just stop. You could walk away. I could. I could. I, I mean, I haven't been sentimental, but like this was this was a hard one to begin. But okay. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths with cinema now. You're listening to the final episode of the Secret Origins podcast with stories of Batman and Robin, the flash of two worlds, Johnny Thunder, Dolphin, Black Canary, and the Space Museum. These currents. Yeah, there's no way in hell we're getting out of here in under four hours. Arms to shoulder, till tides all pull. Our holograms making this call. Harbor now home. Take up your arms, sons and daughters. We will arise from the bunkers by land, by sea. By dirigible, we'll leave our tracks untraceable now. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is the final regular episode. There's only one issue left to cover, and that's what my guests and I are here to do on this star-studded epic-length finale. Later today, or tonight, or this week, I really have no idea how long it'll take you to listen to this episode, you will hear from Rob Kelly, Michael Bailey, J. David Weeder, David Ace Gutierrez, and the Irredeemable Shag. But first, leading off this extra special episode is the extra special guest who hosts Pop Culture Affidavit on the Two True Freaks Network. He previously appeared on Secret Origins episode 13 where we discussed the origin of Nightwing, and on the annual number 3 episode where he helped cover the origin of the Teen Titans, with a particular emphasis on Dick Grayson's role as Robin and Nightwing. Yes, there is a theme to his appearances on this show, because he's back again to talk about the first meeting of Batman and Dick Grayson. Ladies and gentlemen, secret admirers, please welcome Mr. Tom Panarese back. How are you, Tom? Thanks for having me on for the, well, the sort of finale (laughs) thing here. This has been real. It's been fun the, the two times I've been on, and this is this is going to be fun. So I've been looking forward to it. So thank you. I, I really appreciate the, the invite. I was happy to have you. I, I wanted to have you back. I mean, this was something that we talked about way back when I first booked you. I think I, I slotted I think you for so. the three Dick Grayson stories. And yeah. So this is well-tread ground that we are covering on this one. We've we've told this story before. Because as I, I mean, as I teased, we are here to talk about more Dick Grayson because apparently and inexplicably, after two of the the longest episodes on this podcast already, we still haven't <laughs> talked enough about this character. I know. Uh, <laughs> before we do that, though, I want to remind my listeners, in case this is the first episode that they're tuning into, or if they've somehow forgotten what Secret Origins is all about, or maybe they've just grown so used to hearing me say the words... Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. 
The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series, the last six of which appeared in issue 50. If there were indeed 120 stories in the series, then 5% of them are told in this issue that we're about to crack open. It starts with a familiar tale, the first meeting, really the first sighting of Batman by young Dick Grayson. Tom, you have already been on the show talking about Robin and Nightwing. We've gone over your personal reading history with Dick Grayson, twice at least. Yeah. Um, we've gone over the publication history of this character. We don't need to revisit those subjects. So instead, what I would like to do is compare and contrast the origins of the first three Robins, who are really the only Robins that I care about. Dick Grayson, Same here. <laughs> Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, and Tim Drake. How are these characters similar? How are they different? What does their origin say about them as characters and their relationship with Batman? The first boy wonder, Dick Grayson, was a circus kid. His parents were aerialists in Haley's Circus, and even as a child, Dick was part of the show. When Dick's parents were murdered during a performance, Bruce Wayne adopted the boy, eventually revealing himself to be Batman and training him to fight crime as his sidekick. Prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths, the second boy to take up the mantle of Robin, Jason Todd, was also a circus acrobat whose parents were killed. Post-Crisis, however, Jason's origin was completely revamped. Instead, Jason grew up on the mean streets of Gotham until Batman discovered him boosting the tires of the Batmobile. After Jason helped the Dark Knight smash a crime ring operating out of an orphanage, Batman took Jason on as his new Robin. The third Robin arose from the void left by Jason Todd's grisly murder in the story A Death in the Family. Unlike Dick and Jason, Tim Drake was not an orphan. He didn't have a tragic backstory. He studied Batman and realized that the absence of a boy sidekick was having a dangerous effect on Batman's behavior. Tim sought out to prove that Batman needs a Robin for psychological as well as tactical reasons. After months of grueling work and training, Tim Drake became Batman's new partner. So, with those like little mini express versions of their origins told, Tom, what are your thoughts on these Robins and their origins in general? Dix has proven the most timeless. Granted, I haven't read... It's been a while since I've read any sort of retelling of his origin. I think the most recent one that I have and that I've read is probably the Robin Year One story. But even that wasn't the origin. And so, if it was changed in the New 52 or whatever, I don't know. So every time they did, they've done this, and I remember it, and I've read it, they don't change it very much. Maybe they update, tweak things a little here and there. They add a couple more performers to Hilly Circus. They have something to go on longer. But in the end, it's always Dixon Acrobat. His parents are acrobats. The mob is shaking down Haley Circus. It's run by Boss Zuko. They cut the ropes on the Graysons. You know, they, they sabotage the Graysons, trapeze ropes to fall to their death as a way to, to get Haley to pay up. And um, Batman is there. He witnesses it. He takes Dick in and Dick eventually becomes Robin. And there's what I love about that origin. I mean, I don't want to get into the whole child endangerment debate that people love to do whenever they trot out the idea of Robin. But it's a time that you, you can tell the story just like so many great hero origin stories. You can tell the story in any era, mm-hmm. you know, um, traveling circuses are still around. You could have it. I mean, as long as there's Ringling Brothers, there's going to be 
something that people can hold on to in terms of context. So that's Dick. Jason, I really have not read Jason Todd's pre-crisis origin story. I read bits and pieces of it, and I read it a long time ago. You can get it digitally pretty much, I mean, at this point. But from what I understand, it was Killer Croc was involved, but he was still a circus performer. So it was very, very derivative of Dick Grayson. Yeah, and I, it was sort of meant to be. Yeah. Um, because that was still a thing like where, I mean, at first he had red hair. He, his costume was a little bit different, but they mm-hmm. they wanted to sort of do that as just a temporary thing as they were segueing him in. So that once he stepped in, once he adopted the costume and the standard look, you didn't have to know the difference. For all intents yeah. and purposes, he was the same old Robin. Jumping back really quickly, I, I think from what I've seen of the various retellings of Dick Grayson's origin, Mm-hmm. I think the only thing that really changes significantly is the costume of the Flying Grayson's uh, like performance suit. It seems like that. Like I think the new Fifty Two version actually redesigned them to look more like classic Nightwing look. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think I remember seeing that here or there. I'm my reading of Robin and Nightwing related books has been very sporadic since the early two thousands. Right, which is um, fine. I don't hold that against yeah. you. <laughs> but yeah. I liked the concept of Jason Todd's post-crisis origin. This kid from the streets that Batman takes in in some sort of odd, like, big brother program. Where, like, he feels like he's saving Jason, in a sense, Mm -hmm. from, from something. The execution, on the other hand, was not very good. Uh, This Max Allen Collins stories are not very good in terms of the Jason Todd origin, but the whole thing of him being the rough kid from the streets that Batman's taking in so he could essentially save this kid, I think works really well. I just wish the stories had been better. And for a while, that origin was actually my favorite of all of them. Mm -hmm. I actually thought that that origin was the most timeless and that origin was the most accessible to kind of any audience. Yeah, And I think what... What ultimately made me kind of turn away from it was thinking that, you know, all of the talk in the new DC Cinematic Universe that Jason Todd might have been the Robin that we've seen that he, and he might be dead. And I was like, well, it makes sense that somebody like Zack Snyder would pick Jason Todd because he does have that background that he would just he would be so street level that he was just a punk kid that Batman adopted and ultimately failed. And I think that's why I, I've started not to like that origin anymore because it points to the direction of that character. Something that we definitely talked about back on episode 13, and I think you actually mentioned it this way, was that the thing about Dick growing up in the circus was that it gave him a particular skill set that made the transition to hero pretty seamless and also kind of believable in terms of what is actually believable in this world. You know, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't have to suspend your disbelief that much if you grant that this is a kid who grew up on high wires and aerial acrobatics like this. Yeah. And it makes him a man of action, which is something that I love and something that I miss about the Golden Age heroes. And, and I've, I've made the same kind of like statement in this generality about DC's heroes kind of ad nauseum is that the DC heroes would be naturally heroic and naturally superior people. They would be the best of their fields even if they never got superpowers or became crime fighters. And that holds true for Dick. He was a child athlete. He could have been an Olympic pr- 
prodigy if yeah. he was born under other circumstances. So that lends itself to the kind of person who has the ability to be a hero for multiple generations. That's what's so special about him. But you transfer that over to Jason Todd, once you get to the post-crisis, you don't have that same thing. You have a character who starts from a place of disadvantage, who needs to be rescued, who needs to be brought up by Batman. Well, that takes away any agency Jason has for himself. Now his story is about being kind of a redemption story for Batman. Can Batman, you know, especially in post-crisis when they changed it so that Batman kind of fired Dick because yeah, Dick Yeah, and I didn't him. like that yeah, at all. Yeah, I don't. But then it's like, can I save this kid? Can I bring him out of the streets? Can I get, improve on the mistakes that I made from Dick? And then, and then Jason Todd is just a project post-crisis. Yeah. And I think that's why he had to die. I think when you have a character, a sidekick like that, who's just a project, who's just a, a reformation, ultimately that has to fail for, to advance Batman's story. He has to learn that lesson. And so I, I don't think it matters who was calling in when a Death in the Family was calling. I think Jason Todd was always ill-fated. And I've wondered, I've, whenever I've, I've looked at A Lonely Place of Dying especially, I've wondered, had he lived, would they have just taken him, would they have decided that he's going to be taken out, out of the book for a specific, just a significant amount of time due to injury in continuity, but because they wanted a lone Batman because the movie was coming out and they just kind of wanted to bring him back to that very basic level. And do you still get a story like A Lonely Place of Dying where Jason ends up being the one to prove that Batman needs Robin and there's sort of a reformation of his character because of the effects that the injuries have had on him, you know, the, the psychological ones. Do you still introduce Tim and there's a camaraderie between him and Jason and his mission is to get Jason back into the uniform? I mean, like, or do we just not have that at all? And, you know, so just so every once in a while I think about how that would be. Um, yeah, the, I, I never liked the fact that Batman fired Robin, although I give Marv Wolfman a lot of credit because he did something with it. Because there really was very little tension between Nightwing and Batman mm-hmm. before you know, before that Max on Collins story. They had their tension. Dick grew up. He grew out of the role. He quit. And they essentially made up. But they had buried whatever hatchet there was between the two of them. And I believe it happens at Donna Troy's wedding. Or at least they've retconned it to be at Donna Troy's wedding. Yeah. But you got the sense that the two of them were on the same level and that Batman really respected him. And, and, but this was an, this was a different Batman, you know, this wasn't as angry of a Batman. And then when Jason dies and he had fired Dick, there's that scene in new Titans number 55 where they've just come back from space. You know, Danny chase tells Dick that he thinks Jason Todd is dead and then Danny, being the cousin Oliver that he is, He's the worst. makes some snarky remark. You know, he knew this job was dangerous, and Dick just loses it. And then he goes to the Batcave, and he starts yelling at Bruce. Why did you let him become Robin before he's ready? And then Bruce decks him. And it's this pent-up anger that would have never been there pre-crisis. Um, and it's this, and they've had it out on a few occasions between between the t- between did Robin die tonight and then that, but yeah, Jason just 
like you're right, it, it, it seems like he had to die because you're right, he is kind of a project or something that Batman feels he can take on because he's he's acting selfishly. He's trying to fill the void. Mm-hmm. He's trying to make up for something. He Maybe he sees Dick as a failure. He sees regret there and he thinks Jason's kind of the key to that and then that's a failure as well. Tim's different though. Now, granted, Tim's origin was one I experienced more or less as it happened. Yeah, me too. I came in after A Lonely Place of Dying, but just as I started reading the uh, Rites of Passage story, was it Trial by Fire or Rites of Passage? Rites of Passage. Rites of Passage. It was like 618 um, to 621 mm-hmm, in yeah, I, Comics. Yeah, I started with that. A friend of mine loaned me A Lonely Place of Dying, so I read A Lonely Place of Dying, and then so I was caught up. And then if you take that all the way to essentially Robin number, the Robin, first Robin miniseries as an origin story, um, you know, I was there for that roughly year or so that of comics <laughs> I think that's why I hold it so dear because it was right as I started. But Tim was in the book for the better part of a year or two before he put on the costume as opposed to Jason in the post-crisis who really went from one issue to the next and he was Robin. And it seemed so abrupt. And his death was abrupt, obviously. But with Tim, it was gradual. And Tim had three outstanding writers – writing his origin. You start with Marv Wolfman, who places him at Dick Grayson's parents' deaths in year three. Then you have you have him through A Lonely Place of Dying. He writes what is a beautiful epilogue to A Lonely Place of Dying in New Titans number 65, which is a little few months later, where Tim goes to Dick's apartment and Dick teaches him how to be a detective or gives him some basic lessons on observation and things like that. It's a great, and that's on Batman's request. Like, so Batman turned around and said, you know what? You know who's going to be good at training to be Robin? The guy who used to be Robin. Something that he didn't do with Jason. And then you have him here and there in the background in a few Batman books. He shows up in Detective 618. He's in Bride of the Demon as himself, as not as Robin yet. And then he then he's Robin for a while. And, and he, you know, he was, based on strength of character, going into the first miniseries, I, you knew he could hold his own. And there's a student-teacher relationship between Batman and Robin with Tim Drake that with Jason, that wasn't there. Jason was like Big Brothers Big Sisters. Jason was the charity case. Dick was sort of a father and son. Not entirely, but but so the student-teacher thing is something I think that that was really important for the Batman-Robin character dynamic. And I think part of that is because... Tim had parents. Tim had a dad. I know, and I love that about him. You didn't have the fatherly connection. Well, I mean, you sort of had a fatherly connection between Bruce and Tim Drake. But it wasn't as apparent. It wasn't as strong because Tim wasn't an orphan when they met. That was a very distinct relationship. And it's one of the reasons why I kind of figured, like, if if those characters ever grew up and Tim was allowed to like really grow into adulthood, he would be friends with Bruce in a way that none of the other characters were. Yes, and I was listening to the, as of this recording anyway, the most recent Batgirl, the Oracle, and Donovan brings up a point very along those, similar along those lines, pointing out that one of the things that set Tim apart and really made him a great character was that he was a normal as normal a kid as a, of the son of an industrial millionaire can be, but he there was something normal about him in that he had a family, and you know his dad was still alive, and and 
it wasn't the same orphan story and he went to school and it, like and 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 the peter parker comparisons have been there but it was just one of those things that i connected to tim on that level as well and it was really cool because it was something that you know and you like i said you went from marvel from alan grant to chuck dixon that's a great lineup for some telling this guy's story. And Dixon took that character and just ran with it. And he knew exactly where to put him and exactly what to do with him. But you're right. And if there's anything I hate the most about Identity Crisis, <laughs> it's Jack Drake's death. There's things in Identity Crisis that I have issues with. But at the same time, Jack's death was the worst part of it for me. I just It seems so unnecessary. And I didn't feel that way until recently. And it was a lot more recently that I started thinking about Tim and about like mm-hmm. these, what we were talking about in his connection to Bruce and what set Tim apart. And I was like, yeah, that all changed once Bruce adopted him because he was orphaned. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's another. And not only that, if you go back into um, both the Rites of Passage and then the, the follow-up storyline in, in Batman, where he finally becomes Robin at the end, Tim has a thought in his head while his parents are like, well, his mother's dead, his dad's whatever, that maybe all the Robins have to go through this. And the answer that he gets is pretty much a resounding no. That's not what being Robin is. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to it. And I can't remember. It, forgive me. It's been a while since I actually sat down and read the comics. I can't remember if Bruce actually tells him that or he reaches that conclusion or Alfred says it or something. But I know he actually openly questions whether or not in order to be cut, like it's a rite of, pun intended, right it of is a rite of passage, you know, that his parents have to die. And that's what makes Robin who he is. And it's a silly thing, but in the midst of grief and trying to rationalize through what you're going through, it makes a logical sense. And I've always liked that they, for years, they kept that aside. Plus, it gave him more of an interesting story. You know, you had Mm -hmm. Jack, and then you had, I think, Dana was the name of the woman who he ended up marrying. And and you had the, the maid, and and then he had his friends at school, like, and you had Stephanie, and he had Ariana Jastrenko, or however you pronounce it, and. You got so much more out of that character. Jason, the thing that bugs me about the post-crisis Jason, and maybe this is just um, – maybe I'm just – I don't look at the art closely enough. I don't know if they really went out of their way to make his style distinguishable from Dick's until maybe the last few issues of his run as Robin. Where, like, if they had shown, like, right off the bat, yes, he kind of looked enough like Dick in the costume for them to be, you know, indistinguishable except for their age – but what if they showed him to be a brawler and not as graceful? I mean, sometimes I think they did and sometimes I think they didn't. And that's one of the problems with the very immediate post-crisis or the post-Batman 400 Batman books. I love the Mike Barr, Alan Davis stuff. But, but that, was, that was still in that nebulous era where – Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean that's the difference between Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. Superman mm-hmm. and Wonder Woman had a hard start reboot. Yeah. Batman's was gradual. It was like, all right. Yeah, so where does the jerk version of Jason begin? Where does he become the brawler? Like, I think that's relatively late. I think that for a little while they were just using him as a, a clone of Dick Grayson yeah. for a little while. And it would have been interesting to see how they planned that out. Because Tim felt very planned out. Mm-hmm. Tim could jump. Tim could swing because Bruce was training him to do that. 
But Tim clearly did not have the acrobatic ability that Dick did because he didn't grow up in a circus and they made that clear. But they also gave, they gave Tim a different set of skills. Right. They made him intellectual. He was a detective. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I still think Tim, I could imagine growing out of the Robin costume because he, he would see it as something that Batman needed, but eventually not something that Tim needed. Like yeah. eventually, and and I I don't want to like belittle his importance but, as Robin because those were great stories. But, but I can see, as an adult, yeah, Tim could just be like a super sleuth type of character. Yeah, you know? and that's that's why I think Chuck Dixon was going to make him Blue Beetle at one point. You're not the only person who said it. I I've thought that. I know Don said it on that BTO episode. It's it it never seemed like this was permanent for him. You know, if they and if they ever started to age him, they could age him out of the character and see where we would go with it. Um, unfortunately, different writers started taking over and took him in different directions. Yeah, but with Jason, it was. I think if they had planned it out a little bit more, I don't know if they'd make him more sympathetic, but at least there would be a, a feel of a development. It would have been interesting to see an artist draw him with a style of him being more clunky, yeah, or more lumbering, or. Or something and not having that usual Robin sort of grace. Mm -hmm. Because what you get through this is with Dick is you're right. He had that athletic ability and used it in this role as a vigilante. And he was truly an acrobat. And he always was. Which is something that Tim spots as a kid. Because they they have like warehouse footage. I think this is the very first chapter of the second chapter of A Lonely Place of Dying. He recounts... A, the fact that he was the kid in the picture in Batman number 436, which is the first part of year three. And then he talks about how he was there that night and he saw Dick's parents die and he was traumatized by it because he was a little, little, little kid. And then one day he's watching the news and there's like security camera footage of Batman and Robin taking on the penguin and Robin does a quadruple flip. And Tim remembers seeing Dick Grayson do that and remembering that the ringmaster had said, like, only three people know how to do this or whatever, and adding it up Mm -hmm. and realizing that's Dick Grayson in the Robin costume because of Dick Grayson's relationship with Bruce Wayne. I think the reason why Dick Grayson and Tim Drake are successful Robins, as we've said, why they're able to thrive, they had those skill sets. Yeah. They started from those places of advantage and natural heroism, whether it is a physical attribute that makes him heroic or a mental attribute that makes him heroic. But post-crisis Jason, he starts off as a street urchin. He's a thief. He starts off at odds with Batman, and it's like, yeah, that that was never going to go well. Uh, The last thing that I just want to get back to what you were saying about Tim, and I think part of the reason why Tim wasn't able to kind of grow and evolve was the next Robin we introduced and the next sort of writer takeover at when Grant Morrison took over. Now, I like Damian Wayne when Grant Morrison was writing him, and only then. And in general, I liked Grant's run on the Batman comics. But mm. my big picture problem with that is Grant Morrison doesn't leave his properties in a good position for a handoff to a new writer. Like no, I think when he doesn't. leaves, 
he does either so much world building or so much world destroying or so much world changing that it becomes almost unrecognizable. Like I loved his new X-Men run in the early 2000s, but once he left new X-Men, like Marvel was like, okay, we've got to do this decimation thing just to kill off every mutant. Otherwise, like we're stuck. Like they had to retcon everything he did in Mm X-Men. And I think, like, the introduction of Damien and the Batman Incorporated and all these things, like, New 52 couldn't come soon enough because, like, DC was like, all right, we got to put a halt on some of this stuff. It, like, the train is out of control. So, I mean, I, I enjoy the stories, but it's sort of like you, you almost need him to be in his own little wacky universe, sort of like Bob Haney stories are kind of their own mm-hmm. continuity. I think Graham Morrison needs that distinction, too. I think you're right. I think there's. I don't want to get into this whole my feelings on Grant Morrison, but I, I think you're right that when they operate within their own little universe, the stories really work well. But yeah, you're totally right that he isn't because I give Jeff Johns a lot of crap because I enjoyed his Titans run, and I think it's exactly what the Teen Titans needed because the title prior to that was floundering. Mm-hmm. But Jeff Johns sometimes writes his own personal fan fiction. Sure. And that was one of my biggest criticisms about his Titans run. But to his credit, I think the next writer who came along for a lengthy run was, I want to say, Sean McKeever. And that run was hit or miss. But McKeever had something to work with and didn't have to, and only had to undo certain things because of what Infinite Crisis had wrought and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. But at least there was something intact, and you could see a smooth, relatively smooth transition from writer to writer. And, you know, there was, for what his run was, there was editorial interference, whatever. It, you're right about the whole Grant, about Grant Morrison in that regard, where, like, what do I do with this if you're taking over from Grant <laughs> Morrison on the title? Like, I don't know what to do with this because it's very dense, and it's a lot of it is just this is not going to work very well. And I wonder if that's what happened with Damien and. And Batman, it's again, it's nothing I'm really that familiar with. I've only read a few things here and there of that because by then I was not reading Batman anyway. All right, listeners, believe it or not, we are just getting started on this giant size finale episode, but we're going to take a short promo break. We'll be back in a minute to talk about The Glimpse. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com.
Secret Origins number 50 has an August 1990 cover date. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the actual on-sale date was June 19th that year. The issue has a cover price of $3.95, still $0.04 cheaper than a standard Marvel comic today, (laughs) and a whole lot denser as Secret Origins 50 was 96 pages long, easily the longest issue of the series. The cover by Ty Templeton shows the stars of the issue taking down the Secret Origins office. Batman, Robin, Barry Allen, Jake Garrick, Black Canary, and Dolphin load unfinished sketches, logos, and banners onto the back of a wagon pulled by Johnny Thunder and his horse. Tom, what do you think of this cover? Dolphin has a nice butt. <laughs> She's hot. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, Actually, it's kind of nice to see Dolphin in the cutoffs because the Dolphin story in here, she's got that awful looking like SeaWorld costume. <laughs> I hate that costume. Um, I think this is cute. And Ty Templeton is like one of the few artists who can pull this cover off. I got this comic from a 50 cent bin at the Baltimore Comic Con a few years ago. And uh, I like how it's made to look like basically a pasteboard because the top, like the Secret Origins logo is cut out with its thumb tacked up there. Everything's scotch taped there. And you're they're packing up. Um, you have the old logo, which I love that the old logo is there. It's on a yeah, it's on that horse-driven cart. The DC bullet's there. There's somebody's artist's table with inks and a light and a pencil sharpener with some panels, which look like uh, Booster Gold is on one of them. Mm-hmm. Does look like that. Yeah, and, but I love all of the. I just love the UPC symbol and the the page that's under the thing and. Jay Garrick's handing Barry Allen a 75 cents price box from issue 16, and it's in the old school, the older style of the price. I, I'm one of those odd comic fans, even since I was a little kid, who always noticed when the when the box in the upper left hand or the upper right hand quarter changed. Mm-hmm. Marvel for years, like I remember going flipping through back issue bins, and like I would see the italicized Marvel and before that Marvel 25th anniversary and then Marvel just but regular bold text and then the Marvel comics group. And like, I knew how far back I was going and with DC, it was, I was just the way the, the, the typeface was uh, not on the logo because DC's logo never really changed throughout that time, but on the, on the price and the issue number and then the comics code authority, they got all these comics code authority, but <laughs> it's just, it's a really cute cover. It's, it's just, it's fun. And, and this series is fun as a whole. So I think it reflects the how, how fun that series is. I, I, I can't dispute anything. I love this cover. Uh, it's easily one of my favorites of the entire series. And if I, if I had never done this podcast, I would probably just think it's a cute, kind of fun cover that yeah. seems fitting for the final issue. But having lived with this series for almost two years just going through everything and yeah just looking at this like this this cover is hitting me in a really weird profound way um Mm -hmm. i I absolutely love it it's great um inside the cover we have something different we have a table of contents 
It is designed to look sort of like a top secret file. Uh, up at the top right corner, we have subject, secret origins 50, division, need to know, and classification. It is stamped in red, eyes only. We then get a brief descriptions of the six stories in this issue along with their page numbers. You know, like you'd find in yeah. a table of contents, uh, as well as an image of each starring character. And at the bottom, we get a line saying editorial approval for release, and it is signed Michael Yuri. Any thoughts on this table of contents? I think it's pretty cool. You don't see many, in a regular issue of a comic, you don't see many things like this. It's typed up, it's meant to look like a dossier or something very similar. It looks like it's been typed using. It's supposed to look like it was typed through the typewriter. It's probably using, you know, like <laughs> the courier new in, in, in Microsoft Word parlance. So that's probably not what they were using because it was 1990. <laughs> it's laid out really well. Yeah, it's it's again, it's I actually like it because it's so there's so many um, stories in here. One, and this is I used to advise high school yearbooks. So I catch these things sometimes there is a mistake the Johnny Thunder page number is not underlined like the rest yep. of them. Yep. I know I'm being in a retentive, but no, you good. notice these things differently. It's but no, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that like because especially here's the thing: this is a three dollar and ninety five cent comic book in an era where I think all the books except the Superman titles were all a dollar. I think the Superman titer, titles at that point, and, and Mike Bailey can correct me. Still had the still only seventy five cents thing above the the price, mm-hmm. but everything was about a dollar at this time. So nowadays, three ninety five on a comic is commonplace, or three ninety nine. But you know, as you said, three ninety five on a comic book on a regular issue, especially the final issue of a series that probably by this time wasn't selling as well as say a Batman or a Superman. It's a risk. This is a risk you're taking with your money. So if you're on the stand or you're in the, you're at the comic shop, you flip this open and you've got this table of contents. And while you're standing there at the store trying to figure out, do I really want to buy this monster? It's all laid out for you. It's a really good tactic to get people to, uh, to consider it. If, if they are flipping through it a little bit. Yeah. And I like the page numbers because flipping through the story like once you actually read it the transitions from some of the stories to the next aren't always great Mm -hmm. um some of the stories end on kind of crowded final pages with very small the end boxes at the bottom and then yes a new story and it's kind of i wish the transitions were a little bit bigger i mean Mm -hmm. but the page numbers unlike annual number three because this was my all of us who are comics podcasters will gripe at one point or another about the lack of page numbers in a comic book. <laughs> in the New Titan, in the Teen Titans Annual, we did in Secret Origins Annual Three. Some of the stuff had page numbers, and some of it didn't. And I was like, and then at the end, there's this credit box where they had credited the various artists right. by page number. Right. Here, the page numbers are um, they're typed. Yeah. At yeah. the bottom, so and they're all consistent throughout. So I appreciate it. Right. Me too. It was clearly laid out separately from the art. Yeah, 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 like that. All right, then getting into the first story of this issue. This is a very different type of story. It is a prose story with some spot illustrations on each page. So, Tom, would you kindly tell us the story of the glimpse? Mm-hmm. 
the glimpse, Dennis O'Neill writer, George Perez artist, Adrian Roy colorist, Michael Urie editor. Years later, after he'd left his foster father's house and assumed identities he himself had chosen, when the events he had seen in his one glimpse into the future had become memories, he realized how odd his first years must have been. But at the time when he was a small boy, he thought it perfectly natural to live in a trailer, never stay in one place for more than two weeks, be surrounded by exotic animals and bizarre humans who had at least two names, and go to work in a huge tent. He was a circus kid. Wasn't everyone? You gotta have faith his father would say when asked how he could dare to perform acrobatics 40 feet above a sawdust floor in front of hundreds of thrill-hungry spectators, much less allow his small son to perform with it. You got faith, you don't fall, you don't get hurt. That's the important thing I teach Dickie. Not the routines, the trapeze, that stuff anyone can learn. But the faith is what keeps you safe. Young Dick Grayson believed what his father said, would have believed anything Johnny Grayson told him until that Halloween a week after his 10th birthday. It began like any morning when they weren't on the road. The circus had encamped in a field a few miles outside Gotham City the night before and would remain there. Dick knew until mid-November when they would leave for St. Louis. As always, his mother and father were sleeping late. After they tucked him in, they usually gathered with the other circus folk for late supper gossip complaints quarrels. They seldom got to bed before two, seldom arose before eleven. This day would be no exception. So Dick got up, crept out of the wagon, and began his ritual exploration of the lot, which never varied, and yet somehow was never the same. His first visit was to Jumbelina, billed as the world's fattest lady, her real name was Marianne Carson, where he got his ration of milk and those incredibly sweet pastries that Jumbelina, Marianne, managed to bake on a Coleman stove. Then he ran over to the menagerie to look at the giraffe they'd gotten from a zoo in Hub City. Harry Winkler, known as the Magnificent Marco when he did his animal act, was smoking a cigar and talking to Billy Blessington, the head roustabout. Think we'll meet the human bat while we're here? Harry asked. That Batman was in a papers, you mean? Billy replied. You believe that? Hell, Billy, I'm circus. I'll believe anything. Yeah, well, if he does show up, old man Halley ought to hire him. We could use a new attraction. A Batman? Dick tried to imagine what such a person would be. He'd seen bats, usually at dusk on long, empty country roads, and they frightened him. Marie, the fortune teller, said they were the souls of devils let out at night to suck the blood of innocent children. But he dared Jimmy Kennedy, the mystic Jimmy magician extraordinaire, laugh at Marie and say that bats were only flying animals. Only? And were actually quite useful as airborne pest controllers. Which was this Batman, then? A devil or a friend? What did he look like? Was he as big as a man or as small as a bat? He would have to have wings, of course, but did he fly or drag them along with him? Engrossed in speculation, Dick sank down on the dead grass with his back to the tire of one of the trailers. He pulled his jacket tight around him. The sky overhead was a bright blue, flecked with clouds that looked as hard and white as china plates, but there was a smudge of gray on the horizon and the breeze was laced with cold. Dick allowed himself a small shiver and then returned to his questions. 
Did the Batman live in a house? Did he have neighbors? And what did he eat? Bugs? Yuck. Don't pay protection money, the voice was Mr. Haley's. It was coming from inside the trailer and it was high and wavery. You better get it, Haley. This voice was shrill, like the noise a power saw makes, cutting through wood. You got till tonight, a third voice. This one muted and rough, the sound of a rope pulled through a steel hoop. Look, Zuko, you ain't scaring me. Mr. Haley again, more wavery than before. A sound like a heavy sack falling and a grunt and a plea. Please don't. Tonight, rope voice said. Then there's an accident. Somebody gets hurt. Dick heard footsteps moving toward the door of the trailer and stepping onto the grass. He craned his head around the tire, trying to see the speakers, but just as someone was moving into view, he saw green corduroy trousers and the jet-black cowboy boots with silver trim. He was swept into a pair of fleshy arms and pressed against a silken bodice that smelled faintly of sour milk. "'Bad for you to see this,' Marie said. "'Very bad for a little boy.' The fortune teller trundled Dick across the lot to her tent. Very bad for all of us. I look in the cards. Very bad. What's bad, Marie? What's going on? Little boy, don't ask questions. Don't want to know. She patted him on the cheek. Her eyes were glistening. Why are you crying, Marie? The cards, the hanging man. Suddenly, she stopped, dug a plump knuckle into her left eye. Never mind, little Dicky. It's only old lady's nonsense. Go, go see Mama and Papa. Marie, can you really see the future? Sometimes. It opens like a curtain. I get a glimpse. Everyone can, but most do not recognize or do not want to see it. Enough questions. Now go to Mama and Papa. Outside Marie's tent, he almost ran into Mr. Haley. Mr. Haley had a bruise on his cheek. There was a thin line of dried blood at the corner of his mouth, and his hair was wildly mussed. He stalked past Dick without seeing him. In the Grayson trailer, his mother, wearing a bathrobe, was frying eggs in the tiny stove, and his father in his underwear sat at the table, his long, powerful hands wrapped around a cup of coffee. "'Hey, Dickie, you been checking on the world?' Father smiled and licked and winked. "'The old world's still spinning, is she?' "'Dad, is there really a Batman?' Johnny Grayson sighed. "'Like I'm always saying, son, if you believe a thing hard enough, it's true. You believe in a Batman?' "'I don't know.' If he did exist, would he be good or bad? I kind of like to think good. Your father would like to think everything's good, his mother said from the stove and laughed. She put a plate full of eggs in front of Johnny and kissed him on the cheek. I'll tell you something I don't believe in. I'm certain about. It's our young world checker here is going to hit that arithmetic book, Johnny said. Okay, Dad, Dick said knowing from long, painful experience that argument was worse than useless. But can I ask one more question? One more, his mother said. What's protection money? His mother and father exchanged a hard, adult glance, and his father said, nothing a young fella has to worry about. At dusk, Johnny Grayson returned from his check of the trapezes the Graysons would perform on later and joined Dick and his mother at the table. Each ate an apple, the only food Johnny would allow before a show. Full stomach makes an empty head, he liked to say, and up there, thumb jerked toward the sky, person's got to have its wits about him. They changed into their spangled costumes, threw raincoats over them, and walked to the big top in time to join the other performers in the grand entry parade that began every show. 
The night was cold, the air damp, and the distance Dick could hear thunder. As they were entering the rear of the tent, an entrance reserved for circus folk, a bulky man brushed past them. Dick had never seen him before, but he did recognize the man's green corduroy trousers and jet black cowboy boots with silver trim. Dick started to speak to his father and stopped when he realized he had really had nothing to say. They took their places in the parade and a few seconds later were marching around the sawdust floor of the tent, smiling and waving to the hundreds of shadowy faces in the stands. Dick loved this part of circus life. The marching music, the applause, the smell of fresh sawdust, the tingle of anticipation. A woman with a small boy in the front of the grandstand waved to him. All three Graysons trotted to her. This is Tim's first time at the circus, she said, patting the boy's thin shoulder. We were wondering if you'd let us take your photo with him. Of course, his mother replied, smiling. We'd be delighted. The photo was snapped and the Graysons returned to the darkness of the backstage area and did the stretching exercise Johnny Grayson insisted precede every performance. On the other side of the canvas wall, the crowd was laughing and applauding the clown's fireman routine. They heard the ringmaster's round baritone, amplified and distorted by the loudspeakers, booming through the tent. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, for your entertainment and amusement doing their death-defying act without the benefit of a net. Johnny kissed his wife and ruffled his son's hair. The amazing, the stupendous, the incredible Flying Graysons! Out into the arena. Dick felt the surge of excitement that he knew his parents were sharing as they cartwheeled to the center ring, bowed, acknowledging the applause, and started climbing the knotted rope. At the top of the tiny platform, they waved to the murmuring gray mass of the audience 40 feet below. Johnny loosened the trapeze and swung it over the emptiness, caught it on the backswing, and arced outward. Rain began to smack the canvas top above Dick's head. His father and mother were floating through the air. In a moment, it would be his turn. Below, the ringmaster was saying, Ladies and gentlemen, quiet please, as young Dick Grayson attempts the incredible, impossible, quadruple flip of doom. Dick breathed deeply and slowly, relaxing himself as Johnny had taught him, grabbed the bar, pushed off the platform, letting momentum carry him. But was something wrong? The trapeze didn't feel right and allowed his mind to empty, and there were the few dizzy, exhilarating instants. Spin, 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 spin. Feet thudding onto the platform, roar of applause, mother's warm fingers touching his cheek, ringmaster's boom. Let's hear it, ladies and gentlemen, dauntless Dick Grayson, the boy wonder of the circus. The rain was a loud, incessant tattoo now, and the wind bellied the canvas top inward. Final fantastic feat as Mary and John Grayson prove their son is plenty to learn as they attempt two triple flips, the ringmaster was saying. The rigging creaked as his mother left the platform. Had it ever done that before? Mother and father swung close together above the center ring, their bodies straightening. The left side of the mother's trapeze dipped. She hung for a moment, confused, her timing ruined. Father passed her, reached what should have been the apex of his swing, and continued. Dick saw the ends of two ropes drop past his father and realized that nothing was holding the trapeze. His father was only a yard away when he started to tumble, his lips moving, saying something Dick couldn't hear through the shrieks of the audience and the pounding of the storm. 
Dick watched him fall and suddenly realized his mother was falling too, and before he could scream, they were sprawled on the sawdust. If you believe a thing hard enough, it's true. What if he believed the fall hadn't happened? He tried. He squeezed his eyes shut and tried. He dropped to the ground, pulled away from the hands that tried to restrain him, and stumbled to where his parents lay. He felt everything his father had taught him about having faith crumble within him. They were lying in a splash of bright light, and they did not move, and blood was trickling from beneath their faces. They were dead. A shadow fell over them. Dick turned. Something was swooping down toward him, something that seemed to have scalloped wings. A man. A bat. The future opened up then, like the parting of a curtain, just as Marie said it could, and he had his glimpse. Years at this Batman's side. Danger. Vengeance. Constant challenge. A thousand dark nights. And a vast melancholy. The Batman stood over Dick, his dark bulk filling the world. I understand, the Batman said. Dick knew he did. Through these fields of destruction Baptisms of fire I've witnessed your suffering As the battle reached high And What did you think about this story? I've read it a few times now. If you go all the way back to the last episode of Taking Flight, I covered this. It is the origin of Robin and only of Robin. And that's important because we, we, we briefly talked about how this is the third time we're covering Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we've covered him in the context of the Teen Titans and we've covered him in the context of Nightwing, pre-crisis Nightwing. And while Robin has been in there, we have not just left the spotlight on just Robin in this way of 
or ra- really Robin just to Grayson because it's the story of the death of the flying Graysons. So when you have a story that's been told over and over and over again, you have to find a new angle. And sometimes it's, you know, instead of having him in, in the case of something like a, a secret origin story where it would be him flashing back maybe on something previous like he did in the Nightwing annual, uh, Nightwing origin, or being tortured by the Lovecraftian <laughs> computer virus thingy in the annual there. This is just uh, the story of this tragedy that befalls a child. And it ends with Batman taking him under his wing. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where it stays pretty fresh, that that it finds that one, the heart of that story. And it's about his family and it's about his parents. It's very, very sad, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's what I think is its biggest strength. Yeah, and some stories in this series did this, and but most did not. I definitely think Denny O'Neill was leaning into the secret part of the secret origin. Mm-hmm. Because we know the story. This story is really about what happens right before Robin. Like this yeah. like basically they, this ends on the moment where like Dick Grayson and Batman are face to face and we get this sort of flash forward of what their partnership will be. But it's really like the five minutes leading up to that. I mean, not literally. Mm-hmm. It's stretched out because we see kind of like the whole day leading up to like what's going on with their event. But yeah, the, that murder, this is this is the event that set up what we could get of Robin's first story. You know, I think most secret origin stories would say we start with the death of the parents and then we show him being adopted and we show him getting the costume and he goes out and fights crime. That's what the Nightwing origin basically was. Yeah. This one is sort of starting from how did that story, how does the story of Robin begin? It begins with his parents. Well, that's what Denny O'Neill ends this story with. So it's really just, you know, a couple of pages of that moment. What, like, the last quote-unquote normal day of Dick Grayson's life. Yeah. Does that belong in Secret Origins, though? Um. Do we get anything new from this story, really? I don't know. I, that's the thing I wonder. Like, we do and we 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 don't. We We get... We get a little bit more of character building for Dick at a time when he's been through a lot already and he's just about to embark on the Titans hunt. This is the first time that Denny O'Neill has written him in years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the first Denny O'Neill will ever really see of him for another few years. Mm-hmm. Uh it also coincides with the kidnapping of Jack and Janet Drake in Haiti in Detective 618. I think that comes out right around this time or slightly after it. So I think it was the same month. I think it was yeah, August. Or yeah, so August ramp- cover date, yeah. Yeah, so we're ramping up for a new Robin at this point. And, and we do have Tim name-dropped in this story. Yes. Not as Tim Drake. I think it, it just named like the boy Timmy or the Tim. Yeah. Um, it solidifies because Batman Year Three showed the death of the Graysons, and it showed a lot of what's in here. So this is recapping a lot of it, but it didn't go that far back. It showed a lot of the origin of Robin, and then the uh, the Zol Zuko thing and all that. But there are things about it that I like. I, it doesn't take up too much space in here. I sometimes wonder if it was written for this or if it was written for something else. 
I have that exact same thought. Here. I have the exact same thought. It would not surprise me in the least to find out that this was planned for a Batman annual or a Detective Comics annual or some other special. Yeah. Um, like we were saying, like it feels like a companion piece to Year Three and a Lonely Place of Dying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like it would have been in in one of those trades or something like that. It. You know, they never traded Year Three. In 25 years, I don't think year three's ever been in a trade. Hmm. I don't know if they were planning on it and they just decided to, to 86 it or what, but this would have been a good companion piece in a trade. And that's me talking off the top of my head. I don't know if there was any plans to ever trade year three the way they did with The Lonely Places Dying. And now year three's not in continuity anymore. Zero Hour renders it out of continuity, I believe. Well, yeah. Zero Hour renders a lot of things out of continuity, but I believe by the time you hit Zero Hour and Prodigal, portions of this are are out of continuity. Not portions of this, portion of Year 3. And Perez did the covers for Year 3, so it's very likely that Maybe he did some of this around that. You know, maybe, maybe that that's that's around the same time, because he wasn't doing a lot of penciling chores with DC at this point. He did some layouts and stuff for the for Wonder Woman and War of the Gods and stuff, mm-hmm. but that would be done by the end of '91. And, and he was doing plotting on the Titans, but that's about it, I think. Right, and this was the last time he drew Dick Grayson for a long time for mm-hmm. for a character that he lived with for a decade. Yeah, he helped redefine this character. And this is this was the last one. Like by this point he was only doing like plotting detail. I think his run on Titans was done by the time mm-hmm. that this one came out, and here he has the story. It's not like a fully illustrated comic. We just get a couple of I- images. And I did notice that the the things that George Perez chooses to draw, which I understand why. He's drawing the action beats. He's drawing the Graysons in the air. He's drawing them falling. He's drawing the shadow of the bat falling over the, the panicky crowd. He's drawing the moment of Dick looking up and seeing Batman and their eyes meeting and everything. He's doing all of this. The, the actual moments that he chooses to render into illustrations all happen in like the last half a page. Yeah, I know. It's like the that last like, 50 wor- or 100 words. Yeah, they're, they're all... I, you can assume that a lot of the people reading this knew Dick Grayson's origin story yeah, going yeah, yeah. in. So we're just going to look at really gorgeous Perez artwork. But you're <laughs> right. Like the majority of the pictures don't line up with the text of the page. So that's one particular design is, aspect that is a little flawed. The other one, and this is me nitpicking again, on page three, the columns need to be um, – the picture on the top and the column of text – need to be switched Mm -hmm. and the picture in the bottom and the column of text need to be switched as well because it doesn't flow yeah you're it doesn't flow because on on glance i'm reading a sweet extraordinary like wait that's oh it's all the way up on the upper right yeah your eyes going from bottom right to upper left and there's a picture in the way so that's that's just some bad layout right the way it's for it forces you to read from the upper right corner down to the lower left and that's not the way the columns work yeah yeah i I noticed that too yep yeah and you excuse the misplacement of some of the stuff because the art's just gorgeous Perez is detailed, but this isn't one of those – you had a real criticism. I think it was you had a real criticism of the cover of the annual, mm-hmm. which you didn't like. There is one particular cover from A Lonely Place of Dying, which is New Titans number 60, I believe. It's insanely busy. 
it's Perez and it's gorgeous, but it's like at one point it's Dick with the Halley Circus logo there, and then there's a portrait of the Titans, and there's all the logos there in that page. It's so much on one cover, and it's my least favorite cover of the whole storyline because you know the other four are Batman through the lens of Tim's camera. Dick holding the Robin costume with the faces of Batman and Two-Face behind him, like, contemplatively. You know, he's contemplating getting dressed again. One of them smashing through a window with the glass shattering behind them and all that. And even that is a little busy. And then the, then the famous one of the last part with, with Robin, with the bat signal behind mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. With if you had the one version that says DC Comics are just for kids below <laughs> Which is which is almost as intrusive as Uncanny X Men number one thirty seven. This comic book could win you a bike or whatever it is, like <laughs> battered right over the Phoenix must die thing. <laughs> God, I hated that for years. I don't own that issue, but it's, every time I saw it, I'd be like, "Oh, that's the worst." Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but those are and and the the year three covers are complicated too. But but th- this does not have that busyness. The Flying Grayson's poster is a great one. It's very classic looking. The perspective in each is a great one. And, and he does not overdo it with the detailer. He doesn't try to cram too much into one shot. That doesn't belong on the shot from page to page. And uh, the last page, which is Batman with Robin coming out from under his cowl, becoming Nightwing at the end. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's such a great picture of Batman, Robin, Nightwing. I love this story. I'm naturally inclined to because I like the story of Batman and Robin. And Danny O'Neill obviously knew these characters. It's a great story. This is actually one where I would like to see more of this. This story, just this little glimpse, I was like, you know, like, I don't watch Gotham. I have no real interest in that. I have Neither do I. less than zero interest in a story about Superman's grandfather living on Krypton. But when I actually heard that they were talking about like a CW type of show about a young Dick Grayson as a circus brat before his parents die, I was like, you know, I don't know if I would watch that, but if I could just get like a one-hour mini-movie of that based on this story, just kind of yeah. extrapolating that and kind of like seeing these circus folk talking about the Bat of Gotham and just this moment of like, you know... Dick, like, eavesdropping on on Mr. Haley and seeing, like, this guy with his corduroy suit and everything, which I think that that same, the color scheme that it describes with with Zuko's suit, I think is consistent with the uh, Batman Year 3 story. Yeah. I think that issue. That's Uh, why I wonder if this was meant to be part of a trade somewhere. It wouldn't surprise me. And that's, yeah, that's my thing. Like, does this belong in... Secret Origins, I don't know that it does, but I'm not going to object because I like this story. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you where Chuck Dixon did Robin Year One, and it's it's masterful. And if you pair it up with the Year One annual from 1995, that's the first one post-Zero Hour, Yeah, that works because that tells the origin story again. That retcons this. Mm-hmm. So that that tells the murder of the Graysons and blah blah blah, but the and and the thing is is what what Denny does here, what Denny O'Neill does here is he gives John and Mary Grayson just a little more dimension than you're used to getting, even back way back from like Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Um, but granted, Bill Finger and Bob Kane did not have the page count that Denny O'Neill that, that they would work with later on, and you know, so you had you had to tell that story economically. 
But if you were doing like a Dick Grayson year one, you could spend the first issue or so just with the Graysons Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and don't make their existence just to die. Right. You know, you could do the same thing with Thomas and Martha Wayne. Lead up. I mean, it's gonna. The murder's gonna happen, but don't. It doesn't happen to have to happen in the first issue. Like, give it a little time to develop the character, and then you feel a little more for the characters when they die. And you actually do feel for him. I mean, you obviously feel for him bad for him because his parents are dead. But there's some real emotion, especially when he's describing the deaths. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not gruesome in in any way. I mean, it's a gruesome death, but it's not described in a gory, gruesome way, it's heart-wrenching. And yeah. you felt a little bit for it because of the fact that Denny O'Neill gave the Graysons a little bit more screen time than I think other writers would have. Just those little human moments, like when Dick asks them what protection money is or something, and they, they yeah. just have this look, and they're like, you're too young to know about that or something. He says, yeah, he says something like they exchange a very adult glance with one yeah. another. And it's, it's great because it's totally like, because right. he's, what, 10? So that's totally what you would expect the thought process of a 10-year-old to be. Like, oh, this is mom and dad stuff. This is, there's something that I'm not going to fully understand. And his father's whole thing about just eating an apple before the thing so he's not too full because he wants his mind sharp when he's performing. He's like, I don't know if Denny O'Neill researched that, if it's based on anything, or if he just made it up, but I love that detail. I totally buy that. Yeah. And again, something that we talked about back when we covered the story on episode 13, Mm -hmm. one of the big differences between. Dick and Bruce, and the way you see how they evolved as different characters, was Dick had a family. Dick was always surrounded by people. Beyond just his parents, he grew up with all of these circus, all of these friends, the the bearded lady, all of the like the jugglers, the clowns, all these people that were his supporting cast, his community that he grew up with. And then he loses that, but he has Bruce and he has Alfred, and then he has his friends. He has Garth and he has, you know, Wally and Donna. Those people. Like, he he was always a very sociable, amiable person. People, yeah. you liked being around Dick Grayson. That's kind of like the sense that I've always gotten that he's kind of he's always the center because there's something he's just got that spark about him that you want to be with him. You want to see what he's doing. That's something that you would want to explore in a story. So. I do think Denny O'Neill was right to kind of say that, you know what, there is a story for this kid that exists before his parents fall to their deaths. Yeah. And we, I'm going to, I found myself just repeating the, the title of the story in, in almost what seems like kind of a cheesy pun, but uh, yeah. we don't get the full story, we just get a glimpse of it. And it's profound. I like it. Yeah, so. I totally agree. Uh, I think we both say if you like this story, you got to read both Batman Year 3 and A Lonely Place of Dying. Yes. Certainly, we, I mean, we recommend tons of Robin stories throughout this uh, uh, podcast. Yeah. But. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you really want to go deep, start with Batman 408. Did Robin die tonight? I mean, you can always read Year 1 and Year 2 because they're both excellent stories, and I think Year 2 is underrated, but that's a totally different conversation. Um, did Robin die tonight? Is the name is the title of Batman Four Eight. That's the one where he fires Robin, mm-hmm. Dick Grayson. Move your way through some of that Jason Todd stuff. I would do the three, three issue origin. I'd maybe do a little of the Mike Barr stuff just because it's fun to read. Batman Four Sixteen, which is Jim Starlin. That's Nightwing and Robin meeting for the quote first time post crisis. Mm-hmm. 
Batman. All of, all of those stories, by the way, have been collected in the trade paperback yes. Batman Second Chances. And then Batman 424 and 5, which is this whole storyline about Jason Todd essentially maybe murdering a drug, letting a drug dealer fall to his death. Then a death in the family comes right after that. Then you go into year three, A Lonely Place of Dying. There's a couple of Titans issues you can read along with those two. I think it's like 56, 57, 58 or so. Just bits and pieces of those, though. 55 as well. And then you go into New Titans 65, and then Detective 618 through 621, and Batman 455, 457 give you the rest of Tim's origin. And you really could take that through. If you want to be a masochist and read all the Titans, you can. But the Titans stuff, as well as some of the Batman stuff through Nightfall, and you could end with Prodigal. And you've got a really you got several years worth of comics, but and probably not intended to be this way, but it really reads like a full story. Prodigal feels like the ending of what started all the way back in that Max Allen Collins Batman issue. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, and a lot it's a of great- a lot of those Tim Drake stories, especially like the the Rite of Passage mini, like that has also been collected. They've started reprinting yeah. the Robin trade paperbacks. I. Th- mm-hmm. I think the first three are out. Maybe only the first two are out. Um, I think so. But it's starting with Tim's early appearances and his training leading up to the first Robin miniseries and, and going forward in that. Tons of stuff. He's a great character. I understand why you did a podcast about him. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, thank you for the third and final time for being my no guest problem. on the Secret Origins podcast. Where else can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? You can find me over the Two True Freaks Network, where I am in two places. Uh, the first is In Country. That is an issue-by-issue look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Um, and I've done – I'm on issue – I'm on episode 75, so I'm about issue 60 – in the mid-60s, right before one of the second Punisher storylines. Um, and uh, that's going to be about 100 episodes, so there's plenty to get there. And then my other podcast – is called Pop Culture Affidavit. It is literally everything random in the world of popular culture. I will do everything from music to movies to comics to TV, uh, whatever I feel like talking about. And uh, as of recording this, I'm in the middle of my Baltimore Comic Con 2016 coverage. Uh, and like I said, you can check those out. And there is a blog for Pop Culture Affidavit, which is popcultureaffidavit.com. And I post essays and stuff there in addition to like the show notes for my uh, podcasts. Thank you very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners. One down, five more to go. We're going to take another break, but we will be back in a minute with the flash of two worlds. Don't go away. It's a beautiful evening. The moon is just rising. A full moon. Will soon be as bright as day. An ancient evil erupts from the grounds of Supermates Estates. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. Step this way to gaze upon an exhibit absolutely unparalleled in the realms of showmanship. I have a collection of the world's most astounding horrors. Spine-chilling discussion of classic horror films featuring an all-star cast. Boris Karloff. If I had Frankenstein's records to guide me, I could give you a perfect body. Lon Chaney. Last night I suffered the tortures of the damned. I killed a man. 
John Carradine. I will come for you before the dawn. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. There is nothing, do you hear me? Nothing more important to me than the success of this experiment. Oliver Reed. I can't, I tell you. I can't remember anything. Lawrence Olivier. You are a most uh, unusual creature, Count Raku. And Frank Langella. You do not know how many men have come against me. I am the king of my kind. Plus your favorite superheroes grapple with the world's greatest monsters. You'll never succeed with your crazy plan, Dr. Frankenstein. That's just what Batman said, Superman. And look where you are now. <laughs> A Supermate's presentation coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. We're back, and if you thought the previous story may have been misplaced in a Secret Origins comic, wait till you hear what this one is all about. In 1961, Gardner Fox, Carmine Infantino, and Julie Schwartz created one of the most famous and important stories in DC Comics history when they told The Flash of Two Worlds in Flash issue 123. The story brought the Silver Age Flash, Barry Allen, together with the Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick, for the first time. The reimagining of that story appearing in this issue of Secret Origins is not an origin, really, of any kind. It was created to celebrate the 50th anniversary of The Flash, whose first issue had a 1940 cover date, and then inexplicably published in this issue rather than, say, the 50th anniversary special of The Flash that came out three weeks before this book. I don't know if my next guest can make better sense of this story's placement than I can, but I do know that we will have a good conversation about it, as he's quite a fan of superheroes who wear red costumes, including Daredevil, Captain Marvel, and Roy Harper, whose origin he helped me cover back on episode 38. He is the host of the newly rebranded Dave Does Podcasts over on the Two True Freaks Network. Please welcome back Mr. J. David Weeder. How are you, Dave? I'm doing good. Good to be back. Like, I never left in many ways. <laughs> it is, exactly. Very much. Thank you for being on the show one last time. Why did you want to talk about this story when I brought it up? Well, 
it's just so dang weird. And yet it's both a pastiche of the original version, but plays out in different relevant ways that the Flash book would take and run with, no pun intended, down the road. Uh, I've covered the three different versions of The Flash and their various publication histories on this podcast, but this is the first time that you and I have had a chance to talk about the character. What is your history with the Scarlet Speedster? I fell into it. I mean, well, Super Friends is going to be my origin point, but that's that's kind of basic. That's everybody's origin point <laughs> right, of a certain right. generation. But I fell into The Flash during the trial of The Flash, and really what caught my attention was Kid Flash. Because okay. I, I thought I'd love that his costume was kind of an inverted version of uh, the Flash's. And lo and behold, Wally became the Flash. And around issue nine of the post-crisis Flash, I jumped on board and I would sporadically read it you know, from then on. Did Wally West then, I mean, a lot of people of this generation would say that he is their preferred Flash. Do you, is that true for you? Do you have a favorite version of the Flash? It's Wally. It's wholeheartedly Wally. But through Wally, I've grown to, you know, I've grown to love Barry from Wally's perspective. And I've grown to love Jay from that perspective as well. What is your favorite era or your favorite run of the character? As cliche as it's going to sound, Mark Wade. Mark Wade was a guy that just got it and took the Flash to another level, especially with, uh, all of a sudden, my mind just went blank. The, um, you thinking of the artist? Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike Waringo. Waringo. Yeah, <laughs> I just totally brain farted on Mike Waringo. I hope Trentus Magnus will forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> Those two guys, I, Mark Wade and Mike Waringo, they're run on Fantastic Four is one of my all-time favorite like comic series. I think those guys just they clicked in terms of like being creative soulmates, and he was just a talent who was lost way too soon. But uh, what about those? Like, what about that story? What about his take on on Wally? Really, like, got you? What made you connect with him? For one thing, he got Wally as a as a basically a normal guy with superpowers who makes the same mistakes you and I do. Cuts himself shaving in the morning and still goes out and saves the world by lunch. And then he also took the mythology of the Flash. Well, he created a mythology, really. The whole Speed Force idea, love it or hate it, that was his. Um, really creating this dense uh, mythology is the only word I can use for it. That wasn't there with Barry. With Barry, he ran fast. He did things fast. It was all science. With Wally, it was something bigger. It was a bigger tapestry. And that started with Wade. Uh, all right. The question I asked a lot of people previously, who are some of your favorite Flash villains? Like if you had to make your top three rogues list. Ooh, top three. The top two are easy. Captain Cold's going to be my number one just because he's such a jerk. <laughs> he's, he's, and he's such a failure at it, too. And then Gorilla Grodd because it's a psychic talking gorilla. Absolutely. If I was going to put a third one in there, um, probably Weather Wizard because that costume – it's just ridiculous. <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> it's just they're so colorful and so off the charts that you have to love the rogues. Yeah. Well, like I said, we've covered the Flash's plural on this podcast before, and we've covered his villains, so we don't need to dive into all of that history. So instead, we are just going to get right into this story, The Flash of Two Worlds. Dave, are you ready to tell us about this story? I am, uh, and the tale was written by Grant Morrison with pencils by Mike Parabek, which got me excited to look at the issue to begin with, inked by Robio Tengal, lettered by Albert Tobias de Guzman, and colored by Thomas Zioko. I probably butchered that name. You can also find this reprinted in the trade paperback Flash the Human Race, if you're jonesing for some Flash action. And the story is told from the vantage point of an eight-year-old boy, and he's talking about how Central City has this bridge that leads to nowhere, but every now and then people would see lights or hear phantom melodies from across the water. And the boy goes on to tell us how the Flash filled in for an AWOL magician act, and the Flash used his speed to simulate the tricks of the trade, but at one point he stops and just kind of seems stunned by something. And the boy is actually fairly unamused by superheroes in general, but the Flash does pull off some amazing feats, somewhat impressing our young narrator. 
Now, after the show, The Flash decides to experiment with his speed powers. And when he does so, he's able to see a city across the river from Central City, the forgotten Keystone City. The inhabitants of the city seem to be frozen in time, entranced by an ongoing music that echoes through the streets, and the Scarlet Speedster makes tracks to find some help getting to the bottom of all of this. Flash finds Jay Garrick, originally thought to be a fictional character, and rouses him from the sleep, and Garrick suits up in his own Flash costume and the Speedsters seek out villainy. The first villain in question that we meet is the Fiddler, who's using his giant, basically, resonator to shift Keystone City out of its original plane of reality, which is a design thought up by his cohort, the Thinker. To complete the villain team-up trifecta, we have the Shade, with his great shadow manipulation powers, which, let's be honest, they're hiding something more interesting underneath that. The bad guys become aware of something Flash-like in the city and set out to investigate, so as you would expect, the two Flashes and the three villains come together for five times the action. That's right, it's a math pun. Uh, the, <laughs> the villains are quickly beaten up, bringing Keystone City back into the normal plane of reality with people crossing the bridge to see long-lost family and friends. And the narrator, the boy who wasn't all that into superheroes, gets the idea that he is going to one day become a famous superhero himself. And he signs off. And that is the tale of eight-year-old Garfield Logan. Who would go on to become? Beast Boy, who was actually in Doom Patrol, which is what Grant Morrison was writing at this time. Yeah, in Doom Patrol, but certainly more famously known as a member of the new Teen Titans. Yep. Very interesting connection. Like, other than the fact that Morrison was writing Doom Patrol and, like, had the character, like, I couldn't really figure it was like, why Gar Logan being inspired by the Flash? But It's not something I would, you know, pin down, but if it's the Flash, that's fine. It could be superhero could be aquaman sure honestly i do like the idea of the flash being a just a good guy who inspires goodness in others like i mean we see that trait so often from superman and from wonder woman but i think to a lesser extent the flash should have that because he is such an uh, a just a noble righteous but also sort of grounded down-to-earth character Mm-hmm. I mean, he has a museum dedicated to him, so <laughs> I think a lot of people should draw inspiration from him. I would hope so. Yeah. And what just did, as brightly clad as, he's, as he is, you should probably – he at least is a attention getter. What did you think of the story overall? It was weird. I, I liked it generally, but you know, I, I pulled out my Flash Omnibus and reread the original, and the only big difference is the permanence. Mm-hmm. Now, the original is a full one – you know, full issue st- uh, story – but with that, Keystone City was still on its its own dimension by the end of the story. Here you have a true merger. Right, and it, this is post-crisis, so we're no longer talking about cities on different Earths. Mm-hmm. Instead of being, you know, Earth 1, Earth 2, now you've got the flashes just from a different generation. And I think whether Morrison was tasked with this or whether he came up with the idea himself, he just like, okay, we need to have a reason why this older Flash would have been forgotten. Or there needs to be a bigger deal that these characters haven't run into each other by now. So he still borrows the same idea that this trifecta of villains, the Shade, the Thinker, and the Fiddler, that they're kind of keeping the city out of phase, out of sync, so that they can plunder it and everything. And and it takes both combined Flashes to stop this plan. I love that idea. I, I know that Morrison had like a year-long run writing The Flash when he was co-writing with Mark Muller. Reading this again, I sort of wish he would write more of The Flash today, and I think it's because Morrison has that grasp of super science-y language mm-hmm. that he can just he can write something that is like, I, I recognize those words, but I've never seen them in that combination before, but it sounds really smart. Yeah, and I think like, if you, yeah, if you've got a character like Barry Allen, who's this genius forensic scientist, and where all of his villains are using these super sciencey gimmicks, I want a, a writer of his caliber to be working in this 
realm. I, I wish it would do more. Well, it's kind of like Doctor Who. Doctor Who plays with those abstract science ideas, and that fits in well with The Flash. And Doc Grant Morrison is very much of that type. He's right. got the right mentality to bring to The Flash. Right, right. Other things I, I really liked, uh, there's something about the legacy of the story and and Jay Garrick, that moment when he asks Barry if he's with him, you know, even though Barry's the one who yeah. kind of recruits him, who wakes him out of the slumber. But when Jay, the elder statesman, goes to his closet and gets his costume and asks the younger guy, are you ready? Are you ready to, you know, walk into hell with me? That's just such a cool moment. And I think that resonates so well that, that it is one of those like fist pumpy moments that I like how that's done. <laughs> Well, this this actually played uh, very well into that legacy. It played into emotion, mm-hmm. where you have, I mean, the city appears and people are like, I remember you. There are, there are children that were orphaned that are no longer orphans. All these loved ones are now coming back. That was pretty darn powerful. Yeah, like they said, like spouses that had just sort of forgotten each other mm-hmm. and now like reuniting and everything. Oh, yeah, it's... This is a story that I wish was bigger. I wish he had more time to play with this canvas. I mean, it's a 16-page story. Like you said, the original one in Flash 123 was like 22, 23 pages, I think. So it would have been nice to see delving even more into that. Uh, In terms of Parabek's art, which you you signaled at the beginning that was a really good selling point for this. I mean, I love Parabek's work. The construction of this is really nice in terms of like the panel detail and how he arranges this thing to look like it's in a kid's notebook. Like these are pictures like pasted on like their photos or something. But every once in a while he goes into these like hand-drawn, like almost like stick figure type of things. It's it's like a cool little kind of, you know, the sake of visual diversity, it's nice. But it also creates opportunities for humor and i'm thinking on, on page 21 it's the it's the end of the page where the flash creates the whirlwind over the ocean to take out the shade <laughs> and we get just the drawing of the shade with the ah you know the, the scream or whatever just all lettered in and colored by the kid and then shouted the shade as he was sucked up in the water spot just the continuation of the the dialogue from that is just really excellently well done it's well constructed, but Parabek isn't quite as as polished as he will be. I mean, when you get into the the JSA series he did, which oh, yeah. I fully recommend from 1992, by the way. Yeah. Or the Fly from Impact, he has this down. I wonder if some of that isn't Romeo Tengal's inks on this story because I've never seen Tengal inking Parabek. I don't think. And it feels a little bit heavier in places because I know definitely like once yeah that JSA series that he did that felt very much of that uh, that kind of cartoony style it almost mm-hmm. looked like a a Darwin Cook or a Bruce Tim like DC animated type of thing yeah uh, that style so th- this one is a little bit it's not quite to that level yet. And on the flip side of the coin, there are certain panels that really do look like Carmen Infantino. Uh, so he may have been aping Infantino a little bit, which is fine. If you're going to follow somebody's legacy on the Flash, Infantino's probably the guy. You're right. I, I definitely see some of the Infantino influence in this. Uh, some of the panels do feel like they're not necessarily swiped, but definitely referenced to get kind of the visual idea. Other things that you liked about the story? Other criticism you had? Not a lot of criticism. I mean, it's, it's, it's so straightforward, it's hard to really pick it apart too much. They used the same template, and they built a slightly more sturdy house on the same foundation. Right. It's a good story. It's an enjoyable story. I really liked reading it. It's, it is a little bit different than the original because they he needs to explain things a little bit differently mm-hmm. just because of the mechanics of the universe is different after Crisis on Infinite Earths. So my one criticism is not with the story itself, but its placement. And this is what I asked you before, which, why is this story in Secret Origins? <laughs> 
the, the only connection I made was the Doom Patrol, that Morrison was working on Doom Patrol. This may have been intended for the Flash anniversary and just kind of held over. They ran out of space, possibly. That's the only thing I could think. Like, I was looking at that. I was like, why isn't this in a Flash annual or something like that? And I looked at the Flash's publication timeline. And yeah, there was that 50th anniversary special came out three weeks before this one. And if ever a story belonged in that one, it should have been this. I don't know what, I don't know, I haven't read that issue, so I don't know what stories were in that 50th anniversary special, but it really seems like this one should have been in there. I, I have no explanation for why the story showed up here and not in that issue. Although this this final issue of Secret Origins, I mean, I know you're going to cover other parts, I'm not going to comment on it, but there's just a lot of oddity in this issue. It is. and I mean, Tom Panarese and I already talked about the first story, which is a retelling of Dick Grayson's first glimpse of the Batman, but it's a prose story, and it's really, like, that feels like that didn't belong in this issue, like that should have gone in the Lonely Place of Dying trade or something like that. It's mm-hmm. This is a weird collection, and I know for a fact, like, you know, if you read the letters columns in the previous four or five issues of Secret Origins. Mark Wade was like, yeah, upcoming episodes, we're going to have the Secret Origin of Wonder Woman, the Secret Origin of Swamp Thing, Bronze Tiger, Red Tornado, all of these other characters. Like, None of them ever got published. I don't no. know if they're in inventory somewhere, if they got done, or if they were just scheduled, but by the time before they assigned anybody to work on theirs, they're like, yeah, we're canceling the book. So... I have no idea. Like, it, it seems like this was just like the ones that were left over that they could throw in, but some of them were like, yeah, these these should have been inventory for other series or trade paperbacks or something like. That. I mean, I guess what's you you go with what's in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we we need we need sixteen more pages for this. So, <laughs> and it went right. And at the same time, I mean, it's a ninety-six page issue that cost three dollars and ninety-five cents back in nineteen ninety, which is four cents less than a modern day Marvel comic book today for almost five times the amount of pages. But we I still would have balked at the price, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Comics were like a dollar in nineteen ninety about a dollar twenty five, I think. No, they'd still be a dollar. Some of them, yeah. yeah. So yeah, this would be this would be a mammoth purchase. Yeah. Bigger than some original graphic novels of the day. Yeah, bigger than Killing Joke. Yeah, it's twice the size of the Killing Joke. But no, I got to say that I mean the the lineup is good. It's just none of it really pertains to Secret Origins at all. (laughs) (sighs) It's weird, but but still, this is worth reading. I I definitely think it's worth reading. It gets referenced and carried through because Wally West eventually moves to Keystone City, Mm -hmm. creates this Twin City vibe that I I think helped really flesh out Central City from the other fictional cities. It did, and I definitely like the the world building that this creates, certainly with Keystone and Central City as the Twin Cities, as you said. I I like that effect, and it does distinguish it from every other major city in America, you know, notwithstanding like Metropolis and Gotham City and everything like that. And Mm -hmm. I think these heroes need their own distinct worlds to, to play in, and these Twin Cities really work that way, so... It's a relatively minor complaint because, like I said, I I like the story. There's nothing about the story I don't like. It's just kind of a head scratcher that why is this here? <laughs> and it's certainly it's not the first time because I've I've encountered stories throughout this series where I was like, that's a pretty good story. It is not an origin. Like I don't know why they put it in secret origins. This isn't the first time this has happened. But this certainly seems to be the most blatant where it's not like you're telling a narrative that doesn't really explain who the character is or how he came to be. You're obviously retelling a classic story that wasn't an origin story to begin with. So it's... You could, I mean, if you wanted to know prize it, you could say that, you know, Jay Garrick's Flash is the the origin of our Barry Allen, which is the origin of our Wally West. So it's a matter of coming back to a point of origin, which would be Keystone City, where all the adventures began. If you wanted to know prize it, but... (laughs) 
okay, we can go with that. <laughs> That's still a pretty big stretch. <laughs> that, is, that is a pretty big stretch, but sure, let's let's go with that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have anything else to say. It is an enjoy. I'm glad I got a chance to read it. It's a fun entry in this in this book. What other Flash stories would you recommend? If somebody likes the Flash, if they read this one for some reason for the first time, they like the character and they want to see more of the Flash, what do you recommend? Uh, the three big ones in the Mark Wade saga. So I uh, do Born to Run, The Return of Barry Allen, and Terminal Velocity. If you're not a Flash devotee by then, you're probably not going to jump on board anywhere else. DC is finally reprinting his stuff, and I think they're they're starting from the beginning. Uh, but they like I think starting in December they're going to start reprinting his work in trades. I think maybe the first maybe the first twelve issues might not be that many, uh, but the first couple issues that of his run are being reprinted again, and it looks like they're going to start doing a series of that because what with a very successful TV show they've finally gotten hip to the fact that hey maybe we should uh, put out some more of this material. <laughs> yeah, make it available. Yeah. All this stuff they're talking about TV people might want to read it. Yeah. Definitely, there are two trade paperbacks that collect the Grant Morrison and Mark Miller run on the Flash. You can find those. Uh, the, certainly, the Flash Omnibus, the new versions that collect the Silver Age. Uh, there's plenty of material. There's a pretty good TV show that you can watch right now. First two seasons are now on Netflix. So, all right, all right. I got to finish the second season. I've only seen about half of it. So, Dave, thank you very much for being part of this final episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? I am at twotruefreaks.com where you may be finding me talking about Back to the Future or other topics of interest. Um, my show is made up of, well, it's pretty standard fare. Regular episodes will come out, just random topics of my choice. Uh, in that, there are some ongoing topics, Back to the Future being one, uh, Ghostbusters is coming up, and Star Trek in comic book form will be some of the topics I'll be tackling um, on a semi-ongoing basis. And what is the new name of your show again? Dave Does Podcasts. Well, thank you very much for being on the show again. It was great talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. With two stories down this episode, folks, we are just a third of the way through this spectacular finale. We're going to take a promo break right now and come back in a minute with the origin of Johnny Thunder. No, a different Johnny Thunder. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime. Never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby. I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. 
Views from the Long Box, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Everyone considered him a coward of the county He had never stood one single time to prove the county wrong His mama named him Tommy, but folks just called him Yellow Something always told me they were reading Tommy wrong He was only ten years old Daddy died in prison I looked after Tommy Cause he was my brother's son I still recall the final words My brother said to Tommy Son, my life is over But yours has just begun Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done Walk away from trouble if you can It won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek I hope you're old enough to understand Son, you don't have to fight to be a man There's someone for everyone And Tommy's love we're back for our third story in Secret Origins, issue 50. And would you believe it? I think this one actually meets the requirements of an origin story. How about that? <laughs> back on episode 13, I asked no less than 10 people to help me cover the origin of Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt. Only Nathaniel Wayne was ignorant enough to take me up on the offer. For some reason, I thought it would be doubly hard to find a guest for the Western hero Johnny Thunder on this episode. But my next guest jumped at this story. Maybe it's because he's such a diehard fan of the Western genre, as evidenced by his coverage on Views from the Long Box and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. <laughs> Secret admirers, please welcome back to the show, Mr. Michael Bailey. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, sir. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Other than spending more time together, why did you want to talk about Johnny Thunder? I have a deep appreciation for DC's varied genres. This is kind of a recent, like within the last five or six years thing. And a couple years ago, I stumbled upon a graphic audio production called uh, DC Universe Trail of Time. And it's this great story of Mordrew, Vandal Savage, and Felix Faust team up in like right after the fall of Camelot. And they end up creating this other Earth that they control. And they manage to make the sun red. And it's basically Superman gets involved via the Phantom Stranger in Etrigan. So right away, it's like this mishmash of DC. You know, like, like we've got horror characters. We've got a Legion connection. You know, we've got a JSA connection. Part of the story takes place in the 1800s West. So you've got Jonah Hex, Scalp Hunter, and Batlash teaming up uh, at one point with Johnny Thunder. And usually I balk at the name Johnny Thunder because I hate that JSA character. 
I agree with everything Frank says about him, uh, which is a pretty strong statement. I just have n- I, he's a jerk. He's, he's 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 not a good person, and he's riding the coattails of the fact that he lucked into a lightning bolt. So I wasn't really like, ooh, let me go check out this Johnny Thunder. But then I'm like, oh, he's a school teacher who's pretending to be meek and mild. And he puts black stuff in his hair, which is kind of crazy. But when you buy into it and it's not like I have a huge love for Westerns, but I like that setting. It's like, you know, one of my favorite movies is Silverado, Mm -hmm. which some Western aficionados hate. I (laughs) don't really care. I love that film. So... When you mentioned that this was up for grabs, I'm like, ooh, I'll take that because, you know, I, I figured I would read this and probably read his first appearance as well just to get a better sense of him. And I will have to thank Rob and Chag because it was their coverage on Who's Who that kind of furthered my, ooh, I need to go check this guy out type of thing. So I just, I think it's a great concept. It's a, it sounds like something that would have been a great 70s television series with like uh, some James Garner looking guy playing the main character. And I just, like I said, I appreciate the fact that DC has like a science fiction realm and has a horror realm and has a Western realm that seems to be more fleshed out than what Stan Lee and company did with Marvel, because it seems like Stan Lee, and and this is a direct quote, Stan Lee's idea is, well, all you have to say instead of follow that car is follow that stagecoach. (laughs) And I think the fact that I can not name a single Marvel Western character outside of Ghost Rider, and that's stretching it, whereas I can pop off like five or six DC ones, like, you know, at the drop of a hat. Yeah. I should have known when I asked the question that graphic audio would be involved. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, they they haven't done a DC thing in a while. Man, they have done some good productions. And, uh, you know, I'm just saying six hours for $13. That's, you know, for, for for your entertainment dollar, it's good value. That is pretty good. Um, I think, uh, well, I'm quite sure that my first experience with this character was in this issue of Secret Origins a couple years ago and probably would have read this around the time that Rob and Shag were covering him on Who's Who. I don't know exactly which one came first, but it was they were pretty close together. And like you, I do not have any real fond appreciation for the other Johnny Thunder, but I do remember when, when discovering that there were two characters with that name, thinking, you know, Johnny Thunder sounds like a Western character's name. I think if I was going to give one character that name, it would probably be this guy. Mm-hmm. And then, in, yeah, and then just kind of like, okay school teacher, but he has to hide the fact from his father that he's really this, you know, Lone Ranger-style Western hero, even though that's what his father wanted him to be. All right, this we're going to get into this, try to make sense of what exactly makes this character tick. But before that, the publication history for Johnny Thunder, uh, the John Tane version of Johnny Thunder debuted in the 100th issue of All-American Comics, the anthology series best known for chronicling the adventures of the Golden Age Green Lantern Alan Scott, who you might remember Michael and I talked about back on episode 18. The creation of Robert Kaniger and Alex Toth, Johnny Thunder didn't just appear in All-American Comics 100, he ousted Green Lantern from the cover for the first time. Johnny Thunder stayed with All-American, which was retitled All-American Western, with issue 103. He also graced the cover of every issue until the series was canceled with issue 126. His adventures then moved over to All-Star Western, starting with issue 67 of that series. 
He appeared in All-Star Western, often making the cover when the Trigger Twins weren't hogging it, until that series 2 was cancelled with issue 119 in 1961. Johnny Thunder's next appearance was in Showcase Issue 100. Then in 1980, Johnny Thunder was the subject of a Whatever Happened to backup story from DC Comics Presents Issue 28. Johnny Thunder appeared in several issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then, of all places, he showed up in Swamp Thing Issue 89, published a year before this issue of Secret Origins. Since then... I believe he actually appeared in the last issue of Convergence and the second issue of Multiversity. Michael, do you know of any other significant Johnny Thunder appearances uh, or stories that I forgot to mention? Uh, No, I think he covered them all pretty well. All right, then. Are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Johnny Thunder? Yes, I am. In a story called Johnny Thunder Fountainhead or Fortunehead. Why did I almost say? Yes, this is uh, Fountainhead. Every time I look at the cover, I'm like, Fountainhead? Really? (laughs) Ayn Rand writing a Western hero? <laughs> yeah, it's all about how uh, Johnny Thunder teaches everybody that they need to be self-reliant and any kind of social programs is evil. Uh, it's Fortune Head. We open on Johnny Thunder's father being tied to a bunch of kegs of gunpowder, and that is as awesome as it sounds. While a villain known as Rand is basically telling him that even though he is a bank robber, he is actually the wave of the future. And invariably, he will be able to rob banks in the legal sense and trust him because it's the son, the sheriff's, uh, Sheriff Tane, excuse me, the son the world is going to live in. This cues a flashback of how Sheriff Tane met his uh, late wife, Dorothea and how he was always being a sheriff and kind of not being there for his son, who was, well, in effect, coddled by his mother. Uh, We cut back to Johnny Thunder spying one of the lookouts for Rand. He takes the guy out, and here we get a flashback that Johnny Thunder and Rand's gang have run into each other before. Uh, There's a couple references to the Lone Ranger, the Wild Wild West, and Kung Fu before we see Rand running away. Johnny Thunder disguises himself as the lookout and goes into town, starts whooping ass like you wouldn't believe. He flashes back to when his mother was on her sickbed. He showed her his disguise kit, which kind of confused her. But she basically makes him promise that he will... Well, it's almost like she says, promise me, son, you won't do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. And please don't think he's weak for ever turning the other cheek and other things that Kenny Rogers used to sing about. <laughs> if, if anybody wasn't expecting a Kenny Rogers Coward of the County reference in the synopsis, uh, I'm kind of surprised. Uh, but it turns out that Tane and his father did not get along very well, especially after the death of his mother. We cut to Johnny Thunder busting into the window. Oh, it's a beautiful shot. He starts literally kicking ass. Meanwhile, Rand's sadistic henchman lights the dynamite, uh, the barrels of dynamite on fire. Johnny kills a bunch of guys, gets his dad out of there. They run like hell, but his dad catches a bullet on the way out. They manage to escape just in time to watch the place blow up behind him. Turns out his dad is not as dying as he thought, and now knows that his son is secretly Johnny Thunder, and is pretty happy about it because he's a jackass. (laughs) The end. All right. Thank you very much. One thing I noticed, uh, first I'll mention this about the art. Alan Weiss penciled the story. Dick Giordano inked it, but it says, according to the credits, Alan Weiss inked the first three pages. 
I really like those three pages. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. wonder I wonder if it was just a deadline thing, if he was falling behind, so Dick Giordano picked it up after him. The rest of it isn't bad, because Dick Giordano was a pretty capable inker, but I really like those first three pages, especially page one and page three, like when you kind of get like the shading on the faces and everything. I think those are strong. Yeah, and page two, that first shot of Johnny's dad, Yeah, uh, just kind of pinkish. There's a lot of detail in that uh, that's uh, really good. Though I will say that the, the, the one misstep is that Dorothea looks about 80 on page two in that first panel where we see her, but she's young for the rest of it. So. Yeah. What did you think of the story in general? I liked the story because, you know, it's pretty exciting. Uh, it's, you know, it's Johnny Thunder having to save his dad. His dad is tied to kegs of gunpowder, uh, which is a very kind of serial type thing to do. You know, it's just, it, it feels like a TV Western of the 50s and 60s. And I can kind of say that with some confidence now because <laughs> we have a TV in our break room at work and it has a digital receiver. So we get me TV. And during the <laughs> afternoon when I'm on my lunches, usually someone's in there watching it. So it's like like watching a lot of, you know, the Rifleman with Chuck Connors. Good God, you can sharpen freaking cutlery on that man's chin. It's <laughs> just amazing. But, uh, But they all have a kind of samey feel uh, of the subject matter they talk about and the settings and all that. It's just the characters that are different, and this kind of feels like it fits in there. Though, man, Rand's assistant is just diabolical. He's a nasty guy, yeah. Maybe we should try something oriental on him, something with bamboo and fingernails. Something Promethean, perhaps. The gradual release of certain vital... I was like, good God! Yeah, his, his brain of torture. What the hell is Elliot Magan coming up with this stuff? Uh, it's uh, apparently from a really dark place. I think it's the same well that Jeff Johns derives a lot of uh, his, <laughs> his character beats from. The bit with the Lone Ranger and Wild Wild West and the Kung Fu bit on page... Uh, I guess that's 31 of the overall comic. Right. Is funny. I liked that a lot. I was trying to figure out which ones, which like reference everyone was. Like obviously the Lone Ranger clearly, and then the third one I was like, or Kung Fu, okay. Wild Wild West, that's the middle one, the agent yep. of President Hayes, okay. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Herbert West was a uh, Secret Service agent. Okay, uh, it's the same thing that um, Will Smith was in the in the movie version. So, can you believe it? I never watched that movie. I, I've never seen it either. I just remember them talking about it at the time. So, But it's a nice way to sneak in other Western mm-hmm. characters uh, that were popular on television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only problem I have with this story, outside of the fact that Johnny Thunder likes to try to fool people into thinking he's other people, <laughs> is that Johnny Thunder's dad is a jackass. Like, right from the jump, in the beginning of the story, he's just like... And marrying her was the worst damn fool mistake I ever made in my life. And it's just like, basically, he marries this woman, he has a son, he's always gone because he's a sheriff, and he just expected his son to follow in his footsteps. Meanwhile, his wife is basically coddling the boy and trying to keep him away from the life that the sheriff leads. And he blames everybody for things not going the way he wanted them to go. I agree that Sheriff Bill is not a likable character, but at the same time, right away from the voice that Ellie Magan gave him and like the dialect, I heard Sam Elliott's voice from yeah. the Big Lebowski. <laughs> like just going through these like 
Once or twice a month, I'd trot back to town like a gulldarn Roman general and parade my catch for all the world. And who and who knew what young John Stewart would think? Didn't tell me. Didn't ask him. I was like, okay, I, I know who this character is. Yeah, he is a jackass. Not a good guy. But I know who that character is. And at the end, he's just he finally accepts his son, but only because he now knows his son can kick a lot of ass. So... There's no questioning of why have you... And there's really not a whole lot of mention of the fact that he was a school teacher that Uh would put black powder in his hair. I mean, there's a little bit of message. Like, is he putting gunpowder in his hair? Yes, I think he is. Oh, good Lord. I hope he doesn't go by an open flame. Yeah, yeah. Um, Full of Michael Jackson. And and that's kind of the issue I have with this story. And actually, it's not that much of a problem with the story, although it kind of is. But it's also a problem that I I find with this character in general, after reading this and learning more about the character, was the need for this dual identity. And it feels like a carryover from the superhero stories before this. Mm -hmm. What the Western heroes were doing in the late 40s and 50s when they kind of were ousting the superheroes. They were taking over this, this need for deception and and a secret identity and when Bob Fisher and I were talking about the Trigger Twins on a previous episode I kind of had the same thing where the story was fine but once you got to the gimmick where they had to pretend like one of them was like a a badass and the other guy was you know meek and mild when really he was the talented one I was like why? What do you need that deception for? And it it just feels like that's something that doesn't translate well and maybe it was just a a a necessary evil from the time or it was just something it feels like that's, that's kind of a trope of these Western comics that I personally don't think is necessarily aged very well. I'll agree with that, especially when you consider that if Johnny's mother was still alive Mm -hmm. and she had made him promise to not follow in his father's footsteps, I can see him disguising himself so that he wouldn't upset his mother. It's kind of like an Aunt May syndrome. Right, you almost need the roles to be reversed. You almost need the mother to be alive and the father to be dead. But it's just like, so what's stopping him from following in his father's footsteps outside of an obligation? And is that obligation so strong that he feels like the only way he can get around it is to disguise himself? And because I, I tracked down the first appearance of Johnny Thunder. And the interesting thing is, is you don't get his origin in his first appearance. It's just a Johnny Thunder story. Mm-hmm. And you see, you know, him, you know, in his school uh, teacher vibe. And the father is constantly berating him for doing woman's work because apparently only women were school teachers in the 1800s. Maybe that's actually accurate. I'm not quite sure. You know, my knowledge of the educational system of the 1800s comes from Little House on the Prairie, and I don't want to say I don't want to use that as a, a as an encyclopedic reference. You know what I'm saying? So it's like him, and there's a girl that he likes, and he basically uh, it's where he meets Black Lightning, his his horse, mm-hmm. and you know we see an adventure where he you know puts the black powder in his hair and he kicks a lot of ass, and then at the end he's just like, oh really? What happened? So I guess it's just one of those, like you were saying, it's a conceit of the of the genre and the time. You know, it, it made sense when they first did it, but now that we're talking about it, it really doesn't. Like, you know, yeah, mom wanted me to, to be a school teacher and to, to not follow in dad's footsteps, but she's kind of dead. And I'm sick of everybody making fun of me. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I mean, he's an exciting character. 
And uh, All All American Comics number one hundred was really interesting too, because not only did you have Johnny Thunder, you had a Green Lantern story, a Doctor Midnight story, a Black Pirate story. So it's basically like a snippet of who's who, uh, (laughs) all in one book. But I just kind of liked how Megan peppered the origin throughout the story. So it wasn't a straight up retelling of the original issue, which from listening to the show is one of your main complaints of a lot of the early stories covered in this series is that it, it was just kind of like warmed over versions of the original. We don't get that here. No, and I like the fact that we do get a framing device that gives it some context. We have a reason for seeing the origin, um, yeah. which is, is fleshed out through this dire circumstance where Johnny's father is about to be murdered. I've read one other Johnny Western story. It was also in the, the same story that I mentioned when I talked about uh, the Trigger Twins with Bob. Showcase issue 72. It reprints a couple different Western stories. One of them is the Johnny Thunder story from All-American Western issue 104. And that one does kind of give a little bit of a reason for the deception and the disguise, but only so that you can have this gotcha moment at the end, because it starts off with John and his father are having a fight, and John saying that, you know, the power of words, the power of language, and using your brain can be more important than the power of bullets. And then this gang rides into town, and they're like, we need something to stop the sheriff, but we also don't want that Johnny Thunder mystery man coming after us, so we need somebody who can... Basically, they create this thing where they kidnap John Tane, not realizing that he is Johnny Thunder. And then he ends up escaping, he turns into Johnny Thunder, and he goes after And he has this final confrontation with the bad guy, where he basically just talks the bad guy into shooting and missing in a weird kind of forced way, like where the guy is a point-blank shot at Johnny... And because of the power of Johnny's words and his his speech, the bad guy just misses his shot, and Johnny takes him out. And at the end, once he's free and he rides off and he comes back as John Tane, you know, the father has to apologize and say, you know, I was wrong, you were right, sometimes words can be more powerful than bullets. And I'm like, okay, I, I kind of get that. Maybe that works for one story. I don't know if that works for a serialized story except for the fact that we're talking about comics that were published at a time when the turnover rate for readers was every five to six months. It sounds like the kind of dynamic between Bill Maxwell and Ralph Hinckley on The Greatest American Hero. In fact, there was an episode uh, where they run afoul of some bikers, and Ralph is just like, well, we could just talk this out. Bill's just like, no, we got to go in there and kick some ass. You know, paraphrasing, of course. And so I guess that's just kind of a common trope. Like when you have the more pacifist type character who is willing to use force when necessary versus the Sam Elliott dad who thinks that, you know, a bullet is the best way to solve it. But here's the thing. Going with the story you just described and listening to how it plays out, it's almost like he was proven right but I still completely agree with with his dad in this case because I'm just saying, yeah, you can probably pull that off once knowing what I know about the West and how kind of wild it was. I, 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 think, I think a bullet's a better way to go. I'm just saying. And I think that speaks to the fact that these are adventure serial comics. We yeah. want men of action. Nobody's favorite superhero is Dove. <laughs> like the Don Hall version like no no you don't like that that's why I don't like that that group like that's we don't we don't read these books for that type of character we don't want the 
uh, like what is the I'm trying to think what 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 the the sort of Western vernacular, the Western slang term is for like an Eastern foppish type of dandy gentleman or something. I can't think of the name now. Yeah, a bit of a dandy will work. Yeah. But I think the idea there is to reach kids and, and tell them that there are better ways to solve your problems than violence. Unfortunately, it does not work into the concept of context. <laughs> if you've got a situation on the schoolyard, yeah, you may be able to talk your way out of that because, you know, especially when these comics were being published... You were probably more worried about, you know, a couple kids getting into a fight. Right. You know, if, if you're in the Old West and there's a gang of killers that have kidnapped you, I say shooting is probably the better way to go. Yeah, yeah, when they've got your dad tied up to a keg of yeah. dynamite. Yeah, I mean, like in this one, he just comes in and he is just kicking ass all over the place. That mm-hmm. shot of him coming through that skylight. Oh, it's great. And then the next page, the first panel is him like delivering a kung fu style sidekick <laughs> to that dude's face. I mean, he's going in and he's not playing. It's just fantastic. I mean, it was a great action sequence. And Alan Weiss is a fantastic artist to begin with. So uh, it was kind of nice to see him do this. Elliot Magan's uh, writing was really strange. I've never... I am pretty much familiar with him through Green Arrow or Superman. So it was interesting seeing him write a character like Johnny Thunder from the Western end of the DC Universe. Yeah, it just feels like it, it allows him to kind of stretch his legs and play with voices that he really never got a chance to write when working on Superman or Green Arrow. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like the action beats, like even before he kicks down the window, like at first when he's sneaking up on the guys, and of course he can't come in guns blazing because he needs to kind of move in stealthily at first, and he's just knocking them out, and he actually whips one guy like into another guy, like, okay, that, that, how strong is he? The, the only problem I had with this story is that the flashback of the lookout, it is not super clear unless you're really paying attention that that's a flashback. When I was reading it the first time, I'm like, wait, wait, what's, what, what just happened here? <laughs> oh, oh, that happened before. Okay. All right. So, yeah. All right. That makes some kind of sense. Right. So, that dude's clothes must smell like ass. <laughs> I would not want to put those on. I think that's probably true of a lot of these characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, one of my regrets for this series is, like you, I mean, you mentioned that just over the last couple of years, you've developed a real appreciation for some of the other genres within the DC Universe, like their horror books and like their Western books. I really have two, but it feels like some of the more prominent Western heroes, aside from Jonah Hex, the ones that I always hear mentioned, are Batlash and Scalp Hunter. Those guys don't get secret origins, and thus I don't really know that much about those guys. But I know more about Johnny Thunder and the Trigger Twins and everyone's favorite, The Whip. I, I've said it before, like, I wish DC would do something like an anthology type of book that would allow them to publish like more of these stories and like to dip into some of these genres and it might be a thing where it just it needs to be a batman book because batman will sell books but have like 
a backup strip with a a medieval knight character like Silent Knight or Shining Knight and a western and a monster story or something like that. But well, back at the beginning of the New Fifty Two, the Jonah Hex book All Star Western yeah, yeah. had backups of like El Diablo and other western characters. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading that book, it was kind of interesting, you know, to see you know Jonah Hex in Gotham of the eighteen hundreds because it was made into a kind of a bad book. Uh, even even so far as going and having a, an entry in the Court of Owls crossover, uh, which is kind of like one of those times when you look at Millennium, where it had both a young all-star and Legion crossover. <laughs> so it's like, how the hell does... Oh, that's how it works. Okay, I get... Eh, whatever. But um, I, I don't know the mechanics of the digital first stuff, because it seems like most of those books are limited runs. You know, even the injustice, which, you know, is getting into like its fifth year, that's like every year there's like a new series. Mm -hmm. So they can stop it pretty much at any time. They had a Legends of the Dark Knight thing that was finite, a Superman thing that was finite, a Wonder Woman thing that was finite. So I don't know if the demand is there for them to attempt it, but I think if you're going to diversify more into the digital marketplace, maybe having a Western anthology book or a horror anthology book just to try it out to see if it sells. Uh, and then, you know, you can always cancel it and you haven't really committed to paper. It's all digital. So you could lose money, but it seems like you'd lose less money than starting up a new title and putting it out to comic shops. Yeah. And the upside is you could print everything into a trade paperback later down the road. I wish they would do more like that. But other final thoughts on Johnny Thunder? Uh, like the character. I think he's a little goofy, but I like him and all of the other Western characters that DC was able to kick out during the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, especially the 50s when that craze was riding high. So I'm not sure, ultimately, if I do like the character that much. The story, this particular installment. I liked this story. Uh, I, I liked what we learned about this character. I don't know if this is a guy I want to read more of, if I'm limited in the, the Western characters that I can get or something. Like, He doesn't feel as interesting to me as some of the others. I, I think there's too much conflict in my brain about like why why this gimmick? Why the disguise? I don't think that necessarily holds up to, to scrutiny. So... I'm just wondering why Batman is helping Black Canary carry the DC bullet and the cover. That just, I mean, I, I figured Bruce Wayne would hire somebody to do that. So <laughs> maybe he's a good friend. I don't know. Uh, he owed somebody a favor. Yes. <laughs> or he's such a control freak that he saw them doing it and they were doing it wrong. <laughs> I'll go with that one too. Michael, where else can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Uh, views from the long box uh, views from the long um, there you can find a, a plethora of topics uh, that I've talked about with other either alone or with other people uh, from crisis to crisis is still out there a new episode hasn't been out there in a while but he uh, the, you can go over to Fortress of Bailey Toon and find the full archives of that series as well and kind of kick around uh, my Superman blog that I barely keep up with and every Tuesday at 1030 Eastern Standard Time you can listen to Steve Eunice and I uh, the Superman homepage and talk where we have our live call-in show Radio KAL Live uh, so those are the places Thank you very much for being on the show one last time. 
You couldn't be on the first episode, but I'm glad you were here for the last one. It's always great talking about these characters. Uh, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. Dan, congratulations for getting through it, sir. Good job. There's something else about Johnny Thunder that I forgot to bring up during my talk with Michael, and it drives me crazy because I had this written in my notes, actually highlighted in red, and I still forgot to mention it. And to me, it's the most interesting thing about the character. Toward the end of his time in All-Star Western, he met a photographer named Gene Walker, who, like Johnny, doubled as a gunfighter named Madam 44, as in the Colt Revolver. Johnny and Madam 44 fell in love and eventually got married. I know Madam 44 doesn't really belong in Johnny's origin story, but I still wish we could have gotten a sense of her in the story. Hell, I wish we could have gotten her origin story instead. From everything I've researched, Madam 44 is a lot more interesting than Johnny Thunder, and she's also a pretty sexy character. That issue of Swamp Thing that I referenced earlier that includes the Western heroes features a kind of subplot where Madam 44 looks like she might be messing around with Batlash behind Johnny's back. It's a really interesting dynamic. Again, there are a lot of Western heroes in the DC stables that I know so little about. I wish DC could find an avenue for resurrecting some of these characters, or at the very least reprint their old stories. Anyway, we're going to take another promotional break, but when we come back, the origin of Dolphin. It was a golden age. Our Martian civilization was at the height of its peace and prosperity. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts, and they burned us all. I lost my family. Came to Earth when my civilization was destroyed. Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come, but right now I'm the only thing that can stop alien invasion. My name is John Jones, also known as the Martian Manhunter. I'm Mars' sole survivor. There's a reason for that. I will defend Earth. Prior to this issue, we've covered 49 issues of Secret Origins, three annuals, and one special. So far, we haven't gotten the origin of Aquaman. Is that all about to change? Well, our next subject is an aquatic hero and one who starred in Aquaman comics for five years. But it's not Aquaman. It's not Aqualad. It's not Mira, or Tula, or Tusky, or Topo. Instead, we're graced with the origin of the mysterious beauty of the sea, Dolph. Volko. 
doll. Volko might be pretty beautiful, depending on your. <laughs> Bob got, is beautiful. Yeah, we got dolphin, and since this story kind of by its nature gives the finger to Aquaman, I sought out the guest who, by his own nature, kind of gives the finger to Rob Kelly and everyone else we know and love. <laughs> please welcome. I love Rob. <laughs> please welcome back, Mr. David Ace Gutierrez. What is up, man? Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Thanks for having me, and I can't compete with that introduction. For the record, I do not hate Rob Kelly. I'm quite fond of, of, the, of the weird guy. But um, <laughs> yeah, he hooked me up with the, um, he legally sent me the original origin of Dolphin. So, oh, very, very nice. To prep me for this. Yeah. I did have to have you on this final episode. I don't know if Rob has informed you of this, but on the official Fire and Water Charter, like Article 7, Section 4, there's something called the DAG Clause, which basically oh. guarantees you so many appearances per calendar year. So <laughs> You know, I haven't been on... I am going to be on at Tease. I will be on another show for your network soonish. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I haven't I haven't had my uh, my dozen or so annual promised annual appearances. Well, we don't want to tell you how many exactly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we just know that there is a fixed number that we know of. So. Okay, well that's well I'm flattered, and I'm glad you could squeeze me in for this uh, wonderful tale yeah, of tales. Of course. It's a it's a fish tale. Did you know anything about dolphin prior to me enlisting you for this story? You know, very little. Um, she first came to my attention, I think, in either Who's Who or Crisis on Infinite Earths. I think she was listed under the um, Forgotten Heroes mm-hmm. entry. And then the Forgotten Heroes were shown um, on Brainy. I just remember them very beautifully illustrated, particularly Dolphin herself, um, on Brainiac's ship in Crisis on Infinite Earths 5 or 6, somewhere around there. But no, I mean, she was intriguing because she was so... As, as George Bettis could draw her so beautiful, but there wasn't a lot to her necessarily. I was really, for me, what, what I found the most interesting, right, I guess, most mysterious thing about her is her choice of wardrobe <laughs> in the 80s. Just um, And not to plug Rob's um, other podcast, but uh, as I mentioned on the critically acclaimed High Fidelity review that we did, I worked at a video store and uh, there were a series of movies called Gator Bait. Okay. Gator Bait One and Gator Bait Two, Cajun Justice, and um, <laughs> and uh, Dolphin is dressed very much like the title character to, to Gator Bait Two, so there was an immediate kind of fondness there. I can imagine that sounds absolutely, and, and truthfully, that's pretty much what I knew of her from. I, I mean, I I first discovered her I think in the Aquaman comics from the '90s because I read like the first maybe eight issues of Peter David's run. Yeah. Um, and she was in there. And so I knew of her and she was, I mean, they, they were all, every woman was drawn to appeal to a, a young teenage boy at that time. Uh, but certainly, you know, the cutoff shorts and everything, that was, uh, that was quite tantalizing. The next time, like, and then basically just, just di- completely disappeared from my view. Never thought about her, never saw her, anything like that until Blackest Night when uh, I found out, okay, well, at some point she had died and come back. Right. And actually, let's just dive into the the publication history from there, uh, which is actually going in reverse then. Um, (laughs) Dolphin was created by writer-artist J. Scott Pike for a story in Showcase issue 79, published in 1968. Her second appearance came 10 years later in Showcase 100, the star-studded spectacular issue that featured nearly every hero who'd appeared in the series up to that point. In 1984 and 85, Dolphin appeared in Action Comics 552 and 553, as well as DC Comics Presents 77 and 78. In those issues, she was part of what you already mentioned, the Forgotten Heroes Ensemble, which included Animal Man, Cave Carson, Rick Flagg, and Kongorilla, all of whom received the Secret Origins treatment prior to this. 
Dolphin appeared in several issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and in one of the most beautiful, like hauntingly beautiful, entries in Who's Who, illustrated by Dave Stevens. After the crisis, however, Dolphin got a lot more action in terms of both publication and, you know, romantically. Aside from teaming up with Animal Man in Animal Man issue 15, she appeared in most of the 75-issue Aquaman series in the 90s. Peter David used her as a major supporting character and Arthur's lover and companion for a while. Then, when Mira came back into his life, Dolphin and Arthur's relationship dissolved. Before long, she started seeing Garth, the former Aqua Lad. Dolphin and Garth got married and had a child, but she and the baby were killed when the Spectre went all crazy pants around the time of Infinite Crisis. She returned briefly as a Black Lantern in Blackest Night to help Tula murder Garth, but then she was destroyed again in the Blackest Night Titans miniseries. David, do you know of any other Dolphin appearances that I missed? No, but man, kids don't fare well in Atlantis. No. Aquaman's son was murdered too, right? Yeah, pretty much almost everybody he's ever loved or cared about has been viciously, terribly murdered. So. Wow. Well, we're off to a great start. Her first appearance, though, is, I just have to say, it is a beautiful-looking comic. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but J. Scott Pike can draw a mean comic. <laughs> She's stunning in it, actually. I've seen pages from it. I haven't seen the full story. <laughs> okay. Uh, but are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Dolphin? All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, buckle up, guys. It's all right. <laughs> so um, immediately we open on the Florida coast. So we're right in a good spot, Florida. And a middle-aged, haggard man of almost 50, obsessed with finding somebody he just calls her, sees a poster of our character, Dolphin. And uh, there's a caption that tells the reader that it's Ocean World's newest sensation. So he's found her. Only the trick to it is that she hasn't aged a single day. So he goes to the show and he sees Dolphin playing with some dolphins at the water park during what is, I guess, would eventually be a show that would be uh, shut down by Blackfish today. <laughs> um, hours pass and he's still in the stands and he's crying and this doctor named Meredith Riley approaches him. He's at an impasse. He doesn't know what to say to her. He doesn't know what to do. Has he lost his mind? How can, how can Dolphin be so young and he so old? The doctor wants to learn how he knows Dolphin, and he tells her that his name is Chris Landau, that he's an ex-Navy officer and diver from the... And, uh, and all of a sudden, did you find this strange, Ryan, how he all of a sudden gets an accent? <laughs> uh, there were a, a few times when the dialogue or dialect was coming. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> an accent kicks in. Maybe because he internalizes his thoughts, he sounds like he thinks he sounds, and then... <laughs> His external, anyway, gets an accident. <laughs> and he tells the doctor about a diving mission to recover some documents from a vault that's on a ship that was sunken by the Japanese sometime during World War II. And it's on this mission that he and this other gentleman, this other naval diver, see her dolphin. This platinum blonde vision dressed like a girl who's a mix of hee-haw and Rima the jungle girl. <laughs> Dolphin, as, as it turns out, couldn't speak very well, but the ship's doctor said that she was intelligent and also noted that she couldn't breathe air very easily. He does also call attention to her webbed hands and feet. And it doesn't matter to Chris that there are any sort of physical differences here. He is swooning. He says, I've never, I'd never seen a girl like her before. She was so physical. She wasn't concerned with stupid things that bother you and me. She was just there like an animal. And all of the women before her were so hung up. Okay, so that's... Chris likes a blank slate. I guess. Um, she's only on the ship a couple of days, and uh, then it turns out that Chris has to go on this dangerous mission to recover those documents. And then uh, Dolphin ends up helping him out, and they survive. It turns out Dolphin's not at all scared by this dangerous mission, but uh, she is bothered by the quote-unquote regular people. And then she then turns away from Chris and returns to the sea. 
Chris immediately assumes that the problem is with him. Not that Dolphin might have, have any needs or wants of her own. It's something he's done. Naturally. So, uh, <laughs> about a year later, Chris is in Singapore, and he tells his, his sob story to a swab, another sailor. And uh, two, as he describes them, very weird guys who are in reality two beefy sailors in very tight shirts. <laughs> Come up to Chris and say, hey, please tell us more about this quest for Dolphin. And then they tell him, you know what, man? You need to continue this quest because she's, quote unquote, desired. And then they roofie him. <laughs> and then he wakes up on the shore three days later with a new tattoo and a new obsession. He's got to find that Dolphin. Which, raise your hand if you haven't been there. <laughs> what tattoo did you get, Ryan? Did you get a little green squiggly? No, it actually says shag. <laughs> shag or shagged? <laughs> um, anyway, so he's got his new mission. It's, it's an all-consuming mission, so he ends up leaving his family, his commission, everything, to scour the globe to find Dolphin. Now we're back in the present. Chris says it's been 20 years, which firmly places us in 1988, since he's last seen her. But he's shattered because now he's an old man of 50. You hear that, Rob Kelly? An old man of 50, and yet she's still young. So then Dr. Riley... <laughs> Every every woman in this story is not treated with any intelligence because she immediately takes the weird guy back to her place. <laughs> and, then, and now it's her turn for an origin story. She's only been at Ocean World for about seven years, and she's working on her advanced cetacean studies, which is a study of dolphins and whales. Thank you, Star Trek Four. She was out on a boat when she saw a huge pod of dolphins. By the way, the story says school. I believe they're pods, right, Ryan? Um, I think actually there's multiple, and this is coming from Nathaniel Hubbard of the Teen Titans Wasteland podcast. I think there are three or four acceptable collective plurals for dolphins. Okay. I've heard pod and school, and I've heard them both used more or less correctly, so eh, I'm not going to fight with that one. All right, moving on. So they discover dolphin, the girl, locked in battle with a shark, because the shark has taken out a number of dolphins. And uh, there's dolphin corpses everywhere, but our hero dolphin is beating the hell out of the shark. But at some risk to her, because although she fights off the predator, she sustained some serious injuries in the process. Dolphin's wounds were treated by Dr. Riley, but she also notices dolphin's webbed hands and feet and these small, almost invisible gills on her throat. Dolphin recovers quickly and displays some amazing feats of strength to Dr. Riley. And again, Dr. Riley notes that she's smart, but doesn't speak very well. But Dolphin manages to pick up some sign language and indicates a region in the Atlantic Ocean that she calls home. And as it turns out, Dolphin is still very much the sweet and simple girl that Chris Landau had left behind. It turns out that Riley had uh, reached out to somebody called Professor Ben Harkey to discover what's in the region that Dolphin calls home. And why is this important to Chris, Ryan? Because it turns out Chris knew Ben Harkey. Ben Harkey was also on that original diving expedition with Chris. And Harkey did some uh, looking of his own and found the remains of an underwater military or scientific base of operations for aliens. <laughs> now, this is where the story loses me, Ryan, because this is hard for Riley to accept. <laughs> now, keep in mind that the premier superhero of the DC Universe at this time, even post-crisis, is Superman, whom I believe is well known to be an alien, yes? That shouldn't be the point that strains credulity in this story. <laughs> But don't worry, there'll be more. There'll be plenty more. So Harky, Harky should review the Zupruder film because he pieces together Dolphin's past through pretty much no evidence whatsoever. He figures out that the aliens landed on Earth sometime during World War II and captured humans for experimentation, possibly gene splicing with some aquatic creatures, hence Dolphin. Some people were snatched from an American warship torpedoed by the Japanese. Among the survivors, a little girl, a girl whose name we will never learn, sadly. Harky finds that most of the human subjects either went mad or died. 
I don't know how he knows that they went mad, but that's not important. But for some reason, Dolphin survived. Maybe it was her youth. Nobody knows. But they also never know what the aliens were planning or why they deserted their base. But Harky has surmised that one of the altered creatures somehow went berserk and tore the base apart, and this allowed Dolphin to free herself and escape. So she survived in the wild somehow, in the wilds of the ocean, with dolphins as her friends. And also because of the aliens tinkering, she doesn't age normally. Dolphin had told Riley that she discovered her old boat's wreckage, and that she found a connection to it, and she started wearing clothes like people do in the photo. People who dress like Daisy Duke, or <laughs> people from Gator Bay, too. Cajun and that's. <laughs> that's when Chris first saw her and she hadn't been around humans very long at that point she'd maybe only been alive for about 20 years Riley also points out that Chris's tattoo is familiar to her and Chris freaks out because how could she know about this well it turns out Riley saw this very same tattoo on Dolphin and Harky saw it in all the humans that were experimented upon by the aliens and what Riley figures out is that it's probably a brand of some sort so Chris panics those overly friendly roofing sailors must be aliens. And Chris fears that he must have been experimented on too. But Riley says, no, you know what? They were probably human agents for the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this story. And since that, he was making it known that he knew and cared for Dolphin, he must have been programmed to search for their most successful experiment. This leads Chris to freak out yet again. He thinks his life has been a waste and he's spent it playing a bloodhound. And then he faints and collapses on Riley's couch. Possibly the next day, the sun's out. He's walking around Ocean World, and who runs straight into him, Ryan? Right into him. Ryan. Oh, Miss Gatorbait herself. Yes, Dolphin. <laughs> Only she's wearing a swimsuit now with a dolphin on it, in case you weren't sure. And they're eye to eye, and she just looks at him, and then she runs away and dives into a pool, near a nearby pool. Riley sees this and runs to Chris. Chris says that his obsession is gone. He's fine. Dolphin didn't even recognize him. And then he says... He asked the question that the readers probably been asking themselves the entire time they're reading this. Why? What now? He's found her. What were the aliens? What do the aliens want? What do they do? Where are they? Dr. Riley, again, infinite wisdom, says, they're probably gone. And then she said that she took a big chance by letting Dolphin be in the show, but she was too alive to keep her hidden forever. So Chris is pleased he has his life back. Riley suggests that Chris get in touch with old Ben Harkey, and that because old Ben Harkey can vouch for Chris's diving skills. And that's how it ends. Dolphin swims in the pool. Chris and Riley got the open future. Chris, it's your life now, says Dr. Riley. Yeah, Chris says, my life. I like the sound of that. And that's the end. That's 17 pages and 10 bucks I'm not getting back. <laughs> the story was titled Reflections of a Deep Fantasy. The story and art were credited to Bove. I believe that's Steve Bove. Uh, the yeah. script itself was by Richard Bruning. Uh, Keith Stan Wilson helped out on inking the art. It was edited by Michael Yuri, who came in to be the editor for this final issue. Although there is a special thanks credit to both Mark Wade, who I imagine was probably like the one who's organizing everybody and getting them the assignments. There's also a special thanks credit to Tom Joyner. I have no idea why. Um, Who's that? Do you know? He, he's a writer. He's a comic book writer, but I don't oh. think he he didn't do a lot of like stuff for DC until after this point. Uh, he did do one secret origin story. I believe it was the the secret origin of Kangorilla back in issue forty. Uh, and the only commonality I know is Kangorilla and Dolphin were both some of the forgotten heroes. Maybe Tom Joyner was originally supposed to write the story, and maybe some of the story was actually his idea, and then he had to leave the project at some point. That's just speculation. I can't think of any other reason he would have gotten the credit for it or the special thanks credit. Um. <laughs> 
I liked the first couple pages of this story. <laughs> the and other 15 were poop. It, well, when they were sticking close with the original story, when they were referencing the material from showcase number 79, uh, I, I found this, uh, it's it's kind of a classic, it's a nice mermaid story, basically. It's, you know, sailors, you know, go down, they find this magical woman who can breathe under there. She's beautiful, she's captivating. He becomes obsessed with her and he sees her again after 20 years and she hasn't changed. There's this whole mystery thing. I, I'm digging that whole, his, his obsession with her and how he's kind of like lost half of his life life to just thinking about this person that is so kind of fantastical that nobody else would really believe him that she exists. I love that whole idea. I like that story. But a little bit more than halfway or a little bit before we get to the halfway point, they start telling their own new story and they introduce all these new elements, which include, okay, she was created by aliens. Okay, that's fine. That's not, I mean, like I said, why should I have any harder time believing that than he would in a world of the DC universe? Right. It kind of seems like you're playing kind of double mumbo jumbo in terms of you're like introducing two science fiction or fantasy elements into the same kind of character. And they, they, but I, I don't have a problem with saying that she was part of, she was the one survivor of some kind of alien genetic manipulation. I'm fine with that. But the idea that these alien agents are still out there looking for her, posing as people, and like branding people with tattoos and sending him off on this mission to find her, that is a big deal. And at the end, they're just kind of like, well, they probably gave up. Or it probably doesn't matter. Right, well, those weren't, she figures those sailors weren't aliens. They were just humans. Yeah, like, yeah, they're human agents or something. Yeah. there's a ton of backstory here that we don't even get firsthand. We don't get it like visualized. Like it's it's told to him from a woman who heard it from another guy who's Landau's friend. Why isn't Ben Harkey the other character in the story? We could have had the two guys who found her originally telling two different parts of her story. That's true. Good so point. A lot of this story is like second and third hand exposition and it's like, why are they telling the story this particular way? And surmising. Like, ah, yeah. he figures that this happened. <laughs> yeah. And it's possible that this is the explanation. Yeah. They probably went crazy and died. Because, you know, if I woke up in a fish tank and I was half shark, I would go crazy and die. So I'm just going to assume that that's what happened to all of the other people that were captured by these aliens. Yeah, this was a... Thank you for... On, on the eve of the... <laughs> of, of, you, of you calling it quits on this thing. Thank you for... Um, <laughs> Choosing me for this. <laughs> Can we talk about uh, one of the other stories? No. Let's talk about how Secret Origins is really in love with Dick Grayson because this is what his like third story. It is. <laughs> but uh, no. but um, let's talk about on page fifty of the book um, when you mention how this woman is just all too willing to bring this crazy guy back to her house. Like let him. He sleep grabs her all by the way. Like he's he, always like grabbing her by the shoulder. He's the really handsy when he's desperate. And there's like a coloring mistake where when he's on the beach and he kind of like sinks down, it looks like he's groping her, but they color his hand white like it's part of her jacket. Oh yeah. That's his power. <laughs> Turn into a jacket. It's sad because I'll, I mean, clearly the guy has, as you get older, like he, you begin to identify mental issues that probably aren't you know, pat, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and this is handled so kind of off the cuff, like, oh, you know what? Your obsession, the fact that you've pretty much lived your life like an addict for the last 20 years, mm-hmm. it's all just cured because you found her and she didn't recognize you. But it's good. It's good. It's a bad, it's a bad story, Ryan. Yeah, I know. And it's a weird obsession because of the age difference by the time that we meet him. 
that he's yeah. in love with this girl who's so alive and so physical and doesn't seem to have any hang-ups like those other chicks man yeah doesn't seem to have kind of like a personality of her own and like completely <laughs> unformed and unmoulded like he could make her into whatever he wants it's like Okay, I get why he feels that way. I'm not sure if this is a guy I want to spend time with. Who needs a Gabby chick, Ryan? Come <laughs> on, you need a girl who can barely sign with her webbed hands and webbed feet. And she's not going to bother you on the surface world for more than five, six hours at a time. You know what I mean? She's got to return to the depths, to her mistress, the sea. So yeah, no, it's, um, there's very little to like about the people in the story. And by the way, Dolphin, an interesting idea, doesn't even feel like the star of her own story. It really feels like Charles's story. Yeah. No, Chris's story. Sorry, Chris's story. Yeah. And that's horrible for, for a 15-page thing that's supposed to be a secret origin of Dolphin. See, I think a guy like Neil Gaiman could have handled this pretty well. This is the sort of story he tells, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's a kind of a second. Uh, did you ever read Miracle Man, The Golden Age? No. It's worth checking out. The main characters, the Miracle Man, Miracle Woman, Kid Miracle Man, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah. They don't really appear in the story. I mean, they appear in the stories, but all the stories are told through other people's points of view living on this world with these gods, right? Mm-hmm. Very interesting approach to doing it because while they make appearances, they're not necessarily the focus of the story. Or if they are the focus of the story, they're not driving it necessarily. This could have been something like that. Like, here's this guy who's, well, obsessive. I was going to say enamored, but it sort of falls beyond that. Mm-hmm. With the woman that he's met for two days. You know, it could have been like Splash. Like, Splash is an interesting, well, it's this story, right? A kid sees a mermaid, yep. can't get her out of his head for 20 years, like, really just obsesses with it. Sees her again, his life is turned upside down, decides to become a merman. It could have been something similar to this, where he's your vehicle into understanding this, this person and this world. But it, they just eschew that, and they make it about, like, a guy suffering from some form of, I don't know, PTSD or something. And, and uh, Jenny Exposition, <laughs> in the form of uh, Dr. Riley. Who just happens to have all the answers and fill in the blanks. And there's no story. There's no, there's no question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Because I, like, as, you're, as you're talking about it, I'm, I'm realizing that... You're watching Splash? Well, no, I actually had Splash on my recommended viewings. No, no joke. Dolphin isn't really a character. She's barely an object in this. She's just sort of like background because, okay, if Chris Landau is our main character, then what is his problem? Okay, he's obsessed with her, he needs to find her, and he needs to get over this obsession because it's been haunting him for two decades. We have the woman, Riley, here who gives him all of this information, tells him all he needs to know, gives him all his answers... And then at the end, he sees Dolphin. She doesn't really acknowledge him or remember him, and then she leaves. And it seems like that's enough to stem... Like, I don't know how that moment of them interacting is a catharsis for him. I don't know how that breaks him of his obsession with her. And if it doesn't, if you could take that scene out of it, then does, like, just talking to Riley and getting the whole story from her, would that have been enough for him to kind of get better? And if that's the case, then you didn't need Dolphin in the story in the present tense at all. It's it's a weird piece, the way it treats her. I don't know if they had any ideas for her afterwards. I'm assuming no, because this doesn't... Uh, You're I mean, upset. I, I just... I. <laughs> I wanted to like this story, because I I think at its heart, it is a good, interesting story about a character who has this obsession, who saw this miraculous thing that he's been in love with and chasing for most of his life. But I just think the story is told in a not very well way, and maybe that's just on on the creative team. And the storyteller, the main guy behind it, Bove, 
I don't think he was a, a writer or a normal comics artist. If it's the guy I'm thinking of, he was a designer and he was in DC's production office. He actually did a lot of work on like logos and fonts for characters. He designed a, a, a logo for Firestorm the Nuclear Man beginning with like issue 65. He designed the logo and the, like the title head for World of Krypton for John Constantine Hellblazer. Like, that was kind of his purview. That's what he was doing at DC for years. So, yeah. I don't know, maybe if he was just trying to stretch his legs, if he asked for this, if he was like, I want to do, I want to draw one story, you know, give me, give me a project to kind of like test. And they were like, okay, well, there's Dolphin. Nobody cares about Dolphin. See what you can do. I want to say he did the, I don't want to step on anyone's toes or spoil anything, but I want to say he did the illustration for the loose leaf entry for Dolphin. So she got, I mean, she even got that. Oh, did she? Um, okay. And for the who's who loose leaf, not very far cry from Dave Stevens. Even the cover hates her, Ryan, because <laughs> she's one of the main characters and her back's to us. Well, um, uh, the way Ty Templeton draws her back. She's a love. Like, look, you can still tell that she's very attractive, <laughs> but Batman gets more service on this thing than you don't know who she is. She's not recognizable at all. And she's completely taken out of her element on the cover. It's a good cover, but I'm just saying from her character's perspective, she's on land, I guess, or she's on a comic page or something, but you know, she's not in water. Her back's to us. You can't see her face. It could be angel from angel in the ape for all you know. (laughs) Oh, I wish there should be, you know what? Why isn't there a Rima angel and a dolphin team up? And you don't know who's who you just (laughs) throwing all the, all the women with white hair. Silver Sable from Spider-Man's World. Uh, oh, yeah. There's got to be more, right? It's guitarist or something, probably, or whatever yeah, the Warlord t- plays. Yeah, there are tons. Yeah. There are so many. Yeah. Um, overall, the story didn't bother me that much. I mean, I didn't come away from it like hating it. I didn't regret reading the story or anything. I thought there was a good, interesting story to be had here, but... It told me a lot of things instead of showing me. It gave me a lot of conclusions without setting them up with realistic questions or answers. And it didn't really focus on Dolphin. It didn't make me want to read more about her. So in those realms, it's a failure. Um, But it's not a horrible failure. It's just kind of, meh. It's a noble failure. Yeah, yeah. What did you think? What were your overall... I hated it. Um, (laughs) I think... um, like I, I don't. Okay, first of all, I don't know if it's fair to compare it to her showcase presents appearance, which is a, a it's an odd like little love story. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you get to read it, it's it's like it's like one of those classic romance books or tales, I should say. And the this is the flip side of that. It's like the Watcher version of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 just it's creepier. They're trying to add, like you said, they're trying to add all the sci-fi elements that are completely. It's all conjecture, right? It's just too many unanswered questions that they just try to quickly gloss over because they're running out of pages. And uh, if they had just retold that 15-page story, that would have been that would have made more sense. Now, unless this was supposed to be a springboard for something else, that we have no idea if, if Dolphin was supposed to get some sort of mini or maybe was supposed to be introduced in something prior to her involvement in the Aquaman book, then maybe this kind of makes sense. But it's still it's 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 crappy. I haven't read that original story. I've read a description of it. It's beautiful. It's basically yeah. It's it's an expansion of like the first of like pages like two through five or whatever in the story. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I didn't appreciate it at the time. But since he's <laughs> since he's left, I, I kind of wish Roy Thomas would have just adapted that story for this last issue. I think. Oh, now you like Roy Thomas, huh? Gosh, shut up. <laughs> Interesting. Huh, Roy Thomas. 
He or, made you quit this, right? Or someone else who <laughs> would have had a similar approach and would have just treated the story as basically just like adapt and make, expand that original story, but don't deviate too much. We don't need to throw aliens into the mix. Just keep it as a, a classical mermaid fantasy story. Or a mutant. Like, yeah, she could have been a mutant or some right, Atlantis. Right, you already have that world built here. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like yeah, a, was, another Lamaris or whatever. Yeah, there was a, a ship crash during like World War II or something. There could have been some sort of weird radiation spill or something, anything. Yeah. But. Well, thanks for this one, man. I'm glad to go out on this show on such a high note. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that we got you back one more time for a story that you hated. Yeah, I didn't like the other one either. So we're, we're good. We're two for two. Tell us more about High Fidelity. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not your fault. I love, listen, as, uh, as my parting words on the show, I, I thought this was a very good, I, I loved, I was a little skeptical of the premise, by the way. Um, I, uh, Shag had told me, you really need to listen to Ryan Daly's show. And this is, bef- I think uh, you'd already been four episodes in or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, ah, because I've read I've read all these Secret Origins as they came out years ago, and I I thought, well, there's really nothing new, you know what I mean? <laughs> that 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 I'm probably going to learn or really going to get me. But I have to say, with your series of rotating guests, you've you you not you uh you found something really good, and uh, you you had a very good show going for a while. <laughs> for a while. Well, you ended it. I mean, you're ending it. That's true. I'm walking so, away on my terms. It's finite. But uh, no, you, I think you did great, man. Thank you very much. Secret Origin of Ryan Daly. Let's see. So he has a mohawk and he dances <laughs> sexy to Prince. The true. Um, that's I'm skeptical, but um, hates Roy Thomas. And uh, debatable. <laughs> but no, those actually, you know what? That's what got me uh, listening. Were the uh, where I think I think you had a couple of guests that were really. Forgive me if, if I'm getting this wrong, but I think it might have been Van Z and Chris Franklin. And those are really stick guys who are really sticklers for Golden Age stuff, right? I think like they were just hardcore, like, no, this is right. And you were kind of like, eh, Roy Thomas, you can suck it. <laughs> and uh, so that's actually what, got, what kept me interested was, was opposing viewpoints. But speaking of Roy Thomas, as you know, Ryan, I do do some uh, investigative journalism every now and again. Mm-hmm. And I write for Emmys.com. And... I uh, I may or may not have asked him what his thoughts were on your show. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, you know he's a fan of the classics, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I may or may not have gotten this message back from him. And this is to the tune of putting on the Ritz. Because oh, he likes the oldies. <laughs> I made my mark with Earth 2. After Crisis, I may do. Multiverse, it made us care. Distinguish us from Marvel Fair. Bye bye, Green Arrow, Superman. Yellow gloved Aquaman. Infinite Earths was a crime. No more team ups through space and time. Why don't you like how I make dots connect to Crimson Avenger and Sandman fit? <laughs> Suck a bag of dicks. Robin One and Robo Man are gray sun. See how it all must tightly fit. Suck a bag of dicks. See, it's me who squares this whole thing right side. I've called Greg Brooks to treat you like his last bride. She died. You'll be fixed just for kicks. Quit calling attention to my obsessive bag of tricks. Suck a bag of dicks. Clip your line just like the GA Fury. I'll make quick work of you in such a hurry. Northwind flurry. I'll make you think young all stars and infinity ink were pretty sick.
Suck a bag of dick. <laughs> I'm so glad you quit. Got your ovid writ. Suck a bag of dicks. That's what he may be sent. <laughs> okay. I'm going to assume that is his word on the podcast. <laughs> that is directly from Roy Thomas's mouth. Into yours. From his mouth into yours. <laughs> wow. Um... That took some doing, man. Like that was there was a lot of push and pull. You know what I mean? A lot of emails back and forth. Like, I don't know, David. Uh, I really hate Ryan Daly. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Thank you for um so called working with him and, and teasing that out of him, I'm sure. Um that was amazing. Who um, knew he was so foul mouthed? <laughs> I guess I brought that out of him. <laughs> or, or it was your influence. Um, that was terrific. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where we can go from there. So I think you should go into hiding. Yeah. Like Greg Brooks? Come on. <laughs> Dude, why did you invoke that? I didn't. Ray or Tom, Roy Thomas wrote the, the Crimson. He knows Greg Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um... Recommended readings for Dolphin. If you can find Showcase 79, her first appearance, check that out. Rent the movie Splash. Um, Little Mermaid. Yeah, the Little Mermaid. I mean, Mermaid. Borrows certain elements, I would say, were, were pretty similar, like uh, yeah. finding the uh, buried ship and ki- kind of adopting Earth life, not Earth, land lifestyle from that thing. Yeah. Um, the whole Aquaman run from the 90s that Peter David started and Dan Jurgens finished, all those issues are available on Comicsology. Dolphin was a big part of that series for a while. You can get those if you want them. David, where else can people find you online if they want to hear more from you, aside from when you're doing your investigative reporting and writing for Emmys and, and soliciting vaguely failed death threats via song? <laughs> hey, listen, I cleaned it up. Oh, there was There was one about you being shivved. It was not. Oh, man. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, I should be making an appearance soon on this network again on um, Give Me That Star Trek. And uh, Shag has this long gestating show that I did with him from Gallifrey 1. That was last February. Gallifrey 1 2017 is coming up soon. So you'll probably hear it long after Shag and I attend the next show. And I know Rob wants to have me back on um, Film and Water to discuss some some more movies and our days at the video store. Well, David, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast one more time. It was great talking to you. Thank you for your part on this episode. And I apologize. I don't play blue. So that (laughs) I'm embarrassed. You you sound like it. (laughs) I'm going to go into hiding, too. Uh, All right, listeners, we are going to take another promo break, collect ourselves When we come back, the man himself, Rob Kelly, will be here to help me tell the story of Black Canary. It's a story written by Alan Brennert. Who else did you think was going to be on that segment? So are we going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film and Water podcast covers movies new and old, classic, and uh, not-so-classic. Proud member of the Fire and Water podcast network, available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.
story in the final issue of Secret Origins is actually the very first story in this series I ever reviewed. Back on June 25th, 2014, I covered the origin of Black Canary on my fan blog Flowers and Fishnets. That post received zero comments. Two years and three months later, I revisit Black Canary's origin, but this time I know I'll get some feedback because I've enlisted one of my first and best friends in the podcasting sphere. On April 11th, 2014, two months and two weeks before I reviewed Black Canary's secret origin, I received an email from Rob Kelly asking me to take part in the Fire and Water podcast's milestone 100th episode. That was my first real podcast appearance. So you might say that everything I've done since then, every episode of Secret Origins, every episode of Power of Fishnets and Flowers and Fishnets before that, every episode of Give Me Those Star Wars and Dead Bath and Spies, every appearance on G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, every guest spot on Fire and Water, Film and Water, Pod Dylan, Supermates, Justice League International, Saturday Morning Fever, Council of Geeks, Head Speaks, Task Force X, the Marvel Superheroes podcast, Is It Jaws? Back to the Bins, Views from the Long Box, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Quarterbin podcast, and the Lantern cast. Everything I have done that started with Fire and Water episode 100, you could say it was all Rob Kelly's fault. If that is the case, then the first thing I want to tell Rob is thank you for many things. And also thank you for being my guest once again on the Secret Origins podcast. How are you today? 
What an intro. Thank you so much. Uh, much like how Shag takes credit for Give Me Those Star Wars in the promo, <laughs> I guess I get credit for everything. Everything. Which is fantastic. I love it. And before we get going, I really, everyone who's listening, really you do have to apologize for that previous Dolphin segment. I, that was rough to get through. <laughs> I, I'm just, we're, we'll, we'll do much better here with the Black Canary stories. We'll of that I am confident. Uh, this is your fifth regular appearance, so Yay! you get the jacket. Five-timers club! <laughs> Five-timers club. got it in just under the wire. Exactly. Congratulations, you do get the jacket. It's nice. Um, it's very nice. It's sad. It's got the Secret Origins logo on the back. It doesn't fit me because I'm a lot thinner than I was when we first started the show, but but thank you anyway. I really like it. It's all that 5 a.m. running you do while listening to the show. That's right. That's right. I listen to your show while I do it on Mondays. It's perfect. Yeah. So let's not pretend that you're here because you're a diehard Black Canary fan. Why did you want to talk about this particular secret origin? Well, I asked to be in on this one because it is written by Alan Brennert. And for all of you who are tired of hearing me go on and on and on about Alan Brennert, you're just going to have to put up with it a little longer. (laughs) I think you do get to brag about it for a little bit longer because they released a hardcover collection of his work in no small part because of your talking. Well, I I don't want to take too much credit, although I did mention that very thing on the show. (laughs) But yeah, no, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I sort of was beating the drum for Alan Brennert as a, a retrospective of the man's work in comics kind of early on. I've been that way ever since I started blogging. So I'm very proud of that fact because I think Alan is one of the great writers. This story uh, only uh, underscores that. And uh, I'm very proud that that people now have come back and recognize it. And I'm I'm glad the stuff is uh, in perpetuity. You know what I mean? You can get it as a a book as opposed to having to hunt down old back issues. And as a Black Canary fan, or according to Twitter, as the Black Canary fan, uh, I'm really glad that this story is collected and that this appears in such a prestigious collection yep um okay let's get into black canary herself what is your experience your reading history with that character I'm feeling really familiar with the through Justice League, you know. Uh, I like her just fine, you know. I'm not, like, not a fan. Uh, so I liked her as a member of the JLA. I thought she brought a, a lot of, you know, like a different perspective. I liked the whole thing with her and Green Arrow being, like, a couple inside of the JLA. I mean, he had Hawkman and Hawkgirl, too, of course. But I liked, uh, as a kid, you know, I sort of liked the, the sort of, like, uh, the spiciness of their relationship. They hinted at things, you know, here and there <laughs> with their relationship that, that, as a kid, I was like, what are they doing? Why is Green Arrow sleeping on the couch? Uh they have no. a very adult and sexual relationship. They they and we see that in the first page of the story. Yeah. We're gonna Alan, about. This is Alan Brenner writing Penthouse Forum here. <laughs> is this, this story. Uh, no, I was like, Black Canary just fine. And then years down the line, after I really started going to comic shops regularly, I picked up the Alex Toth two-parter mm-hmm. from Adventure Comics, which blew my mind. I mean, that is just my favorite Black Canary story. And like, you know, that's one of those things where I'm like, if they had done this as a regular Black Canary comic... I would have bought this every month. Like, it was so good, and it made Black Canary so interesting and everything else. So uh, I always liked her. And, you know, when the Detroit League got founded, I was disappointed that Dead GA and Black Canary didn't stick around. Uh, I always thought that Black Canary had the potential to be like – I don't mean this as, a, as an insult, but like a Batman light. Mm-hmm. Where just a more, a more lighthearted and fun to be around Batman, but she could be like a trainer. I mean, could that, probably because in that one story in um, JLA 189, where it opens up with her putting Firestorm through a bunch of training exercises. So I really liked that idea, and I always thought there was kind of more potential for her, which, of course, did not get explored because they booted her out of the JLA. But uh, I always thought there was a, a lot going on there. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, for listeners to know more about my own reading history with the character, it is long. I've explained a lot on the first episode of Power of Fishnets, on the first episode of Flowers and Fishnets. But in short, the reason I kind of gravitated toward this character was kind of necessity. Um, I was following Aquaman Shrine. I was following the Firestorm fan blog. I was following Frank's idol head of Diablo, Luke Giaconetti's being Carter Hall, Hawkman blog. I wanted to, you know, follow to dive in and gravitate towards one specific character from this realm of the DC and particularly the Justice League characters. And she was one that was available. <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> you could do a lot worse. I certainly could. And once I started digging her, then I was like, okay, with Black Canary, I can read classic satellite-era Justice League stories. I can also go way back and read Justice Society stories. I can read crime espionage Birds of Prey stories. There's just so much to this character. Uh, and we'll see that as a natural sort of segue into her publication history, which I will get into. The Black Canary was created by writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino in 1947 as a femme fatale in the Johnny Thunder strip of Flash Comics 86. Note, that's the moron Johnny Thunder that I covered back in episode 13, <laughs> not the western Johnny Thunder that Michael Bailey and I talked about an hour ago. Black Canary went on to guest star in the Johnny Thunder strips of Flash Comics 87, 88, 90, and 91. Starting with Flash Comics 92, Black Canary received her own regular feature replacing Johnny Thunder. Yay! <laughs> and with this ongoing strip came a secret identity of her own, as well as a job and supporting cast slash love interest. Black Canary stories by Kaniger and Infantino would continue to appear in every issue of Flash Comics until the series was cancelled with issue 104 in December of 1948. Concurrent with her stories in Flash Comics, Black Canary started appearing in the Justice Society of America's adventures in All-Star Comics, beginning with issue 38. After two more guest appearances, she was officially awarded membership with the team in All-Star Comics number 41, and would stay with that series until it, too, was cancelled with issue 57 in 1950. That would be her last appearance until 1963, at which point she would appear twice a year in the regular JLA-JSA crossovers in Justice League of America. In 1969, following the death of her husband during one of these crossovers, Black Canary left the Justice Society of Earth-2 to join the Justice League of Earth-1 in Justice League of America issue 75. She would stay with the team, appearing in most of the next 150 issues of Justice League of America until the team was oh, let's say restructured in 1984. Sure, that's a good word for it. Back in 1970, though, only a few months after she came to Earth-1, Black Canary started appearing in Green Lantern, Green Arrow. She formed a romantic relationship with Green Arrow that would define much of the rest of her publication history. After Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Black Canary spent the 1970s and early 80s appearing in backup strips, either by herself or with the Emerald Archer, in Action Comics, World's Finest Comics, and Detective Comics. Shortly before the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Black Canary's history was altered, and I am not going to try to explain it here. Instead, <laughs> I will just say that after the crisis, DC established that Black Canary was actually Black Canaries, plural. The woman kicking ass with the Justice Society of America in the 1940s and 50s was Dinah Drake Lance. The woman who joined the Justice League and dated Green Arrow was Dinah Laurel Lance, the daughter of the original. The details of this mother-daughter relationship were dished out slowly over the course of years, with this very origin we're about to cover really cementing the post-crisis Black Canary continuity. 
also taking place right after the crisis, Black Canary appeared in the Legends crossover event and then became a founding member of Justice League International. Unfortunately, she was removed from that team and the Greater DC Spotlight to appear in Mike Grell's Green Arrow series, where she was depowered and decostumed for much of the late 80s. In 1991, Black Canary finally got her own self-titled miniseries, and then in 1993, an ongoing series that lasted 12 issues. Still, what might be Black Canary's biggest role to date came in the mid-90s when she teamed up with the former Batgirl Barbara Gordon to form the all-girl espionage book Birds of Prey. From one-shot to miniseries to ongoing series, Black Canary starred in Birds of Prey throughout the late 90s into the aughts and the start of the 21st century. After Infinite Crisis, she rejoined the Justice League of America and even became chairwoman for a time. She married Green Arrow, which did not end well. In 2011, she starred in the terrible New 52 version of Birds of Prey. Then, during the DCU phase, Black Canary was reimagined as the frontwoman of a rock band in her second 12-issue solo series. As of DC Rebirth, she is back to appearing in Green Arrow's series. Rob, aside from cameos, aside from the two issues in Adventure Comics that you mentioned, were there any other major Black Canary stories that I left out? I don't think so. I think you got everything. I remember the stuff she did with Green Arrow and World's Finest. I remember reading that stuff, too, which I really enjoyed, like Mike Nasser drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those were good stories. So, yeah, I've always yeah, – other than the Birds of Prey, I've followed most of the stuff you're talking about, and it was pretty good. My plan, once I'm done with this series, is to get back to uh, Power of Fishnets and to really cover some of those World's Finest backup strips. But that's the plan. We'll see how <laughs> – we'll right. see if it goes. All right. You ready to hear me dive into the story? I am ready. Unfinished Business is written by Alan Brenner, penciled by Joe Staten, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by Todd Klein, and colored by Julia Lockman. Michael Urie edited the story, which gives Mark Wade a special thanks to credit for bringing the creatives together for the story before he left the series. Also of note, the story acknowledges the works of Robert Kaniger, Gardner Fox, Jerry Conway, Paul Levitz, Frank Miller, Mike Barr, Denny O'Neill, and Mike Grell. The story opens with Dinah Laurel Lance in bed with Oliver Queen because all they ever did was have sex or talk about sex during this era. Ollie is giving Dinah a deep back massage when the phone rings. Dinah's mother, Dinah Drake Lance, is in a coma in Gotham General Hospital. The senior Dinah probably won't survive the night. Her daughter, meanwhile, is frantic about being 3,000 miles away and helpless to get across the country before time runs out. Ollie promises she'll get to the hospital on time and then makes a difficult phone call. In a relatively short amount of time, like really only 28 minutes, Hal Jordan has carried Dinah and Ollie to Gotham General using the Green Lantern power ring. The ring is also able to scan Dinah Drake's vital signs and locate her room number. Dinah Laurel rushes on ahead to see her mother while the former hard-traveling heroes sort out their personal business. Ollie thanks Hal for coming to help Dinah even after Ollie was such a jackass when Hal needed him. And I'm not exactly sure to which instance Ollie is referring in this scene, because from what we know of Hal, he's always needed a lot of help, and from what we know of Ollie, he's always been a dick. Whatever the case, Hal says he's always been Dinah's friend too, and then he goes off to find someone else he thinks should be there with Dinah, while reminding Ollie that no matter how strong she is, no one can handle losing a parent. When Ollie rejoins Dinah, she's meeting with her mom's attending physician, a doctor who claims to have interned with the original Dr. Midnight and knows all about Black Canary's membership with the Justice Society. He says the elder Dinah, who has had cancer for some time, collapsed at her flower shop. Dinah Laurel remarks that the store was all her mom had after her husband died and she retired from crime fighting. If the flower shop was all Dinah Drake had, that doesn't speak highly of the relationship between mother and daughter. 
Dinah Laurel addresses this when she and Ollie go in to sit with her comatose mother. Dinah and Dinah didn't speak for years, and now they might never speak again. We then flash back to the days of Dinah Drake's youth. A general omniscient narrator guides us through young Dinah growing up with her father, Detective Richard Drake of the Gotham City Police Force. Richard wanted his daughter to be a cop and taught her forensic investigation techniques as well as physical combat. In 1947, just as Dinah was about to join the GCPD, she accompanied her father and his partner, Larry Lance, on a raid on a gambling den. Richard Drake's informant told them that the outfit was supposed to be small-time and ill-equipped to handle the police. As a precaution, though, he tells Dinah to wait outside while he and Larry bust in. The tip was dead wrong about the gang's level of firepower. Richard and Larry are severely outgunned and about to be killed when Dinah sneaked in behind the hoods and took them out with her fancy judo moves. Despite her success breaking up the gang, Dinah was refused admittance as a Gotham police officer. This heartbreak, along with the mounting suspicion of corruption within the GCPD, was too much for Richard, who suffered a fatal heart attack. The dream of serving the police force might have been over for Dinah, but not the cause of justice. Inspired by other mysterious crime fighters like The Flash, Green Lantern, and Dr. Midnight, Dinah donned a mask, costume, and fishnets and set out to smash crime as the Black Canary. As she fights to clean up the underworld, we also learn that Larry Lance grew disillusioned with the police and struck out on his own as a private investigator, and eventually Dinah's lover. We also see Black Canary teaming up with Johnny Thunder and the Thunderbolt, and her joining the legendary Justice Society of America. We then see the Justice Society appearing before HUAC and voluntarily disbanding rather than outing their private identities. Dinah returns to her civilian life and marries Larry Lance. They become partners in Lance and Lance Private Detectives, and over time, Dinah learned more and more how dirty Gotham City had become. In fact, crime in Gotham became so rampant that before long, a new costumed vigilante stepped in to fight it. No, not the vigilante you're thinking of. Not yet. First, it's the Reaper, the skull-masked villain with two scythe gloves from Batman Year 2. The Reaper went around killing bad guys while former Green Lantern Alan Scott tried to call attention to this extremism with his radio show. That wasn't enough, though, and after a while, Alan Scott adopted his old superhero identity. Green Lantern caught the Reaper one night and used the power of his ring to disarm and nearly detain the killer. In desperation, the Reaper flung a pair of wooden nunchucks at Green Lantern. The wood passed through the Green Lantern's four field and struck him in the head, nearly killing him. The rest of the former Justice Society members rallied to Alan Scott at the hospital and put on their costumes once more to avenge their friend. Black Canary did not return to superhero action for long. Dinah and Larry moved to the suburbs and had a daughter, Dinah Laurel Lance, who grew up with the most amazing extended family you could ever imagine. Dinah forbade her daughter from growing up to be a costumed hero like her. She told Dinah Laurel that the world had grown too dark and dangerous for any normal human being to fight crime without superpowers. The appearance of Batman in Gotham City challenged the senior Dinah's position. Dinah Laurel began training in secret at her uncle Ted Grant's gym. One night, Ted told Dinah that her mother was right to worry about the bleakness of the world they live in. Ted then recounted a heartbreaking story about getting his girlfriend Irina pregnant. They eventually had a son named Jake. But one of Wildcat's forgettable Golden Age villains, Yellow Wasp, learned about Jake's existence and kidnapped the boy. Ted never found his son. He asked Dinah Laurel one more time if this was the kind of life she wanted to get involved in, but her resolve was as steely as ever. 
Eventually, Dinah Drake discovered her daughter training behind her back. Mother and daughter shouted at each other about trust and violating trust until Dinah Laurel manifested a sonic scream with concussive force. The origins of Dinah's metahuman canary cry are not made explicit. The Doctor's fate and midnight surmise her powers arose from constant exposure to magic or radiation or magic radiation from growing up with the Justice Society. With this superhuman power, Dinah Laurel Lance took on her mother's former guise as Black Canary and joined the new generation of heroes called the Justice League of America. We then get a rapid succession of the new Black Canary's early adventures, such as falling in love with Green Arrow, mothering Ollie's sidekick Roy Harper, as he fights heroin addiction, and lying in bed with Ollie, telling him she doesn't want kids of her own. We also glimpse one of the annual team-ups of the Justice League and Justice Society, as well as the ill-fated battle against Aquarius that cost Larry Lance his life. At last, the flashbacks of old and young Black Canaries end, and we return to Dinah Laurel and Ollie in the waiting room of Gotham General. She tells Ollie that her mother never recovered from Larry's death, that she begged Dinah Laurel to hang up the fishnets because the superhero life would cost her everything she loves. Hal Jordan returns with Roy Harper. Roy reminds Dinah that she took care of him when he was at his lowest. The least he could do was return the favor. Dinah remarks that when her mother dies, it will be the end of an era. She's the last Justice Society member left after the others went to Ragnarok in the last days of the Justice Society. Hal tells Ollie that he failed to track down the veteran heroes, and after speaking with Dr. Fate, his heart aches that they're not even resting in peace. The doctor tells Dinah that her mother's vitals are fading and there isn't much time left. Dinah Laurel and her friends gather around Dinah Drake. No one expects the elder Dinah to wake up or speak, but that's exactly what happens after an invisible hand reaches out from another plane and touches her. Dinah Drake regains consciousness long enough to ask for her daughter's forgiveness. She spent too much of their lives fighting about Dinah Laurel following in her footsteps. Dinah Drake was so full of anguish after Larry died, and so full of guilt after her daughter was tortured in the Longbow Hunters. The dying Dinah reveals that the cancer eating away at her was caused by the same power that killed her husband, that the radiation merely took longer to finish her. She admits to being grateful that she's not just another cancer death, and wonders how arrogant that sounds. Pretty arrogant. The last thing she tells her daughter is that she loves her and asks Ollie to take care of her. Then she passes away and her spirit is greeted and comforted by the Spectre, who promises her that she will see Larry and her parents and other forgotten souls in the hereafter. Dinah Laurel Lance asks Ollie to take her home. In time, she will continue the fight for justice as Black Canary, but not tonight. Tonight, she goes home to grieve. All right, Rob, what do you think of this story? Well, I think it's wonderful. Uh, I think it's superb. Put any other superlatives in there you want. The thing, uh, the, one of the things this story does uh, th- that is a hallmark to me of Alan Brennard's work, and this is something he has said, you know, like to me in the episode, uh, I think it's Fire and Water 95, where I interviewed him, where he wants to, and he feels writers should do this in general, he leaves the characters in the same place that he found them. You know, he doesn't break them. I mean, of course, this is the story of writing the death of Black Canary, so that's not the case. But, but in terms of like how he gives you new insights to the characters, but he doesn't ruin them for you. To me, uh, the ultimate example, and this is really more of a wildcat moment, is that speech he has mm-hmm. about the villain who stole his son that you've never heard of. I read that the first time, and it was, it's heartbreaking. And every time I reread it, it's heartbreaking. You just like it's so perfect, but so nasty that i'm just like this is brilliant 
it's just brilliant. And the rest of it is great. And I love the final moment with Black Canary that after all of her turmoil, she gets to go off into basically heaven, right. for lack of a better term. And the specter is there to guide her. And I love his his speech about the winds of creation and rebirth may have wiped your family away, but that they could not wipe your, away their souls. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's just, uh, you know, I mean, every time Alan Brenner wrote a story, I'm like, it's probably going to be great. And it is. <laughs> you know, he just always was. So I think this is a, a really great piece. The only stuff about it that I'm less excited about is where he had to jam in new continuity. And that's not Alan's fault. That was the state of the DC universe. I never liked the Reaper. I never thought that character made, I I just never liked him. And I don't like that he's here, but again, that's not Brenner's fault. That's current continuity. But the rest of it, I think is just superb. It is. It's a dense story. There is a lot in this and it's 24 pages, which is one of the longest individual stories in Secret Origins. The only stories that I know for sure were longer was the Flash Rogue story, where all of the Rogue's origins were kind of lumped into one big story. That was that entire issue. And then the Teen Titans Annual in uh, number three, which was like 80 pages, that was all one story. I think the last one we talked about was the Blackhawk origin was also 24 pages. But certainly they gave Brenner a lot to do for this story. Yeah, this is a full comic. Yeah, I mean, this yeah, is a full comic. Been, yeah. yeah, and he does, he throws so much in there. And you're right, like, I always, I sort of compared this story to the first published origin of Black Canary, which was in like DC Special number 10, that was written by Jerry Conway and drawn by Mike Vosberg. And. I lean towards that old one by Conway and Vosberg just because it's a leaner story. And first of all, he's only dealing with one Black Canary. This is really the story of two. This is a generational saga. Uh, so I, there's not a lot of fat on that original story where this one, he's just, because he has to throw in so much stuff in here, some of it really, really works. And like you said, like the whole, the thing with Wildcat, which. Ugh. It took me a while to figure out why that scene is in this story. Because it's not a Black Canary moment, it's it's a moment for another character, but it does have this representational idea, because this story, what, what Brenner did with this story, and I don't know if this was his intention or if it just sort of shook out this way, but he makes Black Canary sort of the linchpin legacy character of this world. Mm-hmm. I would say even more so than maybe Wally West, because she's talking about two different generations of the premier teams, you know, with the Justice Society and the original Black Canaries on bat, and then the Justice League is the next generation's major premier team, and now you've got a new Black Canary on bat too. And I think Wildcat's speech sort of speaks to what has gone away with the old generation, the sort of innocence, and now they're just in a much darker time. But there's also the previous retcon to Black Canary, which I talked about with Chris Franklin on an episode of uh, Flowers and Fishnets. The origin that Roy Thomas created in Justice League, it dealt with, and it was quickly dismissed by Crisis on Infinite Earths, blessedly so, because it needed to be. But he dealt with this idea that the wizard attacked the younger Dinah when she was right, a baby yeah. and, and specifically targeted her and put this curse on her with the sonic scream. And this led to the family sort of losing her and saying goodbye to her for 20 years. And then that whole switch. So it it sort of feels like, you know, Brenner couldn't use that story because that story doesn't make a lot of sense in the new continuity. And it's, it's good to sort of dismiss that. But I think he gets to that idea of a little bit more of a darker, realistic undercurrent that the villains would actually find out who these people are and target them at their weakest, which is their families. 
So I think Brenner kind of uses that idea of the wizard targeting the infant Dinah and just puts that same idea in a, in a, a heartbreaking spin with the story of Wildcat and his son being kidnapped. Yeah, I, I love the fact that, I mean, the Wildcat doesn't really have any more key villains, mm-hmm. but I love the idea that the villain that does it is this real Mort. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It wasn't like the Joker or, you know, yeah. Lex Luthor or somebody huge. It's like, it's some zero grade villain. And he deals a blow to Wildcat that like shakes up the whole hero universe. Like, you get the idea that that story traveled through the strata of superheroes. Yeah. You know, like that's something they talked about off panel like you heard did you hear what happened you know the way it would in an industry you know what i mean the way that you know i'm sure people within just play football know things about what goes on behind the scenes in football that the rest of us don't know or hollywood or you know anything any industry and it's like that the idea is just sort of so chilling yeah Yeah. and brenner was really good that and something else too i want to mention is i love that his he loves to throw in these sort of human scale things like the whole reason Green Lantern is brought into it is to trek Green Arrow and Black Canary across the country really quickly. And it's like that's such a human scale problem of like I have to get across country immediately and I'm 3000 miles away, which is something every other person would have to deal with. Now, if it was us, we'd have to get on a plane or if it was at a Hollywood movie, you drive in a car with Robert Downey Jr. or something across country. <laughs> but it's like but these people know special people. Yeah. So they could call in this favor. And I love the idea of bringing someone as powerful as Green Lantern to just basically just hitch a ride. That's such a – again, he brings these characters, gives them these very relatable human little dilemmas to fix even though they are, have these incredible world-shaking abilities. And even still, when you have somebody of Green Lantern's power and might huh, – um, <laughs> What can he do? The only thing he can really do is bring the family there right? so that they can bear witness and comfort each other. He can't save her. He can't save Dinah. He can't bring her back from the dead. Like, that's not his place. But he can make sure that they're there to comfort each other and that they can get the the survivors are better taken care of. And I do think that is really profound and important. Something else I think that Brenner likes to do is I feel like – if you look at a, a story where there's like 20 different superheroes fighting and, and they're all in like, you know, the downtown metropolis and then you see like a character walk into like a building in the background and disappear, like Alan Brennert follows that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like all of his stories take place just off, sit off panel to the main action. And I think that's what he's really good. A lot of his stories take place at night. You know, like it seems like they take place in the middle of the, in the middle of the night, like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., where everyone else is asleep. His stories are going on. This is what's going on. And this is that's what this feels like, too, because obviously it opens sort of in the middle of the night. Uh, I like the idea that you're saying Green Arrow is giving Black Canary a black rub. OK, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess that's what they told the comics code to get past. It. Yeah, it's a back rub. OK, fine. But again, this has that, you know, nighttime feeling where everybody's up really late and there's just sort of secrets being revealed. These are sort of like talks that you have with your friends when everyone else has gone to bed and they, you know, you, you talk about very honest things because your your guard is down. It just has that feel to it. And uh, and, and I don't want to forget to mention the artwork by Joe, Joe Staten has partnered with Brenner before and Joe Staten inked by Dick Giordano. That's a great combination because Dick Giordano inked everybody well. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it looks really good too i mean the story is really really effective and i like the idea that joe staten 
I think he gets to paraphrase his own panel, uh, the one where the JSA disappears. Yes. <laughs> I think that's his original drawing was was from an issue of Adventure Comics. And that, that panel has become redone by various artists over the years. Uh, whenever they have to reclaim that moment, they just draw that panel. And I think here's, here's Staten quoting himself. I did know, like, the art seemed to fluctuate a little bit as he was taking us through the flashbacks and everything. I definitely think the early pages, the pages set in the present, either at Dinah and Ali's place or at the hospital, those to me feel very much like Dick Giordano pages Hmm. um, because of the way he's inking. I definitely think the faces, the way he's inking the faces, I know he had a reputation for sometimes redrawing faces. But I think once you get to some of the flashbacks, especially when you get to like the 1940s and the JSA stuff, I, it feels maybe like Giordano just kind of let Staten cut loose or, or Staten got mm-hmm. a little bit more fluid. Like, it feels a little bit more cartoony. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I like when she's kicking, when Dinah's kicking mm-hmm. the guy. It's page 67 of the whole comic, and yeah. she just does the whack. And like her leg is so improbably straight. Like that is a very, <laughs> very, very cartoony panel. Yeah. Speaking of the creators involved, because at the beginning of this, we get their little, you know, we recognize the works of, I just want to kind of hit these for anybody if you're not sure. Uh, it mentions Robert Kaniger. He, of course, created Black Canary. He also wrote her Golden Age adventures in Flash Comics, established the flower shop, established Larry Lance. Gardner Fox wrote Black Canary's membership in the Justice Society of America and then also the Earth 1 and Earth 2 crossovers. Jerry Conway wrote the first origin of Black Canary in the DC special number 10. That introduced the concept of the Elder Dinah's father, Richard Drake, being a cop, wanting Dinah to join the force. Uh, the whole like instance at the casino with the gambling and everything, that was all part of his story. And that is, that is one of the things that I really liked about that origin was that it gave her... It gave her a reason to do this type of work that wasn't based necessarily on tragedy. Mm. It was based on this call to service. And I really like characters who do that, who would otherwise join the police or join the military, but for some reason they they can't do that or they're not allowed to it. So they find another way of fulfilling that need in them. We see that, I think, with Batgirl, Barbara Gordon. Given other circumstances, she might have followed her father's steps and like and been a cop. And even, even when her career as Batgirl is taken away from her, she didn't give up fighting crime. She, like, she found it and, and she kept going. More recently, the new Batwoman uh, that was created in 52. And then after that, you know, she joined, I, th- I think it was the Marines, and then was drummed out of West Point because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And huh. she was sort of listless and couldn't find her way until her father, who was a special forces guy, said, you need this direction. You need what the military should have given you. It can't give you that anymore, but we can find an alternative. And he helps her become Batwoman. So I like that type of character type, and I think we get that from the Golden Age Black Canary in some of these stories, that she wanted to join the Gotham City Police Force. In the original story, they just weren't accepting women. I think what Brennert does to sort of layer Conway's original idea and make it a little bit more deep is set up that no, the Force was already corrupt. The Force didn't want her because they didn't like her father. They didn't want another type of you know crusading cop that would you know queer their hustle and 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 mess up like you know the the corruption angles that they've been building towards so i like that 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 was the impetus for her becoming black canary uh the other members the other creators that it mentions paul levitz as we said wrote uh the defeat of the justice society in adventure comics 466 where they walk away after refusing to out themselves to the house on american activities committee 
Frank Miller is credited. Now, I don't think it actually references anything from year one. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out why Frank Miller necessarily. It name drops uh, Commissioner Loeb and Carmine Falcone. I think their names appear. That's the only thing I can think of, that those were his creations. That's still maybe, I I don't know. I I think, I don't know. I, I don't think DC ever lost anything by putting Frank Miller's name on it. Um, uh, the other one's Mike Barr. He created Judson Caspian, the Reaper for Batman Year Two. I like you. I don't like his part in the story. I, I don't like Year Two. I think I've read that story three no, times, including yeah. most recently, only a couple months ago, and I barely remember the story. It's just not. I, I yeah, I got nothing for that one. Uh, and then I Denny- love the idea. That, I'm sorry, I mean, I love the idea that Alan Scott was trying to rail against the Reaper on his radio show on his on his network, the mm-hmm. GB broadcast. It's like you know, liberal radio never works. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work, Alan. Uh, and then Denny O'Neill, he uh, established the Black Canary and Green Arrow romance and Speedy's heroin addiction from Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And then the last one, Mike Grell. The scene with them in bed together and uh, her telling Ollie that she didn't want to have kids of her own. That's right from the Longbow Hunters. So, did you catch uh, who, in the the scene when Dinah, when young Dinah is sparring in Ted Grant's gym? Did you catch who her sparring partner is? Uh, no. Who is it? It's Yolanda Montez, who was the woman who oh. became Wildcat after Ted Grant died in Crisis. Oh, that's fun. That's like, yeah, I see Alan, he's so good at that stuff. He really <laughs> yeah. does. He just puts so much work in when he finds these little details. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Like, like I said, this is a story about legacy. This is a story about uh, life passing and sort of a mother and daughter finding this connection at the end of one of their lives. And I don't know, this story is about everything. Gosh, there's just so much in this story. Alan really does like giving some of his cat when he has the chance to give these people a grace note, and he did it for Supergirl, of course, in the dead in that Dead yep. Man story, yep. and he does it here for Black Canary instead of just being killed off because it's like, wow, you know, we don't need her anymore. Right. You know, just that thing with the Spectre is so wonderful. I mean, of course, of all of us, who wouldn't want that? You know, I mean, I personally would love for the Spectre to see me. I'd be like, wow, he's real. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, please don't turn me into a block of wood and saw me up in a bunch of pieces. Uh, but just the idea that he's there to guide Black Canary. It's And I like the effect that it's done in all black and white. Yeah. Uh, with not even any gray tones. It's just all black. Like, that's a nice detail. I don't know whose idea, whether that was the colorist or that was Joe Staten or whatever. But uh, Alan just, I think, generally wants to... He loves these characters, and even if he has to do something kind of grim in them, uh, whether it be Batman in Holy Terror or whatever, he wants to say, you know, hey, these were, you know, Black Canary was a solid character for many years for the DC Universe, so she deserves a nice send-off, even if she's been sort of out of circulation for decades. Mm-hmm. When I've been going through this series and, you know, every story, do I want to read more about this? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I always wonder, you know, was this a good story for Secret Origins? And I've been trying to find, you know, what is that prototypical Secret Origins story? What is the story that gives me the origin and the backstory that I need, but also gives me a sense of some kind of forward momentum and an idea of why I'm learning this information and gives me a kind of a frame for revisiting the story that's not just, you know, copying what, what had already been done. This was sort of the model for that. I, I think this is one of the most perfect types of secret origin stories that I've wanted for this series, which is nice to have it as the second-to-last story yeah. in the entire series. It gives me multiple origins. You know, It gives me stories for two different characters, t- 
tons of great insight, uh, a synopsis of their career, but also the motivating factors of why they did it, why this was important to them, what drove them. It also puts it in a sense of context. It gives me, you know, not just that this was the story from the 40s. What does this have to do with their lives today? We see that because the Elder Dinah is dying at this moment. So, yeah, Brenner, if anybody doesn't understand why you gush over him, just read his stories. It's so obvious. He's such a damn good writer. Yeah, so. yeah he's, he's only written a handful, and we're hoping that you know it's, that, that there will be more to come. But yeah. what we have here is really, really good. Yeah, this story, it moves the current Black Canary forward a little, but also does do an origin. It gives you the whole – I mean, it's a secret origin. It does give you – it does both things. It looks back, and it looks forward. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what I've got for the story. Did you have any final notes on it? No, it's it's nice that they gave her this level of space uh, in the final issue. I mean, I know that there's a certain amount of probably clearing out the inventory yeah. for the final thing. I mean, the cover seems to allude to that a little, of having all the characters moving all the stuff out. But uh, no, I think it's a real winner, and it's a great one to to go out on. Uh, and it's he said it's for for a character that you know served her purpose and and was you know a good you know like did what she was supposed to do which was be sort of like you know popular for a good period of time ran through the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s a bit you know it's nice that DC gave her this proper send off what would you recommend if you wanted to, i mean clearly i know what your recommended reading is uh, for this story or for any other Black Canary things, it's you're you're gonna pitch the Tales of the Batman by Alan Brenner collection, of course, which I absolutely concur with. It's it's sitting on the table right next to me. I would also recommend if you want to know more about Black Canary, Black Canary and Zatanna Bloodspell, that uh, original graphic novel is terrific. We both said if you can find the backup strips from World's Finest. Um, she and Green Arrow were in it during the Dollar Comics issues. She fights like, a werewolf in one of the stories. She does. <laughs> and she gets naked a couple times, I think. Um, Did Shag come into the show? What happened? I don't <laughs> what's going on. No, that was something that Chris always remembers. So that, that was a formative moment for young Chris Franklin. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it starts with issue 244 of World's That's Finest. Right. Yeah, and, drawn by Mike Nasser. Really yeah. good, a bunch of really good stories there. Yeah, yeah, there was some good Jerry Conway, Mike Nasser stuff, and then Trevor Von Eden, back when I loved Trevor Von Eden stuff. <laughs> um, good stuff. You can also find, she's got a DC Archives edition, collects all of her Golden Age stuff, other than the appearances with the Justice Society in All-Star, uh, but it's got all of her old stuff by Carmine Infantino and Robert Canegra. It also reprints the two Alex Toth stories from Adventure Comics. Ah, uh, so good. They are very, very good. I, I would also recommend some of the JLAs that she was in. Like, so, I mean, she she was a JLA member from number 75 all the way through 232, basically, which is when the Detroit League took over. So that's a that's a hell of a run. And there were some uh, issue one. Just I'm just rattling these numbers off the top of my head. One eighty nine, one ninety one, uh, two hundred three through two hundred five. There were some like she gets some really good moments in there. I mean, there's a lot of other ones, of yeah, course. Yeah. But she, you know, first of all, from from seventy five through one thirty, she was the only female member, uh, which could not have been fun for her. But she got a lot of good moments. I think there, I think Conway wanted to do a lot with her because he could, because she was really the only place she was appearing generally. And so I, I think she, I always think of her as one of the sort of more important members of the team. So uh, it would be a little harder to track those down because a lot of them have not been reprinted. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're worth it. There are some really, really good ones. They're starting. I know pretty soon they're doing a Bronze Age omnibus of Justice League of America, which I think 
it might actually start with issue 75 or something like that but it's like around there it's still like i, I think it collects like up to the early 100 so we're still a ways away but yeah if it sells well enough if they start collecting more of those you know i, I really wish they would get into more of those late 100s and early 200s eric because those are some of my favorite justice league stories too so yeah a lot of really good stuff yeah rob for the last time Thank oh, you very, oh my God. very. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for being on the Secret Origins podcast. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, right here on the network, of course. Uh, I got all my different shows. I don't want to bother to plug myself. I am going to say this. I know you're probably going to cut this out, Ryan, because you control this, but that's fine. Uh, I am going to say this is my last chance to say this. I think I don't listen to every single comic book podcast out there. Obviously, uh, there are too there are way too many. But I listen to a lot of them, uh, except for JLI. And and uh, you know, I would I would say Secret Origins is the single best comic book podcast I've ever heard in terms of uh, the the focus that you brought to this, the imagination of bringing all these different guests. As someone who does podcasts, I know how much work you've put into it. I mean, it shames me because half the time I'm like, I'm not putting that much effort into my shows. I I really think these fifty five or odd episodes. That how many you did fifty five by the time this is all over? There will be 55 counting the 55. finale. 55, right, right. Oh, look at me. I got it on the first try. These 55 episodes will stand as like one of the really great comic book podcasting achievements. I really, truly believe that. And so, well, I'm sorry to see this go. We all knew it was inevitable. But uh, I think you should be really proud of this. I think this is, a, this is a really tremendous series. And I'm very happy to be even a tiny part of it. Well, thank you very much for saying that. Uh, Leave this in. <laughs> That means a whole lot to me. Um, and all of this sentiment is going to be ruined by my next guest. <laughs> Guys, everybody, look, stop the show here. <laughs> Actually, you know what? M- move forward and get to the part where uh, Ryan does the feedback, and you'll have a nice, perfect kind of way in the show. That sounds, that sounds like a good idea. Um, <laughs> but for those of you who are completionists... Um, <laughs> We'll say we'll say thank you one more time to Rob and goodbye. Uh, we are going to take another quick promo break, play another song, and in a minute, the irredeemable Shag will be back for the final story from the final issue of Secret Origins. Don't go away. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. So come down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there To catch them in a bubble Or even torch their hair They stand for truth and justice And see a land in air Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair The Fire and Water Podcast Celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas And Firestorm, the Nuclear Man Available at Fire and Water Podcast, Aquaman Shrine Firestorm fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? It's bad enough. I have to put up with your shenanigans every... love you but long as there are stars above you 
Final story in the final issue of Secret Origins tells the startling secret of the Space Museum. That's right, the Space Museum. <laughs> if you've never heard of the Space Museum before, well, you either skipped the episode with Booster Gold's origin or you didn't pay close enough attention. If you know exactly what the Space Museum is, but you still sort of cocked your head to the side and thought, really? The Space Museum? That's what they chose to end the series with? If you thought about Aquaman and Wonder Woman and Metamorpho and Wildcat and Jon Stewart and Sergeant Rock and all of the other DC classics that never got an origin in this series, and then thought about the Space Museum and felt a pang of underwhelming bitterness in your stomach, well, I know how you feel. That is how I felt for the past two years. Until today. Today I feel quite differently, and I will tell you why after we go through the story. But first... My final guest on this episode is the co-founder of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's the host of Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, and one of the hosts of the Fire and Water Podcast, Who's Who, and Hero Points, the DC role-playing podcast. None of that makes him a particular authority on Silver Age space adventure stories. That is not the reason he is here. The reason the Irredeemable Shag is my last guest on this episode is because he is the very first person I ever told about doing a podcast about Secret Origins, and even though it conflicted with his own plans to cover the series after Who's Who wrapped up, Shag could not have been more encouraging or more helpful throughout this process. He was a guiding force behind this show long before the first episode ever dropped. He offered advice, both technical and stylistic, and he put me in touch with some of the best guests to ever grace this show, men and women I would have never reached out to appear on this show if not for Shag's recommendation. Put it this way, without Shag's influence, the guest list for Secret Origins podcast might have topped off at 10-15 people max, as opposed to the 56 voices, besides my own, that have graced these 54 episodes. Listeners, please welcome the man who puts the you in the fire and water community, the irredeemable Shag. Wow. Um, you've, you've never said a nice word about me before, so I'm quite stunned. I was not ready for that. I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled to be here. And, um, you know, I'm going to save my comments actually for the end when we finish up. Because okay. uh, I, I, I have some words for you too, Mr. Daly. <laughs> Uh, I will say, with the Space Museum, I, I had also sort of was scratching my head, not, not only with why this story was here, but coming right on the heels of that Black Canary story. I don't, I don't know if you know much about Black Canary, but there, there was a story right before this one. I've it's dabbled in her history from here. Okay. Man, I, I reread that story getting ready for this one, just going through the issue. 
I burst out in tears multiple times in that thing. I was waiting for jury duty, and I'm sitting here crying in the waiting room. People are looking at me like, oh, my gosh, what happened to that guy? And, you know, I'm crying over a comic book. It's quite embarrassing. But so good. And then you come to this, which is really a lot lighter fare. So the two don't necessarily segue well together. But I think you're going to get to sort of why this is a almost like a beacon of hope or something to look forward to as we wrap up the series. What did you know about the Space Museum prior to reading the story? Well, um, I read the Secret Origins issue when it first came out. That was probably my first exposure to this. Well, no, actually, I guess it would have been the Booster Gold. Booster Gold would have been my first exposure to the Space Museum. But this story stuck in my head somewhere along the lines. I have read another Space Museum story. I cannot nail down which one it is, um, which is driving me nuts. It would have been back in the 80s, probably, or something. I bet I can tell you what it is. Oh, that could be useful because it's bugging the crap out of me. (laughs) So I I feel like it's sort of in my DNA, but I can't necessarily scratch that itch of where I found it. Uh, It might have been an episode of Justice League of America. Number 206? Yep. Nope, that's not it. That's not? Okay. Well, now I certainly read that, and we'll talk about that later, but uh, it's something. Either way, the stories are very formulaic, so it could have been any of them, and I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. Either way, I love the Space Museum. I love the concept. As a father myself, this story really speaks to me, and uh, it's, it's, it brings me joy to read it. Let's, uh, let's dive into the publication history kind of quickly, and then we can actually tell our listeners what is this thing and then what the story is. The Space Museum was an anthology feature running within the anthology comic Strange Adventures for a period of about five years. The first appearance of the Space Museum was a story titled World of Doomed Spacemen, written by Gardner Fox and illustrated by Mike Sikowski, published in Strange Adventures issue 104 on March 24, 1959, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. I wonder if they ever did anything else of note. No, I don't think so. Okay. It's like that Wolfman and Perez guys. They never did oh, anything. Yeah, yeah. After that, the Space Museum feature returned in 19 more issues of Strange Adventures between 1959 and December of 1963. And bear with me, please, because I am going to list all of the appearances, and then I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> Space Museum appeared in Strange Adventures issue 104, 106, 109, 112, 115, 118, 121, 124, 127, 130, 133, 136, 139, 142, 145, 148, 151, 154, 157, and 161. Why did I take the time to list all of them individually? I couldn't even begin to guess, because a normal person would have said, after the first couple of installments, they went to every third issue. Yeah. The reason I did it is because Mike's Amazing World doesn't have the Space Museum hyperlinked, so I had to go through every Strange Adventure (laughs) listing individually to see if the Space Museum showed up. And only after I did that did I discover that the Wikipedia entry for the Space Museum lists all 20 of the appearances. I'll tell you what, for those of you at home, you don't have to do all the groundwork that, uh, that Ryan did. Instead, go to uh, either in-stock trades or your local comic book store and look for a book from Tomorrow's Publishing called The Silver Age Sci-Fi Companion, written by Mike W. Barr with an Alan Davis cover. It is an awesome book that I picked up myself, and it's got 10 pages dedicated to the Space Museum. It's got every single one of those stories outlined, so I could have given you that, but I'm really glad I did and it made you work for it. Yeah, thanks a lot, bastard. <laughs> 
so going to edit out everything I said in the first two minutes of the show. <laughs> um, well, as you illustrated for our listeners, other than the first appearance in issue 104 and the last appearance in 161, if you look at the middle 18 issues, the Space Museum stories recurred every third issue of Strange Adventures. For a chunk of that time, there were three running features rotating every three issues. Space Museum, the Atomic Knights, and Star Hawkins. The other important detail of the Silver Age Space Museum stories is that Gardner Fox wrote all 20 stories, but Mike Sikowski only drew the first appearance. The other 19 stories were all drawn by Carmine Infantino. Then in 1963, DC reprinted the first three Space Museum stories in the last three issues of its reprint anthology book, From Beyond the Unknown. In 1982, nearly 20 years after the last original Space Museum story appeared, Jerry Conway used the Space Museum as the framing device for Justice League of America 206 in an issue that featured guest penciler Carmine Infantino. The Space Museum might have appeared in the New Adventures of Superboy issue 50. I found that reference, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Uh, And of course, the museum became a central aspect of the origin of Booster Gold whenever that story is retold. Uh, That is what I've got. Shag, do you know of any other appearances of the Space Museum, including the mysterious issue that you think you read? (laughs) Well, first off, I have to tell you, I'm I'm very proud of you for (laughs) the the publication history. Normally, when we go through these, you know, this is uh, my eighth appearance on the show. Uh, I have to correct like half of what you've done with your research. But this time, sir, you've nailed it. You did excellent. So only 50 issues to the last story. You finally got it right. Congratulations. I do have a few things to add, which is uh, they also appeared in some Legion stories, Legion of Superhero stories, but much, much, much later down the line, way past this 1989 mark where this story was published. And he also was referenced, the Space Museum was referenced in, some, uh, in a Starman comic or two, which I thought was kind of interesting. Now, another thing to note, you mentioned Carmen Infantino. It's interesting that he did pencil all of those issues. And once the third, once they get to the third installment, he actually not only penciled it, he also inked all of his work on all the remaining ones. And I've seen a lot of panels from those old issues. And let me tell you, Carmine, back in the early 60s, penciling and inking his own stuff, stunning. There are some panels here that should be like sci-fi book covers. They're that good. Hmm. They are absolutely gorgeous. I, I, I absolutely love it. And it's, it's interesting, too, the Space Museum, you mentioned it was you know, the three rotating segments, Atomic Knight, Star Hawkins, and Space Museum. Unfortunately, Space Museum was always stuck as the third entry. So it was always at the back of the book. And according to a reader's poll, apparently it was, it was the second most popular, uh, which was uh, Atomic Knights was the most popular in there, then Space Museum, and Four Star Hawkins came in last. Four Star Hawkins. And for his his beloved Ilda. But Space Museum only ever got the cover once, and that was only in that first issue that you mentioned that with the cover by Murphy Anderson. And on rare occasion, they would get sort of a cover blurb above the logo that said, Extra! A new Space Museum story! But that's it. That is all they got. And um, another note, too, worth mentioning is the editor was Julie Schwartz. And apparently Space Museum concept was created by Julie Schwartz and Gardner Fox together. So really, they're the two that are credited with the creation of the uh, Space Museum. That makes sense. Yep. Before we get into the story, let's kind of explain. Like, I mean, it's, it's a recurring feature in an anthology series, but it was itself an anthology segment. Like mm-hmm. the, the Space Museum stories, obviously they're not all stories about the adventures of a museum because it's a stationary <laughs> place. It's just, help my, our listeners, if they've never heard of it or if they don't really know the gist of it, what were these Space Museum stories about? Or what was the, the format or the frame? What was the gimmick of the Space Museum stories? Sure, and, and this one in Secret Origins is actually a really, 
really well done recreation of that format. Because the format would be basically Tommy Parker and his father would go to the Space Museum every month. They took a special trip every month to go visit the Space Museum, which apparently is like a really cool hit place to go because it's always packed. And Tommy's dad would eventually settle on some artifact in the museum, a, a display, and he would then tell Tommy the story of how that artifact came to be here in the Space Museum and why it was important. And a lot of times it would be just something ordinary or unexpected, like one of them was a sewing needle, another was a tree branch, you know, something that you'd be like, huh? But once you heard the story, you're like, wow, that's so cool. And uh, it would, Tommy's father telling the story would provide the framework. So you, you basically get the intro panel with Tommy and his dad going to the museum. And then you get a cool splash page, and then you'd go into the adventure. And at the end, you'd come back together with Tommy and his dad. And one of the trademarks of the stories was that Tommy's father would stop during the story, during a crucial moment, and ask Tommy how he thought the characters were going to resolve the crisis. And at the same time, this was also challenging the readers, the kids at home, to think about these situations and try and figure out the solution before the hero did. And uh, Gerard Jones did a really nice job of emulating that here in the story. I thought that was nice. And the thing that really bums me out, and you've already mentioned it, though, the booster gold aspect. It makes me sad that really the Space Museum has been relegated to just being something people know from Booster Gold's origin. They don't realize the history of it. And, and I think it's awesome that Dan Jurgens included the Space Museum concept in it. But I found out recently, I didn't know this, but Space Museum wasn't his first choice. Michael Carter was actually going to be an employee of the Superman Museum in the future. Yeah, that was the original, before Crisis kind of changed Superman's whole history. Yep. You know, Jurgens was going to make it, uh, it was all going to be about like emulating Superman, and that's what Booster Gold's whole motif was. And he exactly. was forced to make that change after like the first three or four issues because of what was going on with Crisis. So, so while I was thrilled that he included the Space Museum, I was like, oh, well, it was, you know, it was the second prettiest girl at the prom. Hmm. It'd be cool if one day, like, they sort of retroactively, like, tie them together, like, make something about, like, Skeets, making Skeets be uh, an integral part of, like, one of these stories. And, and yeah, you mentioned, like, the recurring theme, if there was sort of a host of these stories, you know, if you think about, like, other anthologies, like, you've got the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt, or the DC Horror Books, which, hey, I'm going to be talking about out to the, in the future, <laughs> when you've got, like, somebody like Cain or Abel telling you about, like, these stories set in the House of Mystery or the House of Secrets. Here you've got Howard Parker and his son Tommy and he's kind of your recurring guide he's the you know the glue that holds each one of these stories together he's the recurring thread so that we have this you know focal character that makes it not just random stories about stuff but uh, kind of gives it some life and gives it some consistency and I think a good anthology story has something like that and we're going to get to this when we talk well I mean right. I'm jumping ahead a bit but the, it pains me that this isn't in like a showcase or something I mean I realize it's only eight pages and there's only 20 of them so that's be a fairly short trade paperback but what a great collection that would be too though because, you know, just like you mentioned, the, the, with the EC horrors and all that, it, it makes a great anthology story, which would be fun. And I wish we, we, wish we could put it in people's hands. Right, right. Well, are you ready to tell our listeners the startling secret of the Space Museum? Absolutely. Now, uh, stealing a quote from the Table of Contents page, it says, How did one man repel an invasion of Earth by using history as a weapon? Young Tommy Parker is about to learn the answers as he discovers the startling secret of the Space Museum. And apparently every time Ryan or I say that phrase, you should take a drink. <laughs> so, script by said, I was actually taking a drink when you said that. <laughs> New game. Uh, script by Gerard Jones. Pencils by Carmen Infantino. Returning to his gig from the 1960s, which is wonderful. Inks by George Perez. That's not something you see every day. Colors by Anthony Toland. Letters by Gaspar. And boy editor, who returns as boy editor, Mark Wade. 
All right, here we go. The story opens with a wonderful splash page featuring a group of futuristic-looking human soldiers, and they're marching towards the camera. And they're being controlled by three orange-skinned aliens who are sporting leisure suits, a mind-control ray gun, and each have a savage dragon-style orange fin on top of their heads. <laughs> or as Frank would say, a uh, Despero fin. But either way. They, but, you know, that gets confusing because sometimes the fin face one way, then the other. Anyway. Let's, you just guys settle, let's just settle and call it like a Tomar Ray fin or something. Oh, perfect. Brilliant. He's orange, too. That works. Look at that. So these aliens are demanding that these Earthmen guard them until the aliens can find the weapon with which they can conquer our planet. Dun, dun, dun. So you flip the page because you know how splash pages always worked in the old days. It didn't necessarily fit up with – it wasn't always the first page of the story. It would just kind of tease you as what's going to happen in the story. So the next page, the story really gets started. And we're in the 25th century and we're joining Howard Parker and his son Tommy Parker on one of their monthly visits to the ultra-popular Space Museum. And the place is packed with wondrous displays from mankind's previous 400 years of space exploration. And Tommy's father stops at one particular exhibit and begins to tell his son the story of this artifact. It just looks like a regular old Space Marine's footlocker. But according to Tommy's father, this footlocker was the very first space museum. We flash back 25 years ago and follow a young space marine colonel. Now, don't confuse these space marines with the ones from the Aliens movies, folks, or Warhammer 40K. These uniforms look a lot more like they were borrowed from a page of Captain Boomerang, but without the bent pieces of wood. (laughs) So the space marine colonel was fascinated with the history of space travel. But uh, he was stuck, though, in this role as a sentry at an old military surplus warehouse, which happens to be the site where the space museum would eventually be built. And it turns out this warehouse was full of legendary artifacts from man's early days of space travel that had just been discarded, that no one cared about anymore. And one such item was the Mind Blaster, used by Jay Morton to turn back the... I call them Paganin, and, and, and uh, I don't know how you say it, but we'll say Paganin Invasion, which is actually a reference to an old Space Museum comic. And there's a reason I'm mentioning that specific item. Anyway, Colonel begins to collect all these items that have historical significance because he cares about them and stores them in his footlocker, including a toy soldier, a unique jewel, and special contact lenses that actually block mind control powers. So the colonel felt like people had become jaded and bored with space travel in this 25th century. And if only they were exposed to the heroism of Earth's star-spanning pioneers, their sense of adventure might be rekindled. And sometime later, uh, the colonel's on guard one day uh, in his role as a sentry. When some of these aliens are admitted to the warehouse, Uh, some soldiers bring them up there. And these aliens are there to buy up the scrap metal. But the colonel has a hunch... And so he follows them and discovers that these aliens have other plans. With his command of space history, the colonel recognizes these aliens as the Peganins. I call them the dirty orange skins. There we go. Nice. That's very, uh, very PC. It's not racist, is it? No, no. Okay. Uh, so he recognizes them as these are the aliens that nearly conquered the Earth before in that previous Space Museum adventure. So the colonel jumps into action using his collection of artifacts and doing things with them that, uh, like this unique jewel, he uses it to record what they're doing as incriminating evidence about the Peganin's plans. And then he uses this indestructible toy soldier to distract the aliens. As the colonel then eventually mobilizes the troops, the Peganin's use their mind control blast on the soldiers. And so the soldiers are now all under the mental control of these aliens, the dirty orange skins, as my friend Ryan calls them. But for some miraculous reason, the colonel's unaffected by the mind control blast. The colonel commandeers a personnel carrier and crashes it into the warehouse in an effort to stop the aliens. And in the wreckage, the aliens are captured and the invasion stopped and and they are arrested. 
then we cut back to the space museum and Tommy's talking with his dad and he's thinking through the story and he asks his dad, he says, wait a minute, how did the colonel escape the alien mind control blast? When all the other soldiers were controlled, the colonel wasn't. And the dad turns it around and asks Tommy what he thought the answer might be. Tommy thinks it through and then he remembers earlier in the story about the special contact lenses that could resist mind control. So sort of again, following that formula where he makes the kid think through the situation and solve it. So the dad finishes up the story by saying that the footlocker, where the colonel stored the artifacts, actually survived. It was a bit banged up, but the footlocker itself survived. And so uh, it was the first space museum, if you will, then. The military brass then dedicated the site of the warehouse for a new purpose, to build the actual space museum, the same museum that Tommy and his father visit every single month. And Tommy asks, whatever happened to the space marine colonel? And Tommy's father reveals that he, in fact, is actually that space marine colonel. And Tommy is floored. He can't wait to tell all his friends that his father founded the Space Museum. Yay! Yay! So what th- what'd you think of it? Well, first off, before getting into our overall impressions, the most important part of this entire story, egg foo. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my notes, too. Yeah. <laughs> they, use, they use egg foo as an abbreviation, as basically a, the future version of foobar. That's exactly right. Where EGFU is an acronym for entire galaxy getting fouled up. Because he actually says this will be the biggest EGFU of all time. <laughs> like, Gerard Jones already, I think, wrote my favorite Secret Origins story. But after reading that, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to kiss him on the face. Well, wouldn't this be like right about the same time Heartbreak Ridge came out? Ah, uh, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, it just it cracked me up. That's all I could think about. I laughed my butt off. Now, since we're talking about the language of the story, at the end, the kid also, his exclamation is, golly wobbles. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that or not. <laughs> and that is actually a callback, believe it or not. He said the same thing in a previous issue. I think it was uh, 142, uh, to be exact, of Strange Adventures. Uh, he used that same exclamation about something that he found out during one of the adventures, too. Now, it didn't really appear a lot in the old days, but the fact that Gerard chose to use it just as his well, he clearly consumed all of those original stories and, and, and modeled them. Like, not only is the format, the structure, just tons of homages to those original stories with all of like the artifacts and everything, and like referencing previous stories. Just the format of it. You mentioned yeah. how the old Space Museum stories—they were always eight-page stories. This is also an eight-page story. Uh, it's actually nine. No. Learn to count, son. Hang on. You know, nothing more exciting than the penultimate episode of this series, listening to Ryan Count Pages. Oh, shit. I wasn't looking at the, fur, the splash page. <laughs> all right. Cutting all of that out. No, it's actually in my notes, too, that it's interesting that everything matched really perfectly, except they went one extra page. We don't even need that splash page, damn it. Well, no, that's, that's a hallmark, though. I know, I know, but of these Strange Adventures comics was in fact the only thing missing on that splash page is this little logo they used to put on there saying a space museum adventure that's Mm -hmm. the only thing it's like a sort of a comet that would say a space that's the only thing missing my overall impressions it's a fun story I I, I like it it's clever it feels of a type with these classic Silver Age anthology stories it feels like it belonged in the same world as those Adam Strange adventures and Captain Comet adventures it does what I want is I I think I want to read more Space Museum stories after this yeah 
I think it, it I think it does that effectively. Now, there's sort of that cute surprise ending where you find out that the man they're telling the story about turns out to be Tommy's father, mm-hmm. and it almost feels like kind of a modern day twist ending, you know, that, yeah. not not quite Twilight Zone, but sort of like a oh, gotcha ending. This seems like a you know a modern ending for a classic Silver Age story. However, it's not. This is actually very much in keeping with the original stories because this isn't the first time that the Parker family have been directly connected to a space museum artifact. In fact, it's happened at least three other times. There were three other stories, uh, issues 124, 142, and 148, which all featured Tommy's parents. Uh, His dad is General Howard Wrecker Parker, and his mom is Admiral Anne Blondie Gordon. Um, Yes, Blondie is her nickname. And please note that his dad's a general and his mom is an admiral. For the early 1960s, that's pretty progressive, I would say. Well, I mean, presumably different branches of the military. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, they were both, it, like in the U.S. military, I mean, they're both the senior most uh, officers of respective branches. Like the admiral is the, the senior of the of the Navy, and you have generals in the Army, the Marines, hmm. and the Air Force. So Yeah, the Space I, Marines might be completely different. Who it knows? might be. So that's the one piece of research I guess I didn't get to think through. So, But um, if you look at those other stories where the parents appeared, uh, it's interesting. In issue, the second one, which was issue 142 that I mentioned, the artifact or the display case item is actually a picture of Tommy himself. There is a picture of Tommy himself in the Space Museum at age three <laughs> because he was part of an adventure involving the Space Museum. So he's even connected to it. And then there's also a- another adventure outside of those which broke from the format where they didn't tell a historical story, but where the Space Museum itself was actually under threat from an alien attack. And Tommy and his space scouts, him and the- his friends, actually saved the museum and they end up getting a display case in honor of them in the Space Museum as well. So, well, and the point I'm getting to is while it felt like a bit of a twist ending, it's actually just like everything else. It's just perfectly in keeping with the Space Museum flavor. And yet that doesn't bother me because I, I still really like the idea that for this story as a love letter to those old ones, it is also an origin. It tells where the Space Museum came from, who founded it. And it's also, I mean, I know, yes, as you said, it's happened before, but I like the idea that they're turning the spotlight back on the framing device characters, mm-hmm. you know, the host of the thing. We're learning that the Parkers themselves, the characters who are usually just our gateway into another weird random story with random protagonists, now we find out that these characters are our heroes and our protagonists. I like that. Yes, as you say, it's it's been done before, but not knowing that, I liked the idea going into it. So, yeah, yeah. It, it fits really nice. And now, as far as the art goes, Carmen Infantino, we talked about this. He did the original. He did the Justice League issue. He uh, He's come back for this. I think that he did a really great job. Now, a lot of it may be down to um, George Perez's inks. I'm not really sure. Because I would say, you know, this is 1989. Carmen Infantino's line work here is very, very controlled as compared to, say, his work on The Flash just a few years earlier. Right. Now, that's a much more kinetic, you know, sort of book. So I could see why his, his lines might get a looser and a little crazier there. But it's very controlled here. In fact, some of the characters, like even um, the main guy, the, the colonel, the young colonel, looks a lot like kind of a Howard Jakin kind of look if you look at him. I, he definitely has that type of jaw, yeah. Yeah, and some of the close-ups of the faces, and I don't know if this is the George Perez inks that are doing it, but some of the faces actually look a little Gil Kane-ish as well. Mm-hmm. Just the way that the, the eyes look and the cheeks and stuff like that. So I think it's a very pretty-looking series. Now, someone who's reading this from a modern 1989 point of view might look at these aliens and go, these are redunculous. These are stupid looking. But these are aliens out of the, you know, the early 60s, guys. He's yeah, these reproducing... are the Silver Age aliens. These are... Exactly. He's I mean... trying to reproduce that same flavor here. Right. And I mean, I that's the reason fun. I said Tomar Ray. They look like something yeah. out of an early Gil Kane, as you say, Gil Kane Green Lantern story. And uh, I love the museum itself. I, I love how he's just got... It's packed full of exhibits, mm-hmm. and it's packed 
packed full of patrons. And uh, in, in, that, you see, in, that I wonder maybe that's George Perez adding more to the actual. Thing. Oh. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that was all in the original pencils. But uh, certainly the level of detail in there feels like it could have been uh, George Perez kind of beefing this up a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong. Could be. And I think I also I think the scenes showing the museum itself. I think it's sort of given me an insight a little bit into Booster Gold's character because the girls wear some really short skirts in the 25th century, <laughs> and that might explain some of his womanizing here in the 20th. Yeah. Oh, the fashion in this is crazy. <laughs> oh, those crazy kids. Now, I do feel like there were a couple missed opportunities because, you know, this is the last issue of Secret Origins, and this is the last, you know, probably the last time they thought that there would ever be a Space Museum appearance. So I feel like there were a few other opportunities they could have had. Like in the background, they could have put, you know, a, a security guard walking around. Just simply, a, it's all it would have took was a security guard and a hat. Mm-hmm. And we as the reader could have gone, oh, that's Michael Carter, yep. you know, who's going to go on to become Booster Gold. Or just see uh, one of the robots, like Skeets floating by, you know, would have been really, that would have been a nice opportunity. Or like some of the, the uh, displays, you know, the exhibits, you know, think about like Adam Strange, you know, who's been a, oh, such yeah, a yeah. big part of the DC universe. You know, he's a fellow Silver Age space star. He even headlined the Strange Adventures comics for a little while. Not the same time as Space Museum, but both of them come, you know, were in Sp- Strange Adventures at different points. That would have been kind of nice to have an ideal exhibit for him. Or, um, you know, in Justice League International number seven, which was covered recently on the JLI Bwahaha podcast plug plug uh, the team goes into space and one of the team members there was Captain Marvel and it would have been nice if they could have just sort of given some recognition for that space adventure you know Captain Marvel deserves the praise you know who I'm talking about you know the big red cheese I do. sometimes he's uh, even called Shazam <laughs> I've heard that name and then uh, during Infinite Crisis, you know, which admittedly came after this, but whatever, uh, there were a number of Earth heroes that also had adventures in space. Uh, a lot of space stuff in Infinite Crisis. And one of them was a fellow character that appeared in Strange Adventures, just like the Space Museum quite often. A guy who went by the name of... <laughs> or finally, it would have been nice to see some sort of tribute, maybe an exhibit to, uh, well, really, quite frankly, for no reason at all, for the whip. Which would have been awesome. <laughs> and for you folks at home, you really didn't think I was going to let Ryan get through the final issue of this series without slipping in those sound effects, did you? Oh, no, no. They've been <laughs> waiting with bated breath for the entire, what, like, previous four and a half hours of this episode. <laughs> so the sad part is there are really no reprints to speak of, of the Space Museum. Um, there were some. But those reprints themselves have all been out of print for 35 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a Showcase Presents that does have some space adventures from the co- series Strange Adventures, uh, but it reprints issues 54 through 73, which are not Space Museum, but it's still good, you know, classic Silver Age wild adventures. Might be fun worth picking up. But um, maybe JLA 206 is one of the more accessible ones. Mm-hmm. And that one, and I thought Conway did a great job of telling a conventional Justice League of America story. It's it's about Zatanna. It's a cool story involving, of all things, I think the Demons 3, but he has the Space Museum as the setup, and, and what he does is he actually has Tommy Parker as an adult, as a grown man, bringing his own son to the Space Museum and giving him a tour and basically passing on, you know, the legacy. Because at that point, it had been 20 years since there had been sure. any previous, like, Space Museum stories. So he kind of took the concept and just aged it and said, okay, well, now the kid has grown up, he's got his own son, and he's doing the same thing that his dad used to do. So I, I really like that idea. Did um, you catch the son's name? Gardner. Gardner. Yeah. Isn't that nice? That's classy. Very Jerry's always classy. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. If you can find that issue, it's a a good story. And it's got, well, 1982. 
two, I guess, uh, Carmine Infantino. Uh, it's a, quite a departure from uh, who was who was doing it at, at the time. Well, it, it was uh, after Perez, so it would have been. Yeah, it was right after Perez. Well, Dick Dillon had done it for like ten years. Well, yeah, yeah. Was, was Romeo Tangal penciling? I think he inked. Maybe he inked Carmine Infantino on that one. Mm, not sure. Not sure. So, anyway, um, I did enjoy the story, but. For the longest time, I just kind of thought, yeah, it was a good story, but, ah, man, Secret Origins. We started with the origin of the Golden Age Superman. Look at the highs that we've had, and really, this is going to be the last story? And then, as I was doing my research, as I was looking into what the Space Museum was, what it represented, the whole anthology nature, the fact that it was an anthology strip to close out Secret Origins, which is an anthology series. And within each one of those classic Silver Age uh, Space Museum stories, there was there was this line, or it might have been paraphrased at time, but from the opening of the very first Space Museum story in Strange Adventures issue 104, there's this line, behind every object in the Space Museum, there's a tale of heroism, daring, and self-sacrifice. And Conway sort of reappropriates that in Justice League 206 when he says, For behind each exhibit in this museum dedicated to the human adventure, there is a story of heroism. That is Secret Origins. That's the spirit of this entire series. This whole book, 50 issues plus three annuals and a special, it's, the, it's a museum. It's a, it's a collection of artifacts about stories of heroism and daring and sacrifice. And... I think it could have been a little bit more overt. I did have to do a little bit of digging to make that connection, but knowing that it is there, it's hard for me to think of a more appropriate story to end this series with. Once I kind of read those lines, it it just hit me. I was like, yeah, behind every object in the Space Museum, cut, paste, insert, switch with that secret origins, there's a tale of heroism. Absolutely. And looking back each issue, you know, spending time telling the story as, as the father would to Tommy about the, that character and looking back historically, it, it all fits very nicely. But you're right. It, it wasn't overt, but when you put it in that context, it's, um, it's pretty powerful, man. Yeah. yeah. So, like you said, there's, there's plenty to recommend, but you have to do a lot of digging. There aren't a whole lot of issues of, or stories about this. You, the reprints just aren't really there, but if you can find them, track them down, it's good stuff. Um, I don't have any final. I don't have any other thoughts about this particular story. It's a great one. I just have some some closing thoughts on sort of the podcast as a whole. I, uh, as I mentioned, this is a uh, this is my eighth appearance on the show, and uh, I got to tell you, I uh, I'm truly honored to have been invited back this many times, Ryan. And you touched on this already, actually, in that amazing intro that I really was not ready for because every other intro you've ever given me is pretty cruel actually and I, I cry at night afterwards but um i first appeared on the show way back in episode four and i know some people didn't listen to it because it was firestorm you even got a letter uh, in the last issue where guy said he skipped that episode on purpose anyway um during that recording i accused you uh, straight up of stealing our idea as you as you talked about in the opening rob kelly and i my podcasting life mate we had developed this idea for years that we were going to cover the secret origin series and we we're going to tackle it right after we finished the who's who podcast and when we recorded episode four of the show together I explained all that, and basically I threatened you. I said that you stole our idea, and you better not screw it up. And uh, Secret Origins was too important to me for some rookie podcaster to come in here and drop the ball. 
Well, here I am. You've covered 50-plus issues now. And I think I speak for the entire listening audience, Ryan, when I say that you've done an amazing job on this podcast. Recording and editing a three-hour show every single week, along with doing all that research. And you brought together so many different guests, each with their own really fascinating insights and takes on these characters. There's a real sense of community around the show, Ryan. And I know for a fact, actually, that it's responsible for forging more than a few real-life friendships between some of the listeners. The people that have you know, found each other commenting and actually have either gotten together online and met or have met face-to-face. You've also inspired other podcasters to try their own hand at producing shows. And, you know, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, it's quite a testament to your work here. This podcast just really is a triumph, and you should be tremendously proud of what you've accomplished, Ryan. This is the kind of show people are going to be discovering for years and then coming back and re-listening to. Well done, sir. And and from the entire podcasting community, thank you for this wonderful show. And uh, it's been a real joy, sir. Thanks. Uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Are you crying? I'm not. I don't You're crying? I'm not. He's crying, folks. Uh, you can find me at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can find me... Uh, you know what? Ryan said it all in the front half of the show. Doesn't matter. I'm just thrilled to be here, and uh, my Mondays aren't going to be quite the same, sir. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> your Mondays aren't going to be the same. <laughs> Thank you very much for being... On the Secret Origins podcast, not just this time, but every time. Um, yeah, we're going to do some listener feedback, and I'm going to do something else. Secret Origins episode 49 covered the origin of Bouncing Boy with Siskoid, Shotgun, and DJ Nat from Ohatmu or Not, as well as the story of the Newsboys and Project Cadmus with Howard Simpson and The Silent Night with Gene Hendricks. That episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from The 108th Sage, Ange, Between the Pages, Bill Bear at Gotham Knight 13, Callum Nar, Cash Flag, aka Al, Codeman at Beware the Matman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comic Social Club, David Gallagher, David C. Otero, DC in the 80s, DJ Knight, Eli at EL Knight 20, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Flanger of the Crypt, that's what Paul Hicks is calling himself this month, and I love it, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Rougeau, The Hammer Strikes, Jim Bal, Jim Harold, Joseph Crawford, J. Slab 425, Justice's First Dawn, at Classic JLA, Keith G. Baker, Kylie Chapman, Legion of Superheroes at Bring Back LSH, Longbox Crusade, Mario at Luther Lang, Mike McLarty, Mountain Flower, Pod Dylan, Scott Rowland, Shotgun Godin, Silver and Gold at SNG Pod 4779, Siskoid, Superman Cap Marvel, Sin at Alias Scarecrow, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Unearthly Visions, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zavisha. 
David Gallagher said, I'd never heard of the Silent Knight before, but learning his history was great. Love to see him team up with the demon. Yeah, I'd love to see anybody team up with the demon, but yeah, that would be a cool medieval period story. The 108th Sage said, I've been slowly making my way through the podcast backlog and really enjoying your work on Secret Origins. Well, that's great to hear, and I'm going to make it a lot easier for you to catch up by not doing any more new episodes soon. And Diablo Frank tweeted, Editing a podcast scheduled for October 25th. Realized I needed to correct at RyanDaily01 credit to former host of the Secret Origins podcast. <sighs> Frank just tweeted the first line of my obituary. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Abba Daba, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Alan Pauly, Anastasia Gloom, Andy Capellish, Anthony Durso, Billy Lacasse, Bradley Null, Chris Franklin, Chris Tyler, Christopher Willette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, David Lung, DeBeche, D. Huntsman, Gene Hendricks, Gotham Shioran, Gord Tolton, Grant Richter, Greg Arujo, H. Daniel Reibolt, the Hammer Strikes, Isabel Godin, Ivan Marchina Jr., Jared Driscoll, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Kyle Benning, and Kyle, by the way, has started reviewing the Great Darkness Saga story arc from the Legion of Superheroes on his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast. Short little 15-minute episodes that recap a chapter from that epic Legion story. It's terrific. Check it out. Okay, back to the Facebook feedback. Leslie Trigg III, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Hubbard, Neil Daly, Neil Whitney, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Robert Guy, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, The Irredeemable Shag, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Tim Trevitt, Tim Wallace, Tom Panarese, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzens, Van Z, Vinnie G. and Freddie III, and Xavier Golden. Additional comments were left at the Fire and Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And the resounding theme of the feedback from last episode was how much everyone enjoyed Howard Simpson's appearance on the show. It was so prevalent that I thought I'd address the comments directed toward Howard before getting to the other segments. Rob Kelly said, Having Howard Simpson on the show was really cool. I think he was the first and only guest to do a synopsis who added his own sound effects. His story of how he got into reading comics and then got into the biz deserved its own secret origin story. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I don't think I'll ever be as cool as Howard Simpson's synopsis was. Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I've never liked Kid Gangs or The Guardian, so the Newsboy Legion did nothing for me as a concept, which didn't stop me loving Howard Simpson's takedown of it. What a great unexpected guest. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom said, Howard Simpson was awesome, humble, enthusiastic, and entertaining. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, Howard Simpson's secrets and origins were a welcome surprise to this episode. Darren Sutherland from Trekker Talk and Xenozoic Xenophile said, Great interview with Howard Simpson, a definite highlight of the series. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Fun episode, and it was great hearing from Howard Simpson, a creator on the series. Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines and Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast said, My feelings about the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion is a matter of public record under the heading DGAF. I'm assuming that stands for Don't Give a Flip a Dippa. But I like Howard Simpson's work in general, and especially on Secret Origins, and most especially the Manhunters issue. Awesome comic book reading origin story. And Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks said, Howard Simpson, best story synopsis ever. 
Howard graciously responded to the comments last episode. It was great having him on the show, and only unfortunate that it had to come at the end of the series. But if you liked hearing from him, you should be happy to know that Howard will guest appear on an episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour, next year. I can't wait to work with him again. Okay, what else were people saying after last episode? Dr. Ange commented on Bouncing Boy and the Newsboys, and then said, The winner here is the Silent Knight. I first encountered him in the Brave and the Bold Digest. Back then, I only knew Brave and Bold as a Batman team-up book. And trust me, Batman being displayed prominently on the Digest cover is what made me buy it. But I loved the Silent Knight and the Viking Prince stories. I think the concept, seeming weakling becomes powerful hero, is well-traveled. There is sort of a Prince Adam He-Man vibe here. But the environment of Arthur's court should be mined in the comics. Why not here? And then Ange has a direct question for Gene Hendricks. While Percival is of noble birth, he was raised in the wild. He would be considered a landless peasant. And yet he is knighted. Gene mentioned that courtly ways would have made it impossible for him to be considered for knighthood. Did the court know his noble background before? I always thought, although I'm no expert, that it was Percival's skills that led him to being thought worthy of being knighted. Well, Gene Hendricks responded, It wasn't unheard of for peasants to be knighted, it was just extremely uncommon. Also, both the nobles and the peasants would have looked at him as jumping above his station, so he wouldn't have had the respect normally given to a knight. Basically, he was knighted because he showed all of the qualities of knighthood, but he wasn't fully accepted until his true parentage was known. Think of it like the character of Sharp. He was a sergeant that was given a field commission as a lieutenant for his bravery, but the men thought he was putting on airs, and the other officers thought he was crude and unintelligent. Once he proved himself, though, most people managed to respect his abilities. And then Ange continued, I thought all of the music would be rap songs as a sort of that's a rap pun heading into the last episode. And with Space Museum being in the last issue, I will again nominate Sugar Walls as the music intro for a story about a building. To which Diablo Frank said, Why not? I know whenever I think about Sheena Easton singing Princess Song, it's the secret origin of some kind of erection that's going to take place. But I think referring to it as a space museum would get you slapped so hard you'd be the bouncing boy. Okay, Ange, because you're my friend and you've been so good to me, I will give you a minute of sugar walls. Enjoy. Alright, that is over and we never need to talk about it again. Paul Hicks asked, am I the only one here who always gets the Shining Knight and the Silent Knight mixed up? Yes. 
Chris Franklin said, I first met Silent Night in the same Brave and the Bold Digest Ange mentioned above. It made quite an impression on me, especially the Robin Hood tale. I get the He-Man Prince Adam angle as well. I haven't reread this issue in a long time, and it didn't register that they fundamentally changed the Silent Night's origin. If there is one nagging aspect about this series, it's the tendency to muck with things that should have been left alone. With no Silent Night appearance on the docket, why make this change? Bah! Uh, we got a thought-provoking comment from Brad, who said, Regarding the Newsboy Legion Mark II and the intro of Flippa Dippa, three years before Jimmy Olsen issue 133, there was an off-Broadway sex comedy about a black scuba diver written by Bruce J. Friedman and featuring Cleavon Little of future Blazing Saddles fame. The name of the show was Scuba Duba. Chris Franklin replied, You just blew my mind, connecting Jack Kirby to Blazing Saddles? Wow! And then Gene Hendricks said, now I want to see Flippa Dippa walk in saying, Candy Graham for Darkseid, and win the day. Sean Walsh said, love the Bouncing Boy story, short and sweet, and once again, Templeton proves the perfect artist for the material. That long panel of Chuck Foster Tain, yes, Bouncing Boy's real name is a reference to Citizen Kane, bouncing all about is the character portrayed at his most essential and lovable. By a lesser creator, the humor would have been perhaps too cruel or mocking, yet with Templeton, it absolutely works for a hearty laugh that doesn't hurt Chuck in the slightest. Then Sean said, I was again reminded while reading The Shining Knight story that this was not a Roy Thomas history lesson. Thomas's handling of historical tales has been admirable, but really wears on you when reading on a more than monthly basis. Instead, this was an actual comic origin story by Jan Strad, no less, whose wonderful Sword of the Atom I just read a few years ago, and thus made this an extra pleasant read. In particular with this story, John Koch's energetic artwork was a great sight, primarily to a pair of eyes so trained on seeing tales of Prince Valiant illustrated by John Cullen Murphy dominate the Sunday funnings straight through my youth. It's always refreshing to see a medieval tale such as this drawn by someone more geared to deliver to a superhero comics audience. Rob Kelly said, Tom Zoller, my fellow Joe Kubert School alumnus, had a great line about Bouncing Boy. He's an obese, kind of nerdy guy who got to become a superhero and marry a woman who split herself into three women. If that's not a motivational story, then I don't know what is. Well put. David A. Scutiera said, This show demonstrates how wonderful this limited series of yours is and why I'm going to miss it so damn much. Wonderful, wonderful episode with a fantastic interview. So glad I got to be a small part of this whole project. Well, back at you, David. Darren Sutherland said, Ruth and I are big fans of heroes such as Robin Hood, Zorro, and King Arthur, and thoroughly enjoyed your coverage of Silent Night. And having Gene Hendricks along was the perfect decision. He is definitely an authority on those types of stories. I have very little familiarity with the character, but after hearing the great discussion, I really want to read those stories. It's a shame they aren't collected, and I really wish that the current comics industry had room for more variety, because this would be a series I would read every month. What can I say, Darren, other than I completely agree with you? MTC said, If we ever get that reunion tour you alluded to in an earlier episode, Ryan, I suggest switching up the guests on different segments. That way, Diablo Frank could cover Ambush Bug next time, and maybe Howard Simpson would cover issues he has worked on. This was a great episode with great guests. Well, thank you very much for that last sentiment. As for the reunion tour, no comment. Uh, Thomas Favi said, This bums me out. I love this show, and I'm going to miss it. Luckily, you have more great shows that we can follow. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy what is to come. Diablo Frank said, I wish this podcast existed that year Roy Thomas came to Houston's Comic Palooza to mostly lounge at a small, empty table, unbothered by fans, myself included. 
I think that was the last year I didn't do creator interviews on the floor, and was also before I had a Wonder Woman podcast, so I frankly had no use for the dude outside making skunk faces when he badmouthed Obama. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Like Paul Hicks above, I initially mixed up Shining Knight and Silent Knight. Okay, Paul isn't the only one that got them confused. Jimmy continues, I feel Shining Knight was the better character and Morrison brought a new perspective to that character in his Seven Soldiers maxi-series. I do remember reading the Silent Knight story in the 2000's Brave and the Bold, but I think it was Mark Wade, not JMS, who wrote the story. Didn't I say Mark Wade? If I said Straczynski wrote that issue, then I meant Mark Wade, but I'm pretty sure I said Mark Wade. Hmm, if only there were some way to go back and prove what I said last episode. Ah, it's impossible. Oh well. Our last comment comes from Martin Gray, who said, Thanks for another fine episode. I'm getting emotional. Then, after pulling himself together, Martin added, I can't believe you didn't make a crack about the young Silent Knight's Guy Gardner pudding bowl. I'm not a fan of the character. Whenever I think of the Silent Knight, I default to the more interesting Shining Knight. Okay, hey, Paul, Martin too. And then he said, I did love Gene's insights, even though I couldn't give a flying horse that a peasant wouldn't become a knight. It's comics. And then Martin said, Frank depressed me with his Roy Thomas anecdote. (laughs) Join the club, Martin. He continues, No one is perfect, but I doubt any comic creator loves the superhero genre quite so much. He's a fan, like us, who lived the dream, and while his slavish adhesion to old continuity could be a bit frustrating, he's contributed so much to comics that I'm bloody glad we had him. You know what, Martin? I am too. I was pretty tough on Roy Thomas at times during this podcast. Sometimes justifiably, I think. But not always. The fact is, though, Secret Origins was his baby, and none of this could exist without his passion for these characters and his particular vision for their stories. Once he left the series after issue 31, I would often find myself reading a story and wondering, how would Roy Thomas have approached this? Now, that is not to say I think his approach would have improved all or even some of the later entries of Secret Origins, but maybe some, maybe. You can definitely see the difference in approach looking at the second half of the series. The guiding voice of Mark Wade in the later issues wasn't better or worse than the issues that Roy edited, but the consistency of a certain level of quality under the Roy Thomas issues cannot be denied. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't really appreciate how much Roy impacted not just these stories, but this show and my feelings about this show until after he had left Secret Origins. And now that I do see that, well, it's a feeling that can only be expressed through what Rob calls another needle drop. I got my ticket for the long way round Two bottle of whiskey for the way And I sure would like some sweet company And I'm leaving tomorrow Back on September 28th, right after I recorded the final segment with Shag, I posted on Facebook, Recording for Secret Origins 50 has wrapped. 
I got about 20 likes or crying face emojis, along with some comments from listeners like Trevor Owen Williams, who said, I'll be very sad to see it go, but glad that you're staying active in multiple other podcasts. While I can't really pick a favorite podcast among the dozen or so I follow, it was probably this one that hooked me into the whole world of comic book podcasts. So for that, I cursed, I mean, thank you, Ryan. It really is an amazingly well put together production. Sean Ross said, Congratulations. Speaking as someone who has listened to every episode, I really appreciate all of your great work. Your show is part of what convinced me to give DC another chance when Rebirth hit. It reminded me how much I love those characters, even the ones Roy Thomas wrote. Van Z said, Closing Time is playing in my head, and Time of Your Life from Green Day. Gord Tolton said, Congratulations. A job well done, sir. Mike Gillis said, Now to cover each and every issue of Spawn. Yeah. Jay Jones said, it was a hell of a ride. David Ace Gutierrez said, seriously, it is one of the best podcasts I've ever heard, and that's excluding the Mr. Miracle episode. Jared Driscoll said, congrats. And Tim Trevitt said, that is awesome, but also sad. That's sort of how I felt. But I'm also relieved and excited. And hey, the Secret Origins series may be over, but the podcast isn't. Not quite yet. As I've said before, there will be one more installment of the Secret Origins podcast. It might drop in two weeks, it might drop in November. I'm not exactly sure how long it'll take me to put it together. It won't be like a normal episode. I'm calling it a coda, but it's not like the final chapter. It's more like supplemental features or DVD extras. I'm not going to tell you all of what is going to be on the episode, but I can tell you at least two features. The first is listener feedback from this episode, so please, continue to write in with comments, leave an iTunes review, like, share, favorite, retweet, I will cover it all on the final episode. The other feature I can guarantee is the Secret Origins Superlatives, basically the best of lists. I'm going to rank my favorite and least favorite Secret Origins covers, stories, and issues, and I would love it if you joined in the discussion. Leave a comment or a message with your top five or top three or top one, or your bottom five as the case may be, in the categories of best cover from a Secret Origins issue, including the annuals and the special of course, best individual story, and best overall issue. I will mention your lists when I share my own, and while I have already made my lists, who knows, maybe you'll present a case for something that I dismissed and changed my mind. Anyway, yeah, this isn't the last time I'll be talking to you, but it is the end of the series. 50 issues, 3 annuals, 1 special, all done. And I could not have done it without the help of a whole lot of people. I want to thank my guests, Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag, Michael Bailey and J. David Weeder, Tom Panaris and David Ace Gutierrez, as well as my former guests on the show, Aaron Moss, Al Girding, Alan Middleton, Andy Capellish, Andy Leyland, Ange, Bas Levesque, Bob Fisher, Bradley Null, Chad Bokelman, Chris Franklin, Cindy Franklin, Clinton Robison, Darren Sutherland, Diablo Frank, DJ Nat, Doug Zavisha, Dr. G, the man of nerdology, Emily Middleton, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Howard Simpson, Jay Jones, Jeff Nettleton, John M. Wilson, Justin Barlow, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Luke Giaconetti, Mark Marble, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Michael Bradley, Mike Gillis, Mike Peacock, Nathaniel Hubbard, Nathaniel Wayne, Nicholas Prom, Paul Hicks, Paul Scavito, Paul Spataro, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Siskoid, Sean Engel, Shotgun, Stella, Tim Wallace, 
and my wife, Angela, who could have killed this show at any point during its life, but thankfully she let me neglect our marriage so I could devote my time and energy to this podcast, because I think she realized that this show fulfilled me in ways she never could. I've said too much. Anyway, in addition to everyone who has appeared on the Secret Origins podcast, I want to thank everyone who supported the show on social media like Facebook and Twitter, everyone who wrote an iTunes review, everyone who left a comment either on the Fire and Water website or the original WordPress site, everyone who subscribed to the podcast, and everyone who listened to even just one episode. Just one single minute. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. Bye.